Stuff podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. Another packed episode. Yes, in the spring of packed episodes, it, it has been it has been a marathon of of kind of the same topic over and over again. But like we just have to keep on plumbing these depths. One new topic this week, which is Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Yeah, I saw it. I fucking loved it. What do yeah. you think? I, I like it a lot. I think it's kind of... I don't love it as much as some people are, but I definitely like it at probably about as much as the first Guardians movie, yeah. which I liked a lot. Yeah. yeah, and I liked this one even more. So I just... There's so many fun things to talk about with yeah. it. So we'll do a spoiler chat on that movie. Again, judging by box office, you've all seen it. So whatever. Come if you if you have if somehow haven't seen it, don't listen to this yet. We'll sure. get there when we get it's there. It's also it's not like a movie you can really spoil for someone. Not that, that like, movie telegraphs his plot pretty heavily, like pretty intentionally. Yeah, there's like one thing maybe you could, but other than that, yeah. So really good movie. Uh, we got a new episode of Doctor Who. Knock knock. Who's there? <sighs> a great fucking episode. That's who. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, I, I loved it a lot. I I mean, I always love the horror Doctor Who's, but in a particular, I like when they like. Go as hard into horror as this episode. Yeah, this was a particularly good horror. Like, a lot of horror Doctor Who is sort of on the cerebral horror side, and it's not as viscerally scary to me, especially in modern Who. Yeah. This episode was scary. Yeah, this is this episode was like you could probably just cut a solid like contiguous ten minutes out of this, show it to someone, and they would just assume it's like a like kind of lower budget horror movie. And that's it. With with a with a Scottish actor doing a really interesting performance. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, good episode of Doctor Who, and uh, I think we're going to return to Persona 5. I think the length of that conversation will be dictated by where we are when we get there in this episode. Yeah. But um, we have more, we finished all the spoiler chats, we've done four episodes on Persona 5, but I know we have other kind of questions we want to ask with the game. Yeah. We, because now we've, we've done all the spoiler casts, and now we can like just to talk about the game in its entirety, which we haven't really had an opportunity to do. Yeah, and so I think we're going to do some of that. Again, this might not be the last one, but we'll figure out what that is when we get there. Yeah. More Persona 5 chat. And if you still are not playing Persona 5, there's plenty of episode for you to enjoy otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Sean, how are you enjoying the weather here in sunny Colorado? Oh, it's so good. It's just, you know, I love when, you know, it's like 2 in the afternoon and then all of a sudden... This like ungodly fucking hailstorm appears out of nowhere. You're like, and when I walk upstairs, it, is my room just going to be covered in broken glass? Is this going to be one of those days? Luckily, nothing got broken that I can tell in the hailstorm of the fucking century. But yeah, we had a hailstorm here in Colorado today in Golden and Lakewood that was, I mean, easily the hardest I think I've ever been in. It's it's probably top five. Yeah, yeah, it was insane. Like. It was so loud. The hail was just like... It felt like there was a god in the heavens just chucking golf balls at my windows. Yeah, it's like God got drunk and God's not a very nice drunk. And he's just like, you know what I'm going to do today? Fuck you, Colorado. (laughs) Yeah. 
It it was insane, and it's kind of funny. So I just was in my house with my dog, and we kind of bunkered down, and you know we were fine. Nothing broke. Luckily, my car was okay, even though it wasn't in the garage. It has some dents, but it has no. The windows didn't break or anything, okay, which yeah. is good. Um, but it was funny. After that, I had to go to an appointment. Um, like an hour later, and luckily it had calmed down enough by then, because I actually, I would have canceled it if it had still been doing it, because I wouldn't have wanted to leave my dog home alone with that. Right. Just for a variety of reasons. Um, but anyway, I, I went out, and I went over to Denver West, kind of this, the, where the, like, the Colorado Mills Mall is, and I had this appointment there, and I'm driving around, and there were cars with broken windshields and stuff everywhere. Yeah. And tow trucks, and at one point I had to go to a gas station, because I had to fill my car up, and... The gas station attendant was just telling everyone stories of what he'd heard because that's the, probably a good person to ask of yeah. like what's going on. The Colorado Mills Mall, did you hear this? No. The roof caved in. What? Yeah, like near the food court. Jesus. They have apparently have this, these like sun windows like yeah, way yeah. up high. They caved in a bunch of them and the, the mall flooded a little bit and they shut down the entire mall, evacuated it, and they have no idea when they're going to be able to reopen. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, yeah I've not heard that yet. And apparently in the movie theater that's at the Mills Mall... Uh, the ceiling also started caving in in certain theaters, and people had to Man. leave. Yeah, I mean, you know it's a r- particularly rough hailstorm when, like, two hours after it, you look outside and it looked like it snowed that afternoon. Yeah. Like, that's not how hailstorms are supposed to go. Like, two hours after hailstorm, it's supposed to have basically all melted. Yeah, I mean, uh, I also, another great story I heard from the gas station attendant is someone apparently was in his parking lot, like, walking to their car... Got hit by a like tennis ball sized hail in his foot, broke his foot, had to go to the hospital. Jesus, yeah, yeah. Don't go outside in hailstorms, kids. No, yeah, no. They're they're very dangerous, and it's it's it is really scary. It is like you just you know because I was in my basement at the time, like I think I was like fucking playing video games or something, and then all of a sudden it's like. Has my dad taken up playing the drums? What the fuck is going on right now? It's like run upstairs. It's like is God just playing drums on a roof? What is even happening? It it was a trip. My my dog was so funny through it because when it started, I was just on the couch with her, like reading a book, and it starts going crazy. And I I like kind of I, I had a hand on her anyway because I was kind of petting her, and then I kind of just like put an arm around her, like it's okay, it's okay. And she was fine. Like, I thought, she, like, reasonably, a dog could freak out at that. Yeah, because it is obscenely loud. And, and she's only, like, two. I don't think she's ever been in a hailstorm, you know? Um, but instead, she just started, like, looking all around. Like, she, like, she stirred a little bit, and then she, like, kind of looked up at the ceiling, and then at the windows. And then the freak out, and she didn't really freak out, but if she were to freak out, what it was more than anything was just looking everywhere, being like, where's that coming from? Right. And the answer was, I'm sorry, Phoebe, it's coming from everywhere. Yeah. And finally she gets up and, like, goes over to like the back door and is just looking out the window like what is that and, like she was just curious like what yeah. the hell is going that's on that's almost something where i feel like as a pet owner it maybe almost makes you even more nervous of like i feel like my dog should be treating this as a more serious situation <laughs> if like because then it would make me more confident if i was not here the dog would be cautious enough to be fine when the yeah. dog's just like oh what is this this is kind of interesting you're like no you stupid sack of fur like get away from the window <laughs> Yeah, if I had let her go outside, she probably would have just to see what it was. I would never do that, but because yeah. some of those hails were bigger than she was. Not really, but they were big, Yeah, um, as hail goes. So anyway, yeah, and it was uh, like 90 degrees yesterday. Yeah, no, it's... it's, it's That's Colorado. It's Colorado. It's, just, it's what you sign up for when you come to the state. <sighs> Stupid weather. Anyway, uh, let's talk about some stuff. Let's talk about stuff. 
Uh, I want to follow up on our Dragon Quest conversation from last okay, week. Okay, sure, I do too. Because um, I continued to play Dragon Quest. So you've continued, so just that yeah. same, like, the Dragon Quest 1? Uh, I mean, I finished Dragon Quest 1 shortly, kind of after that last podcast, because it's not a very long game, and I'm deep into Dragon Quest 2, which is not as good as Dragon Quest 1, but is a fascinating game. It's not as, like, crazy as, like, Final Fantasy 2 was. For people who don't know, like, Final Fantasy 2 is a really bizarre game that has a bunch of really strange systems in it. Like, it has a very Elder Scrolls-esque, like, you gain skills by attacking. Like, so, like, you, you become better at attacking things by just attacking things and level that skill up that way. And part of the way that Final Fantasy 2 is designed is, like, you can just attack your own party members in battle to level up their attack skill, which is just... Insane! It's an insane system it's, to design for a video game. I, I, I played a little bit of that last year. I think Final Fantasy II has some amazing stuff in it. It also has some stuff where you're just like, you guys, good on you for swinging for the fences. Yeah. But this doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Dragon Quest II's not quite as far in that direction, but it's definitely, it like expands out the sort of like scope of the game in a way that's really fascinating. And it's one I've had a lot of fun playing. But I absolutely have to say, if anyone has any like you know inkling to try to play all these games, you're, you get to Dragon Quest Two, fucking play the game with a fact. Like it is absolutely like there's only one part in Dragon Quest One where I looked something up, and even then, like I could have probably figured it out if I'd spent a bit more time with it. Dragon Quest Two, you will be utterly lost halfway through that game if you do not use a fact to sort of figure out how to progress yeah. from there. But yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm, I'm definitely enjoying the Dragon Quest. Nice. I'm playing some Dragon Quest. I uh, I got the iOS version of Dragon Quest 1 you were talking about on the podcast, because yeah. it's like two bucks. And it's cool. Like, that game, I'd love to play more of it, but that port pisses me off, because they do this weird thing where you have to hold the phone vertically to play it. Sure. They yeah. do, like, why? Why? Every other port, you hold it like a fucking TV screen, and you play it normally. Don't get cute with it. That's stupid. It just it looks dumb and it doesn't work nice for me. Right. But but there's I mean it's it's you get some of the fun stuff with that port like the ye old translations. Yeah, the very like exaggerated. Which like it's not entirely unjustified that translation method, but it's also maybe it maybe goes a bit far with it. Uh, but I I I deeply admire the like dedication sure, to it. Yeah, because they don't go like half assed either. Like it's not just a couple of these like. I had to, like, stop and, like, slow down and, like, I have to, like, pay attention to this because yeah. they wrote it, like, in iambic pentameter or something. Like, it's not really. But, like, it's crazy how far they went with Yeah, it. they were very dedicated with the Elizabethan English sort of yeah. direction they went with that. <laughs> yeah. Which, as I understand it, is not at all how <laughs> Japanese Dragon Quest is written. No, it's totally normal except for, like, the king speaks in a very kingly fashion. And yeah. so, like, that kind of makes sense. The normal people just talk like normal people. Yeah. So, anyway, that was not my favorite way to play that game. And I can't read Japanese, so... Or not as fluently as Sean can, certainly. So I didn't want to kind of go that route that you have. So I do have a 3DS, though. And as I said last week, I've really been wanting to play those ports they made of 7 and 8. So I picked right. up 7 because it was on sale for like 30 bucks. And 7 um, is the PS1 one, correct? Yes, it's the yeah. PS1 one from the year 2000. So it's actually newer than I kind of thought. I, I always forget that PS1 does yeah. transfer into the 2000s a little bit. Yeah, because that was like right on the border for PS1 yeah. and PS2. Yeah, and 7 is the one that's famously like 100 plus hours long. It's really kind of a series of small stories where basically you have to... The game starts where you are on this island in the middle of like an endless ocean and everyone, all the inhabitants of the island thinks that's the whole world and the ocean is just everything else. But you play as this kid who I named Akira because Toriyama sure. and everything. Sure. For fun. Yeah. And, um, 
and uh, you, you play as this kid, and he, his friend is like the prince of the island, and that the prince is always like trying to figure out, like, I think the adults are lying to us, there's more to the world, and basically you start doing this time travel adventure where you go to different periods and like help these people solve their problems, and then that area of the world is restored. So like another island will like rise mm. out of... It's, it's almost like you're putting back a Japan-style continent of like a bunch of little islands, you know? Cool. Um, so it's an interesting game. Like uh, I've been on an Akira Toriyama kick lately because I've been trying to make the final push through my Dragon Ball Z rewatch I've been doing. Right. And the Dragon Ball Super manga adaptation actually just started coming out in book form over here in the U.S. Huh. And that's awesome. I can't recommend that enough. Uh, as someone who read Dragon Ball in manga form first, very unusual I know for Americans, um, I, I love that, that they did a manga of that. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I've been doing that and just some other, like, I've been trying to read through some of Dr. Slump also, which I've never read the whole thing of. Yeah. And um, so I'm just on that kick and I'm like, I might as well throw Dragon Quest into the mix. Just all the pillars of the Akira Toriyama, like, chapel. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that is the best thing about Dragon Quest. I think it's the art design and the character design. It's got the best monsters of pretty much any yeah. JRPG. Like, Persona, you can make the argument for, but Persona's also in a weird space where you fight the Personas, and yeah. then they become your Personas. Um, but, like, the Dragon Quest monsters, especially for, like, a normal kind of JRPG, are just so fun. You know, the, yeah. sl the slime never gets old. The slime is classic for a reason. And I don't know if this is the case for monsters you've seen in Dragon Quest Seven, but in Dragon Quest One and Two, I really love that there's, like, a good, like, third of the monsters are just from Dragon Ball. Like, there's just, like, there's like you look at the skeleton, and you're like... This is just the robot pirate skeleton from Dragon Ball. Just, it's not a robot. But it's just the skeleton part is 100% the same. Which is particularly notable because it doesn't look at all like a human skeleton. Like, it's yeah. very definitely not. And like, the dragon very much looks like the dragons from Dragon Ball and it stuff does, like that. In what I've played of Seven, which is a tiny sliver of that game so far, it does not... I mean, it makes sense for those, like, one and two that that would be yeah. the case. Because that's, like, the time period when he's writing Dragon Ball. Yeah. If by the year 2000, he was years past that, so... None of that so far. But, again, it's a long game. There could be plenty yeah. of Dragon Ball villains in yeah, there. Yeah, like, there's one enemy that, like, in particular, I think is literally just the exact same design as, like, Giren, the, the guy who... The dragon dude that Goku fights in the first tournament in, like, yeah. original Dragon Ball. It is just the same character. Like, it's 100% the same. And it's kind of amazing. Yeah. It feels like if, like, I got on the boat in Dragon Quest II and just sailed, like, west... For like five hours, eventually I would just land in Dragon Ball Land. I think you could totally like, and, and that's the thing is I don't think I've gotten into the weird shit yet with Dragon Quest. Like right. it's mostly been like humans and human stories. I'm sure that will open up, you yeah. know, at some point in that game. It's cool. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about Dragon Quest, and I don't know if I'm hooked enough that I'm going to sit down and play this whole game right now or anything, but like, it's like the missing link of evolution in JRPGs that we have not really experienced that much over here because yeah. it's. That most of them have come out, but they're not in the mainstream in the way like Final Fantasy is. And Dragon Quest just been doing its own fucking thing. Yeah. Been plugging along with that. Like Dragon Quest Seven, not a new game at this point, but it's from this, you know, century. It's from two thousand. And this is a three DS remake, which has updated some things. Like right. now it's not random encounters. The enemies are on the map. Okay. Which is kinda cool because you just yeah. have like a slime bouncing on the map and you walk up to it and fight it. Nice. Uh, and things like that, and that's nice. But, you know, you have to go talk to a priest to save every single time. Okay, cool, like yeah. That. That's that's how it works in Dragon Quest 2. Yeah, and... In and Dragon Quest 1, you have to go talk to the king to save, and he's the only person in the game that acts as a save point, which is like, Dragon Quest 1 is small enough that you can kind of accept it, but I definitely 
appreciated playing that game in an emulated form where I was like, I can just save what I want yeah. to save. Yeah, no, with Dragon Quest uh, Seven, yeah, you have to you go talk to a priest and go through like eight dialogue boxes to save and things yes. like that. And the whole game just has a very slow pace to it. And, I mean, 7 especially because it takes a while to get the story started. I don't think to too egregious a degree. It's a long game. It happens. Sure, yeah. But, like, you know, it's a while before you even fight anyone and things like that. And, you know, the battle system, they're not getting cute with it. It's not, they're not doing anything special with it, really. It is a, a classic JRPG battle system. You can attack. You can have some magic. As I understand it, like 30 hours into 7, you get a class system. I'm not anywhere near 30 hours into 7 yet. But, like, you know, it's a battle system. It's turn-based. They don't even have, like, active time or anything yeah, like no, that. Yeah, that's, no, and that's, I think, because I've been having this fun time playing Dragon Quest 1 and 2 and sort of thinking about my relationship with the old Final Fantasy games, which I generally really like. But there's something about Dragon Quest that, like, attracts me to it even more. And I think one of the things, if I had to boil it down into one sentence, is that Dragon Quest would never have an active time battle system because Dragon Quest knows that that's fucking horseshit. Yes. <laughs> and I am generally okay with the active time battle system. It but doesn't make any goddamn sense. I understand. I understand. Um, no, but I and I actually like the battle system in Dragon Quest, and and even in at the point of like seven, it's all built that the battles go super fast. Yeah, you're never in one for too long. And actually, not having random encounters in seven, I think helps because even though you still probably have the same number of battles, just the agency of choosing is like a mental thing that releases you from that yeah. annoyance factor. But you know, it's interesting. It's it's very quaint but i don't mean that as an insult you know i mean that as like it's interesting that this is a jrpg series that has kind of stayed true to its course forever and that's yeah. fascinating to me and i know there are you know eight and nine are the ones past you know seven and they've advanced some things more but generally that's what the series has been and that's fascinating to me it is also cool while i was doing all my research with this i found out on a nintendo 3ds you can play four five six seven eight nine right because, all because, yeah because there's a bunch of them on virtual console uh, not Virtual Console. Oh, they were really? remade on DS. Four, oh, five, six, all of oh, D- right, DS yeah. remakes. I didn't... Yeah, um, they might be on Virtual Console too. I don't know yeah. that. But like 4, 5, 6 are on there. 7 and 8 just had the 3DS remakes. And 9 was a DS game. Yeah. So, and then, have you seen what they're doing with Dragon Quest Eleven on 3DS? No. This is fascinating. So Eleven is coming out, you know, this July in Japan. And, of course, it's going to be a really big deal there because they love their Dragon Quest. Yeah. But it's coming out on PS4 and 3DS. Which you never hear that combo. Yeah. Games never come out, unless they're like little indie games. Like mainstream games don't share those two consoles. But what they've done is, so the PS4 version is like what you would expect, 3D graphics and all that. Um, and you know, it looks like a PS4, probably like a you know, low-grade graphics level PS4 game, but a PS4 game. Yeah. And then on the 3DS, it's got two graphic styles. The top screen has the three, like a downgraded version of the 3D game you play on PS4. And the bottom screen has like a 16-bit Super NES version of nice. the entire game. And as I understand it, at a certain point, like you have to choose between one of them to play the game through. But they have built all of Dragon Quest XI as either a like modern 3D game or a 16-bit game. I think I would get that game on 3DS. Sure. If I had to choose. Just like, that's awesome that they've done that. And they're even selling bundles in Japan where you just get both of them. I don't think there's ever been a bundle where you get a 3DS and PS4 game before. <laughs> no, yeah. It is, it is an interesting combination for sure. Yeah, but that's fascinating, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, like that's actually a, an interesting kind of innovation that you wouldn't expect to see. But anyway, I've had fun with it. I think if you're interested in like the history of JRPGs, you kind of owe it to yourself to just try these out. Yeah. And just be like... 
what is this series that is kind of the progenitor of everything else, and and what's it up to these days? You know. Yeah, and and I think in particular, like Dragon Quest One is a game that holds up amazingly well for like its position in the genre and just its age of being a game that was made in like eighty four, eighty five. Like it is totally you can go back and play it, and it still just feels like yeah, like this is a fucking this is a video game you can just play in a way that like a lot of those old games kind of aren't. Yeah, and I will say, like, I only played about an hour of the iOS version, and I just, like, literally, I, it was uncomfortable to hold in my hand that way, but, like, I really liked what I played of it. You know, yeah. it's 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 really cool, and it reminded me a lot of how I think of Final Fantasy 1 in some ways. Frankly. Yeah, it is definitely is a Final Fantasy 1-esque kind of JRPG, which is always kind of like, I've always wondered, like, what if... JRPGs had gone more in that direction instead of like kind of restricting that stuff and being like way more like linear narrative focused in the way that later Final Fantasies became and I assume Dragon Quest becomes as well if they had just said like no fuck it like let's just let's just go in that other direction be like D&D as fuck because I really like that about Final Fantasy 1 yeah I like that too it's uh yeah. Anyway, so that's old JRPG talk. Any yeah. other stuff to go with? Sean? Um I I made a promise on the last podcast to talk about the, the demo to pray, I have played the demo to pray. It seems fine. Okay, I've I've heard this game is really cool. Someone made a Metroid comparison. I want to play sure. it. I'm just really busy, frankly, yeah. actually preparing topics for this podcast, and I don't want to commit myself to starting another game right now. Yeah, but I think it's like a game that seemed like it would be really cool, but does not demo particularly well, just based on the kind of type of game it is, because it's very Deus Ex, Bioshock, System Shocky, like that kind of game. And that's just like, just playing like the first hour of a game like that, it's so systems heavy that it's like, it's kind of hard to sort of like get into the meat of it. And like the story kind of grabbed me at first and then there's like a big twist about like 20 or 30 minutes in that like is fine as a twist, but I feel like the execution of it like didn't like grab me the way they kind of wanted it to, to sort of pull you into the story. But it definitely seems like a game that... You know, if you got the whole game and sat down and like got into the systems, it would be very interesting. Yeah, I'm looking. There's look. There's three games from the first half of this year yeah. I want to catch up on, and it's Prey, Near Automata, and uh, Yakuza Zero, Horizon Zero Dawn, and Yakuza Zero, and Yakuza Zero. Sorry, I, four. Yes, that's that's four. Yakuza Zero. I don't. I've like put in a different category because it's you know like a localized game. But sure. you're totally right. Those are the four. Um, and I'm kind of also like frozen at the moment of like which one do I want to do first? Yeah, I I I, ha- I bought Near Automata on the sale they had on PSN recently because it was for like forty five. I haven't done bucks. it yet. I might still. Yeah, like and and so I just haven't started it because I like just was off that string of playing like fucking three like between Yakuza Zero, Zelda, and Persona Five, and I guess like Horizon in there as well, which is not a huge game, but it was like thirty to forty hours for me. Like this is just like a long stretch of like big AAA games. It's like okay, I need to, I need to slow down. I need to play like a really old video game and just yeah. like chill out for a week or two, and then I will get into near. I had the same thing. Like Persona Five took it out of me. And uh, I just, not like in the best way possible, but it took it out of me and I've like been recovering with Dragon Ball and stuff like that and like some light Dragon Quest. So I I will probably pick up Nier on this sale too and then maybe we'll start playing it at the same time at some point and we'll talk about it. There's also, end of the month for me is the new Fire Emblem on 3DS. I'm psyched for that. So, yeah. Video games, they're happening. Yes. And luckily I haven't, I don't know of like anything coming out over the summer, which is fantastic. Yeah. Such great news. 
Yeah, there's, there's arms. Other than that, I don't know, yeah, and I can catch up with things. It's yeah, great. So it's a big open field, and then till we just get executed once fall begins and a billion video games start coming out again. And once again, they made a Call of Duty I'm marginally interested in. You fuckers. Yeah. I, I feel like I want to play Call of Duty again this year. I'm sick of this. Stop it. I want to be able to ignore that series. Yeah, like I want to be able to sort of prioritize other things, and then you're like, no, we made another Call of Duty, but this time we're like making it cool. It's like, and there's going to oh, be another fuck. Assassin's Creed that they'll have had time to actually work on. Yeah. That could be good. Damn it. Yeah, it, it is It is weirdly rough when the yearly franchises are like actually executing well, and you're <laughs> like, oh, fuck, now I'm obligated to go play these. I know. That's this too much, this too much, not enough time, not enough money. Especially because this is like a year full of very, very much non-yearly franchises, yeah. like your Persona and Zelda and all those. <laughs> Yeah, so... And even, you know, like, we've had some some of these cool new IPs, like yeah. Horizon, yeah, Horizon and Essentially Prey, even though it takes a name because... But it takes it takes nothing. a name and nothing else, yeah. and it's, it's it's weird. Because Bethesda owned the name, Yeah, and there we go. And it's it's a good name for a video game, I guess. Yeah. yeah Nier Automata is technically a sequel, but you, no one yeah. has played the first one, I think, so yeah. It's yeah, interesting. There were, like, the five people that played the first Nier. And, yeah. and, and they very are, they're very passionate about it. I, I'm sure they are. All right, let's get into some of our topics. Oh, quick two pieces of news. Okay. Two pieces of news, quick. What's uh, happening in the news, Jonathan? Uh, one, Persona 5, did you read the director's note that Katsura uh, Hashino... Yeah, is that the right? Katsura Hashino. Yeah. yeah, Katsura Hashino posted on the PlayStation blog? Yes. That yeah. was cool. Very cool. Except, it was kind of sad, he very strongly implied it seemed like he is not going to be directing Persona games anymore. Yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of kind of known like he'd never like it had never been like definitively stated but like this happened around um when i was in bermuda i remember reading this is probably why it never came up on the podcast but atlas did make a new internal studio called studio zero that is headed by uh hashino and then uh soejima and megro which are like the core persona guys and they're making some sort of fantasy rpg something like there's not a lot of details out That's about awesome. it yeah so like they're they're like working on a project that is not Persona related, and it's and so it's heavily implied that another team is going to make Persona Six. Well, and it's interesting. I, let's tackle this right now. Okay, yes, yeah. it's, it's you know this is separate enough from Persona Five, but one of the questions I was going to ask on the Persona Five topic later, and I'll just ask it now, was what would we want these guys to do next? Yeah, and for me, the answer actually very much would be not another Persona game. Me too. Because frankly, it's because as phenomenal as Persona Five is, one. I once again don't know where you grow from here. And two, Persona 5 branches out into so many other, like, mini-genres at different points. Like, I want to see them do other things. Because Persona 5 shows such depth of skill in so many other areas. Like, there were parts where I was like, in some of the palaces, I'm like, these guys should make a platformer. They'd be fantastic at it, you know? Like a Mario Galaxy-style platformer. These guys could do it. So the idea of them, as you say, like heading up kind of their own studio to do something else fills me with a lot of excitement. And then the idea of their one day being a Persona 6 by a different team is scary on one level, but also kind of exciting because as much as we love the Persona 3, 4, 5 formula, it can't go forever. And at some point, it probably does need new blood, and that'll be interesting. Yeah, and and there is a feeling to Persona 5 that, like, you know, they have the 20th anniversary logo at the top with all five of the emblems from the school. And there's this very clear sense of Persona 5 being a game that is both looking forward and looking back at the history of the franchise and pulling things like 
Tartarus from Persona 3 and finding a way to implement it in some way in this game and stuff like that and taking like some like character design things and stuff and musical cues and stuff that feel like are a little bit borrowed from Persona 2 and Persona 1 and like some of the, the element stuff and the guns and stuff like that. There's just like a little hodgepodge of things that feel like it's Persona 5 feels like this culmination of an era for this like weird little franchise. And so I think it's kind of appropriate for them to sort of say, okay, this is it. This is like our this is far as I feel like that team can in some ways go with like the constraints of working on a Persona game and say, you know, baton pass over to the next team because, you know, that's this is a franchise that already had that split once. Like, we already had the Persona 1, the Persona 2s, which are games I like a lot. I think the Persona 2s are fantastic JRPGs. And then hand it off to the new team, like, way later. It was, like, six years later. But then, you know, you have the Persona 3 to 5 era, and that feels, like, very much its own thing. And I would be very interested in a new team tackling, like, sort of what is a Persona game and going in a, like, I hope a different direction with it. Because while, like, I obviously I love the Persona games to death, like, there is a sort of inescapable element of Persona 5 that feels like I kind of, like, want something, like, totally different. It feels like there are constraints about the formula for a traditional Persona game for this team that feels like need to be broken for the next one. Yeah, I, I don't think you can push things like the social link system any further than you did in this game. There's yeah. just some feeling to that of me of, like, they kind of did it perfect. Yeah, or because, like, and if you want to sort of take it further, you have to, like, completely gut it, you know? Yeah. Like, it has to be something, it has to come back in a different form if you want to do it again. And hey, if we view, like, 3, 4, 5 as a trilogy, as people like to do, it's a hell of a trilogy. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> That's a, you know, and yeah, I'm just... These guys could announce they're making a fucking Donkey Kong game, and I'd be like, sign yeah. me up. Fucking, you know? yeah. Donkey Kong is going to get real. He's going to learn about death. It's Donkey Kong takes his fucking coconut gun and puts it up against his head, pulls the trigger, as it starts at the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, what could Shoji Meguro do with the Donkey Kong Country music? It would, be, it would be glorious. Yeah. Anyway, but that was an interesting... If you have not read that note, it's on the PlayStation blog. Really just beautiful little, like, you know, him saying thank you to the Western audience. Yeah. And, and expressing something that I'm sure very real that that team went through of, like, how will this game read outside of Japan? Yeah. And you could tell, I think, he's very genuine saying, we're happy you guys have liked it because this is a really Japanese game. Yeah. <laughs> so, that was cool. Yeah, no, there have been a couple of pretty good interviews with, with Hashino and some of the other members of the team from some American websites. Like, Glixel has a pretty good one that is worth going and, and, and look, checking out because there's a lot of... It's, it's very interesting to see that sort of, like... It's something we've talked a lot about with this game of, like, the cultural divide of the, like, really specific cultural issues in Japan that Persona 5 discusses and how that, like is being translated or has to be sort of interpreted by an American audience I think is a really fascinating question. Yeah. So one other piece of news. Did you see the new Blade Runner 2049 trailer that yes, came I out did. today? Yeah. That movie looks so much better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Although I think I still like it visually looks fantastic but there's still a part of me that like is weirdly tense about that movie of like there's something about like when Harrison Ford is on screen oh. and like that stuff of like I, I don't know. I don't like I don't know about like the story side of this if what these trailers are sort of like suggesting works for me. Even as like obviously they're super vague and I don't think it like you know, it's, it almost says nothing about the movie, but there's something like weirdly tense about me watching those trailers. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all with yeah. that. I think uh, and the visual element frankly is enough to make me excited and we'll talk about that in yeah. a second. There is and you know, the trailers are playing it vague. They really don't give you much of an indication about the story and I actually think for a Blade Runner movie that's fine because I yeah. don't quite I don't know how you cut a trailer for the first Blade Runner. Sure. Like yeah. I'm sure I could go dig my Blu-ray set out and like there's probably a trailer gallery. I have no idea what those look like. But 
anyway, you know, there is, there's the moment in the trailer where Harrison Ford shows up, a little bit from what we saw in the first teaser, but then there's like, you know, um, like, you don't know what you're dealing with or something, and then right. people start shooting and they have to get out of there, and I just, it looked, an, not visually, but like it felt an awful lot in that moment, like, Star Wars Force Awakens. Yeah, sure. And yeah. I love the Harrison Ford stuff in Star Wars Force Awakens, but I do wonder if as he does this like farewell tour of all his roles, is it just going to kind of be the same thing every time where he's old and crotchety and then the new person like he warms to them and then he dies and he's probably going to die at the end. Yeah. And like, you know, and maybe it'll be different than that. Again, this is a incredibly smart team making this movie, but there was a little bit of like is Harrison Ford just going to be doing this for, like, the next five years as he kills off all his characters? Yeah. And it's just another part of me that just, like, trying to rack my brain about how the fuck do you write Deckard into another yeah. Blade Runner movie. Like, that doesn't mean that they can't do it. I just can't figure out a way that you do that and have it work. Like, it just seems so antithetical to what Blade Runner is and, like, its identity and, like, the kind of story it was that, like gives a shit about bringing Deckard back. Like, there's nothing about that character that feels like he well, needs to come back for any reason. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if you cut Harrison Ford out of this trailer and we knew he wasn't in it, there's like 100% excitement for that at that oh, point. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because everything else in that trailer looks like this is Blade Runner, but done by a new team with a fresh eye in a new era, and that looks so exciting. Yeah. Like, I mean... This is directed by Dennis Villeneuve and more excitingly shot by Roger fucking Deakins, yeah. one of the gods of American cinematography. And you can tell, like, he had a field day with this thing. Like, yeah. some of the images in that trailer are out of this world. And, like, I mean, there's the kind of the big trailer to the shot I've seen, like, screenshotted a lot of, like, the hologram woman reaching out to Ryan Gosling. Yeah. And that is definitely feels like a great extension of the kind of images you'd see in the first one. But just, like, the amount of kind of extra desolation you have in this movie, the way it works with those neon lights and everything, it it just like visually looks absolutely incredible. And you're right, like when you get to the Harrison Ford parts, it's not as it looks bad necessarily, it's just like, that's the thing I've already seen. Yeah. You know? And it's just like this like weird lingering question of like, wow, the, what the fuck is the plot of this movie going to be? Like, how do you, how like... Because the plot of Blade Runner 1 is super simple. Like, it's like that's it's not a plot movie. It's, no. The plot of Blade Runner 1 is, you have Deckard, he's a Blade Runner, which is basically like a detective slash hitman who has to go kill these, like, four or five replicants, and then that's the movie, is he goes and does that. That's, like, the whole thing, and it's not, like... And it's, like, some of the things that made me slightly nervous about the trailer was... And this might be more just the way it's edited, more than, like, the actual way that what the scenes are showing. But I feel like, like, wrapping in Deckard and have something of that stuff of, like, the scientist dude at, like, whatever the company is, you know, that makes replicants and all that shit, feels like there's maybe... Like, I think the worst thing this movie could do would be, like, a, like, oh, we're going to go, like, take the company down and, like, solve it or whatever. And, like, I'm going to go team up with, like, I'm new, hot Ryan Gosling Blade Runner. I'm going to go find cool, like, old school fucking gruff-ass Harrison Ford Blade Runner man. And, like, together as old and new Blade Runners, we're going to go take down, like, the man or whatever. Which feels like it's, I can totally see Hollywood making a script for a Blade Runner 2 that is that exact plot. And that is a terrible plot for a Blade Runner 2. It's a terrible plot, and we have no idea if that yeah, would be no. it. Yeah, so. no. Like, again, I have no idea if that's going to be the plot of the movie. But, like, in the back of my mind, I can't, I can't help but have those fears. And just to be fair to the, the guy, I, I, because I shit on him so much for Suicide Squad, 
I really liked Jared Leto's scene in this trailer. Sure, yeah. Um, where he's like pulling the replicants out of like the oil bath or whatever. Right, that yeah. was a haunting image. Like that looked like a good use of Jared Leto. He doesn't have like, you know, gigolo tattoos on. Yeah, it could be a gigolo tattoo. You don't know. Yeah, we don't know, know where the future went. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I actually thought that was a really interesting scene and version of that idea. So, yeah, we'll we'll see with this movie. It it cuts a trailer well so far. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all things considered. So that'll be interesting. Coming out the weekend of my birthday. Oh well, there you go. Yay! And I love Blade that. Runner. Probably means that you're a replicant. I don't know. And I've been wanting to do a Blade Runner podcast for years. Sure. We finally get to do one this year. Yeah, I'll rewatch like all five different cuts of that movie that exists because I have that box set. Yep. It's still one of the best box sets ever yeah, made for it's any really movie. Good. I'm really excited to talk about the work print version of the movie. <laughs> I've never watched the work print version. I think oh, I watched like half of it and I was yeah. like, this is very interesting. I have also watched Blade Runner like three times in the past three weeks. Yeah. I, I'm not going to finish watching the work print version of this movie. Yeah, because really like... Four of the five versions, or, or three of the five, are kind of like different variations on the same cut. Yeah. Because the director's cut is a cleaned up work print, and the final cut is a cleaned up director's cut. So you can kind of just go to the final cut, and you're yeah. okay. Yeah, no, that is definitely the version of the movie to see at this point. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Blade Runner is good. But let's talk about another good movie. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 came out yeah. in theaters this weekend, and we both saw it, and we both liked it. Yeah. And it's got more talking raccoon, more talking tree, more awesome characters. Spoilers from here on out. Uh, if you have not seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but I really enjoyed this movie actually way more than I was expecting to, I feel mm. like. Because, um, like on Thursday, I think I rewatched Guardians of the Galaxy 1. And I like that movie a lot, but I still have kind of the exact same problems with that movie I did when it came out, which is that it feels like it's missing an act in the middle to me where they kind of. Like, the, that movie actually is, on a script level, very simple in how it's written. It's, like, three big scenes. Right. And they're all really good scenes. It just feels like there's a missing link in that movie where the characters kind of lock into place as a team. But everything around that, you know, the character work is so good. Um, the, the tone is generally so on point. The use of music. I love the visuals in that movie. And really, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, for me, took everything I thought the first one did well, distilled it, did it even better. I think the character work is better. I think the acting is better. The music, the use of music, the visuals, the um, just specific character relationship stuff. And I honestly, this is a very weirdly paced sequel, but I liked it where it went with that because I think it plays to the strengths of this series. And I think the movie ends on a really unexpectedly emotional high point. Um, sure, yeah. And, and a place where I don't think any Marvel movie has really gone in terms of the ending of a film. And I think other than the Captain America sequels, which are also kind of weird and on their own boat, this is easily my favorite Marvel sequel. Um, you know, if you compare it to like Iron Man 2 or even Thor 2, which I love and some of those, um, I, I thought this was a really good build on what they had with Guardians 1. Yeah, I mostly agree. I think my main issue with the movie comes with, I like, I thought the action climax stuff just got pretty tedious to me. And I, I wish... Because to me, like, that is kind of how I felt about, like, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was, like, I love so much of the movie. I love the characters. I love the writing. I love the editing. I love the music. I love, like, the visuals. It's, it's hilarious. And a lot of, like, the action beats in and of themselves are very good, particularly the action beats that are, like, not the action climax. But once, like, the villain is very uninteresting, and once it, like, comes to wrapping everything up, it just feels like a bit like kind of going down the checklist of all the things you have to do to beat the villain kind of action scene. And I feel like that was the thing that, that kind of bummed me out the most about Guardians 1, even though I love that movie. And that's I felt like Guardians 2 has, like, the exact same problem in a way that really frustrated me. So, it's like, like, I left that movie, like, 
not disappointed, but like I was hoping, especially because when I had seen it, like because I saw it on like the Sunday after it came out, so like I had already sort of had heard that it's really, really good, and I think my expectations were maybe set a little bit higher than they should have been because I was kind of hoping that the stuff they would have done with like the Kurt Russell character and stuff like that would have been more interesting than the sort of the direction they ultimately went with. And see, I liked the climax a lot in this movie because I probably have a similar issue with Guardians 1 as you do where actually most of the action scenes in that movie I check out a little bit. I thought they tied it all into character so well in this one that like the final action sequence here and the climax because that's this movie has an Empire Strikes Back um, structure to it where sure. you have basically it's a three act movie but not in the sense of most Hollywood three act movies it's where you have an initial act where the team is together and doing a something that is sort of tangentially related to the main plot and then they break up and a really super long second act where everyone is separated and it's all character work and then everyone comes together for kind of a big conclusion and I just thought like when we came together for that conclusion the characters had all changed and gone through so much by that point and then it was about like the payoff of watching these characters bounce off one another and I thought James Gunn did that effectively through action work in this movie more so than I think he did in the first one I, I thought I saw growth as a director um, in some of the staging and visual effects and things like that at the end sure I, I, I kind of agree but then at the same time there's also like it's just the dynamics of like it is like maybe the most like video game like level ass fucking like last fight I've seen in a movie maybe ever like it was so just like giant stone faced man and like that stuff just felt like it was just like a very boring sort of action scene even if like I did think a lot of the character stuff happening was pretty good like I felt like it could have been condensed much tighter than the sort of big action scene they had at the end. And I can probably agree with that. Like, I like this movie a lot. I think I would also like a 10-minute shorter cut of it, where yeah. I think probably just around the movie you could tighten it a little bit without... And not even to saying you lose any particular scene. I just mean, like, yeah. certain cuts where, like... I, uh, for instance, the fight between Nebula and Gamora, Gamora in the middle yeah. is great character stuff, but the action component of it probably goes on too long. Yeah. Like, little things like that, where you could probably get a cut in the 120-minute range... That would be even tighter and better of this. But, yeah. you know, just the highs of this movie to me are so high. Like, some of the character stuff in this movie blew me away. Like, the, to me, the character who walks away with this movie is Yondu, played by Michael yeah. Rooker. Yeah. And it's designed to be that way. But I think to a level I didn't even expect, because I love Yondu in the first Guardians movie. Like, especially on a rewatch, I was like, Michael Rooker is really fucking good in this part. And I want to see more of this dude, especially what you see he can do with his whistling arrow right, thing. Right, yeah. And the sequel, like, I actually was worried early on when um, Nebula shoots him in the head. I'm like, oh, they killed Yondu. And I was like, oh, wait, it was just his headpiece. He's going to be a main character in this thing. And he is. And on some level, absolutely, you can trace the, oh, he's the father Peter Quill always had but never realized. And it's, like, very kind of stock. Right. But the way they do it, in part because they actually keep him apart from Peter Quill most of the movie, which I think is an interesting choice. Right. He grows as a character in such an interesting way. Michael Rooker brings so many shadings to that character. And by the end of that movie, and when he sacrifices himself and everything that happens, and the like, space Viking funeral he gets and everything, kind of amazing how much I, I think they, they did with that character essentially in one movie. Yeah. And I don't think... No, definitely. There has never been a death in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that hit that hard. Just because they haven't allowed themselves to do that, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. You know, even, especially now, because, like, the only other one of that size, really, is Agent Coulson. 
and he came back to life on the TV show. Right. So, and even then, I don't think they ever did as good a job with that character as they did with this guy in one movie. And just, I think, the way that kind of united all the different characters and that I think on a character level, this is just a beautifully written script where even for certain characters who didn't have a specific relationship with Yondu, his death at the end of that movie, you can see kind of solidifies every single person's arc of Nebula realizing, uh, sorry, Gamora realizing how much she cares for her sister and Nebula kind of being humanized by this entire experience and Drax finally kind of softening in his relationship with the the, Uh, Mantis uh, Mantis. and of course obviously what it says about Peter Quill and then I think especially like the last shot of this fucking movie before we go to credits is a tear running down Rocket Raccoon's cheek and I think if you had told anyone in the world five years ago that Marvel would have, I think, maybe their most powerful ending by having the CGI raccoon cry over the death of a blue man, you wouldn't believe that. But I mean, it's the one blue of... man with the red fish fin on his head, yes, please. Yes, It's one of the best things Marvel, I think, has ever done is the ending of this movie and, and that scene. And I think it speaks to... You can do have all the effects in the world. It's a good script. Yeah. It's just, I think, a lot of damn good character writing. You know, this... On some level, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 feels like a couple collected episodes of Guardians of the Galaxy, the TV show. Sure. Not... I think there actually is a Disney TV show. I don't mean that. I just mean, like... Where you, you, or, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Telltale series. <laughs> if we want to go there, sure. So there's a trailer for it in front of my movie. Yeah. But, like... Where you have the room to just let the characters breathe and grow in the way TV does better than movies, generally. And, you know, just some of that stuff, like, I thought it was really impressive where they were able to take some of these characters. And I'm talking about dramatic stuff, but, I mean, if you want to do comedic stuff, Baby Baby Groot. Baby Groot is a comedic masterpiece. Baby Groot's hilarious. I mean, I think across the board, that was the thing. That was kind of my favorite part of the movie was... I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was very funny. This movie was, I thought, was hysterical. Like, there's... Yeah. There's, like... But, like, not never in a way that felt like it was undercutting the drama. It's, like, very similar to Guardians of the Galaxy 1, where it uses the humor to accentuate the, the dramatic moments in really good ways. And to, like, sort of, you know, they're, a lot of the characters are funny characters by their nature. So yeah. they need to be funny in, in a movie. And so there's just some fucking scenes and some lines I thought were so good. Like, the Mary Poppins line that Yandu <laughs> has at the end is unbelievably funny. I think like my maybe my favorite one because again it's like speaks so much to the character is when Star-Lord is sort of like figured like learns how like the extent of his powers now and he's like so I can make anything. It's like basically, yeah, I'm going to make some weird shit. And like that yeah. line like is so good because it's a really funny reaction and it really but the reason why it's such a funny line is because you know the character as well as you do and you immediately imagine all the stupid shit that this dude would make now that he has the power to make whatever he can come up with in his mind. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing. When I rewatch Guardians 1, I do think that movie has some tonal growing pains where I think it generally mixes the humor and drama well, but sometimes a joke will come in and I'm like, I don't know if that melded perfectly. And I thought I totally saw like artistic growth in this movie of like... There was never a moment where I thought this movie was, like, totally out of whack. I laughed consistently, but you could have... I mean, the Mary Poppins joke is right next to some of the heaviest stuff in that movie. Yeah. You know? And I just think their their ability to go pinball all over the map with that stuff is really on point in this. Like, to, to like, a Joss Whedon degree in, like, Avengers 1 and 2. You know? And and this is a significantly better sequel than, like, Avengers 2, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, just... There's... Yeah, some of that stuff is great. I mean... Let's talk about the opening. Okay, yeah. Because the... uh, We'll talk about the Kurt Russell opening in a second. But, like, the opening credits here, where obviously James Gunn's like, 
I made a really good opening credit sequence in Guardians of the Galaxy 1. Yeah. I gotta do it better this time. And I don't think you could do it any better than having basically this super complicated one take with Baby Groot dancing to Electric Light Orchestra yeah. while the credits come up. Masterful. Yeah, it's like maybe the most complicated action sequence in any Marvel movie. And it's like basically used as a joke yeah. for your opening credit sequence. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, because it's an action sequence that we're not seeing, you know? Yeah. We're seeing it from the level of Baby Groot very self-consciously dancing for the camera. Yeah. I love it. And also that, you know, that's essentially also a character introduction for us because one of the super interesting things here is that Groot, this is not the Groot from the last movie. Yeah, he's, he's he like, like, Baby Groot does not just mean he is small. It's like his development has reduced to, like, a childlike state, which I thought was, like, was not something I necessarily expected they were going to do in the sequel when, like, because we knew for, we've known for a long time that it was going to be Baby Groot. Because yeah. they, they, I mean, they, they, they sort of teased that at the end of the first movie. And I just didn't think, like, my mind didn't go to, like, it's, he's also just, like, this dumb and little and goofy and weird because he's got a little tiny tree brain or whatever, it, like, nervous, central nervous system Groot has. Because in my mind it was just like, oh, it's just Groot, but he's small. And then eventually over the course of the movie he's going to get big or something. It's like, no, he's just baby Groot for the whole movie and he's weird and silly and cute. And it's great. I mean, and I think it speaks to some of the, some of the things I like about this movie so much is that it's not a status quo, hit the reset button, let's do what we did last time again yeah. kind of movie. And I think Baby Groot is emblematic of that. You know, I've, and I've read interviews with James Gunn where he said, my assumption was that I would just let Groot grow up and he'd be Groot again for this movie. And then I realized that doesn't do anything for the character or for the other characters. It does nothing if he's just the same again. And so having him be Baby Groot... Baby Groot does not get like an emotional arc in this movie in the same way other characters do, but him being the baby of the group brings out so many other shadings of particularly Rocket, but yeah. also Yondu and Drax and everyone else he interacts with. Just the way like the different members of the team will like put Groot on their shoulder or something like that, and you can tell they've had to kind of rethink their team dynamic because yeah. of it. All of that, you know, it adds so much, and it adds all these new vectors of humor because one of the best standout comic scenes in the movie is in the middle when they ask Groot to go get the head fin for Yondu and it's just this log montage of Groot messing that process up to the point where like if this was executed any less well you would say this is interminably long yeah but the interminable length of it is what's funny yeah no it's... it definitely works very well because because it, it does camera home for like right okay yes he's he is a baby like he's just a little baby tree like there's it's not his fault He's not trying to be funny. He just can't understand. He like he can barely understand language. Like to give him a yeah. fucking break. He's a baby. And you know, I just think some of the stuff it brings out in Rocket over the course of this movie, where I think Rocket has a fascinating arc in this film, where it's basically him, you know, again, kind of something wrote on paper, but realizing how much he loves and cares for this family he's built. And, you know, being kind of apparent to Groot through all of that. And, like, Rocket, of course, obviously will never leave this little tree behind. He would give his life for this little tree. Yeah. and But he does it in his own, you know, Bradley Cooper Rocket way. Yeah, very cantankerous sort of grumpy, yeah. grumpy raccoon. And you get, you get a lot of, you know, just great, great stuff out of it. Um, so, yeah. I, you know, I, I think one of the things I, I thought about this movie also is that this is one of the very, very rare comic book movies that actually doesn't fall into the trap of bigger equals better. Right. For the most part, the scale of this movie is much, much smaller than Guardians 1. It's got fewer characters. The characters it does have, it gets to focus on in a lot more depth. Like, they add more characters to the main team, but... That's not, like, that, not that many. Like, it's yeah. 
basically just Mantis, like because I mean, they they put right. more like of a spotlight on some characters like the Karen Gillan's character and, and Michael Rooker and stuff. They put more of a spotlight on them than were on them in the first right. movie. But for, as far as new characters get introduced, it's like the villain because obviously and Mantis. Yeah, and that but that's it. Like yeah. Oh, and some of the gold people. The saw sure, him. yeah, but they're not like much of no. characters. But like if you look at Guardians One, it's like overflowing with characters. That movie has Glenn Close and John C. Riley and right, all these yeah. other people, and it's fun to see them all. But it's not necessarily. You know, they're not the main attraction, and this movie very much just says, all right, who are the characters we want to focus on? They're pretty much the only speaking parts in the script. And if you have a speaking part in this movie, you are there for a reason, and I actually like the economy of this, of there is not a wasted character in this movie, and that's really fascinating to me, because, look, the Marvel movies are kind of built on having a shit ton of characters at this point, and most of the time that works pretty well, but you can point to, like, you know, Avengers 2 has nothing for Thor to do. Or something right, like yeah. that. I don't think I can point to an equivalent for Guardians 2. I think they do really well with everything they have. Um, even though I think... I think we probably think similar things about the Kurt Russell villain. That ultimately it's not the most interesting thing you could do with that character. I think even Kurt Russell gets to have a ton of fun as an sure, actor yeah. with lots of this. You know, so I really like that. And you know, the ending is, yeah, there's a big threat to the universe and everything. But again, it's not on like the scale that they pitch Guardians 1. Sure. Although know? like, it, but it kind of is. And that's one of the things about the action sequence that really doesn't work for me is whenever they would cut away to like Earth and big, just like gelatinous glob consuming people or whatever. And she was like, this is so unnecessary. This just feels like... You don't need to show me this shit. Like, I get the idea that the giant evil planet is bad. Like, stop the giant evil planet. Like, you don't need to keep on cutting to all these other places to sort of, like, try to get the scale to get bigger. Yeah. Because like, I felt like that got really tedious Here's to the one thing I would have done with that. Yeah. Is, I think it would have been enough if his plan was just for Earth or something. Sure. And, like, yeah. there's just this one direct connection of, like, that's Peter's home planet. He's never been there. But, like, they make it, you know, a bunch of planets that we never really see. And I agree that it probably makes the scale of it unnecessarily large when... And it's just distracting from what should be, a, like, a very intimate sort of action climax. And it is in most yeah. other ways, you know. Yeah, it's, but it's yeah. like, but when you keep on cutting away from it, it, like, really sort of pulled me out of the character dynamic to be like, okay, yeah, no, I fucking, I get it. Because it's, it's sort of, I think, like, because I want to talk about the Kurt Russell character now, and then we can go back to the other stuff. Oh, sure, sure. Just because I think he's, like for me, the most problematic character in the movie in terms of, like, how he works, is that it's, like... And a lot of it has to do with that sense of... You know he's probably going to be the villain from, like, pretty early on in the movie. I feel like they tip their hand pretty hard of, like, okay, yeah, he's going to be the bad guy at some point. Like, yes. But, like, I feel like you can have him be the villain in the movie and have all the characters fight to stop him without him being as ridiculously fucking evil as he is. And, like, that's why I think one of my biggest issues with that, like, not even just that it expands the scale of the action scene at the end of the cutting to Earth and, like, random alien planets and showing the, the glue, like, blob, whatever, consuming people. It's just a sense of, like, you don't need to do all of that to make this guy someone you need to stop. It's, like, just having, like, the the sort of the different time scales and the different understanding of existence of... Kurt Russell, like, millions-of-year-old planet god-man, and the Guardians of the Galaxy, which are all characters that, like, they're, like, kind of... some One of their main defining traits is, like, they have kind of thrown everything off and, like, are living entirely for the moment, and they're, like, these, like, freewheeling bandit-type people. Like, that disparity is enough to bring these two characters completely into conflict and, like, bring Star-Lord 
like having to sort of figure out which way he needs to fall and then ultimately falling on the side of like the people he cares about and sort of like the living for the moment and the life that he knows and he wants that to me is like where that conflict was and then like bring it into like and now i'm going to destroy all of the universe and blah 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 and, like peter why can't he it's like no like there's the much more nuanced interesting conflict here that you could have done without like having to bog like the movie down by having to have like like dig deep into egos like pathos or whatever like you could have had the similar kind of movie structure and just done that much better and i don't disagree with that yeah i mean i think you could have done and i think honestly it's not even restructuring the movie that much it's yeah. like little things here and there right yeah uh, and, and i think you could have done that i like one place where i would point that out is you have all the stuff where when they get to the planet, Kurt Russell, Ego the Living Planet, which I just love yeah. that. In the credits, I think it even says Ego the Living Planet, yeah. which is fantastic. Um, but you know, he explains how much he loved Peter Quill's mom and all this. And later on, you find out he did this to a bunch of women and he was a player. And on one level, I actually do love that because you can kind of... I think they tip their hand on that in the first scene where it's yeah. a very stereotypical 80s Kurt Russell that they've de-aged, which is just apparently the parlor trick Marvel loves to play now. I mean, they have the tech. Might as yeah. well use it. Because they do it in like every movie these days. Yeah. Just take some famous actor and make them young. Um, and I thought this was actually maybe the best of those because it looked really seamless. Yeah, because also like Kurt Russell is a like Kurt Russell from the eighties is an actor I am very intimately familiar with. Yep. Like I rewatched Big Trouble in Little China for like the third time like two months ago. So it's like it looked very convincing. And maybe it's just because the sheer tonnage of footage we have of him, yeah. then they could do more with it. But yeah, I mean he's even like in bright lighting and everything. It was pretty impressive. But, like, you know, I can kind of see, like, he's a space player or something sure, like yeah. that. But what it undercuts is that, like, then, like, when they come back and Peter Quill figures out what's happened and all that, and, and he's, like, confronting Ego about that, they kind of try to walk this weird line where, like, do they want him to be 100% evil or do they want him to be a complex figure? And they kind of don't pick either side. Yeah. And I would be happier if they picked one or the other because there's, like, this line about, like, I did actually love your mother and that's why I never went back. But I'm because I wanted to be evil. It's like, well, which is it? Like, yeah. did you actually have this tie to humanity? And how does that play into your overall plan? Or is it? It was just all a trick all along. And if if that's the case, actually, that's okay as long as you're consistent about it. Yeah, I think I kind of agree. It's, it is the sort of the waffling back and forth that is the most frustrating about it. Because if he was just evil, you wouldn't have to sort of focus on that side of the plot that much, and it would like bring the focus completely onto the team, which is sort of what the villain Guardians of the Galaxy One is. Is he's so nothing. That, like, he just doesn't take any of your sort of mind space and you can completely focus on the team. Which is, like, you know, maybe it could have been a better movie if he was a slightly more interesting villain. But there's a utility to having a, like, kind of completely empty villain for a movie like that. Whereas here, it's like, they there's enough of an, a hint at something really interesting of, like, him... Like, because there's a really interesting character beat in, like, the moment to explore of him saying, like, I really did love your mother, but I had to kill her to be to maintain to be continue to be what I am and like to continue to be immortal I have to cut off those emotional connections there's like there's a really interesting space to explore there that they don't explore at all they completely 100% just play that moment as and I had to kill your mother because I am evil mahaha not like you, because of like whatever sort of character drama you could get out of that you could argue Kurt Russell is too good for the part that's written sure because yeah. those moments there are pockets of depth in other scenes too like the great scene where they start... He teaches Peter how to make the blue ball of energy. Yeah. And then they wind up playing catch with it. Kurt Russell is so good in that scene. And in the later scene where he starts speak talk... Or like talk singing the song that is on the Walkman. Yeah. 
He's so good in those scenes, and he, like, effectively makes you think, like, okay, Persona's probably up with this guy, but he also seems like he could be a cool dad. Like, he's so good in those moments that I do think it undercuts kind of how generic villain he is in the yeah. end. And I don't know if that was James Gunn's intent all along or whatever, you know, what was it on the paper, what was the intent, you know, that... Because so much of this script feels kind of hyper-polished to me in yeah. how good it is with the characters. That part, you're right, I mean, it does feel less polished. And part of this to me is that... I, I And I would like to see what they could do with this in a future movie where they don't have to be as centric on this. But as much as I like Chris Pratt, and I think he's so likable in these movies, and he's a great center for this, I do think Star-Lord is the least interesting character in these movies to me. Sure. And I don't mean that necessarily even as a criticism. He is, as weird as he is, he is also kind of the straight man because he's the most normal from our white human perceptions. Yeah, <laughs> like, like he's a relatable like he's he's dude who like is obsessed with eighties pop culture. Like yeah, he's yeah. everybody knows that guy. And I do think there's maybe a limit and again it's only been two movies. If they do it a third time it might annoy me. I there might be a limit to how many times you can center the arc kind of squarely on him with that thing. Because I don't think his he goes as deep as some of the other characters. Yeah. And it's okay for this one, but I, I do wonder if like there were just some moments where I'm like, this is interesting, but I also find the most compelling parts of this movie kind of elsewhere. And then you add on that ego kind of, as you say, waffles back and forth on what kind of, uh, how how villainous is he. Yeah, because I think there could have also been like interesting space to explore by having Peter, like, buy into the God side of it, like, harder earlier of like, have, because there's something where like you feel like, he, you, all you get for him of like trying to sort of like half sort of understand the perspective of what ego is talking about, which again is like, you know, we're we're Doctor Who centric podcast, so we're very familiar with talking about like thousand million year old alien entities and stuff right. like that. There's there's something about trying like bridging that gap perspective that is very interesting in these kinds of sci-fi stories and all you get for Peter in this movie for that is like that one moment where ego touches him and he's like, I see eternity or whatever, and it feels like. There's maybe like something more into of like what if he like had already like gone like far enough that like yeah he sees eternity and he's like but he has been seeing eternity for like a day or something like that he is like on that side of existence and then you have to pull him back or it's just like more of a character arc and more of like a dynamic you could have pulled out of that relationship that they just didn't from like a screenwriting perspective I guess what I would say is you want to give him a motivation there of like what could he do with this power that he couldn't do otherwise, and just living a long time isn't enough. Right. It has to be specific. Like, I'm not saying do this, but, like, you could do the thing in, like, The Flash, where Barry Allen could go back and save his mom, because he can travel in time. Right. And he has to realize why that... And in the TV show, he has to realize it, like, seven times, why that isn't a good thing to do with his powers. For instance, that could be, like, Peter Quill's motivation or something. Right. That's probably, like, too rote for that, but, like, something of, like, what could he get out of this... That he wouldn't get otherwise, and then the choice has to be ultimately I get more out of living with my friends in the moment. Yeah, and I agree with you that that you know there's again and some of the staging with that is is really fun and good where you know he kind of like gets his god powers unlocked at the end and you get there's a great Pac-Man joke and yeah. things like that. But other than that, yeah, it's it's a little too rote, especially when you have as I said, Kurt Russell. I think is not phoning it in in this movie. No, he's great. He's great. And and I've seen Kurt Russell, you know, used in some of these kind of throwback kind of roles sometimes where I don't think he's fully engaged and I don't blame him for that. But, like, this is Kurt Russell engaged. Yeah. This reminds me of, like, him in Death Proof or something. Not quite that good, but, like, you know, more on the Tarantino side of things than, like, 
a more generic use of Kurt Russell or yeah. something. So yeah, no, very but good. He was in Hateful Eight too, wasn't yes, he? Yeah, no, he's fucking great he's, in that movie. Yeah, he should just do more Tarantino stuff. Is the yeah. is the lesson there? I, I just feel like we have entered this new era with Kurt Russell, where like you like you can just rate the like his role in the movie by the quality of his beard, and it's like he's got a gray beard. Yeah. You know, he does, he does. And he's got great hair in the flashback. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the CGI artist really focused on, like, the waviness of, like, his 80s hair. Yeah. It's great. It's very good. And uh, I love, and I actually did not realize this until I went to a Dairy Queen with my brother the other day, and we had some ice cream, that they have all this Guardians of the Galaxy promotion going on. Sure. But, like, the Dairy Queen tie-in, and I guess it must have been paid because there's that tie-in promotion thing. Yeah. But I actually think it's a phenomenal joke that all of this happens behind a Dairy Queen. There's just something about, like, that being the romance spot yeah. in 1980, and then that's where the blue stuff emerges from. That is a great sight gag. Yeah, like, it's actually, it's a really small part of the movie, but I thought, like, it's a really effective use of product placement. Because it actually serves, like, it serves both as, like, a kind of a funny joke of, like, in, like sort of centering the kind of pop culture part of the movie, but also just, like, as this visual reference for, like, it's literally, it's the, it is the best or maybe the only good thing about the big goo-consuming part of, like, cutting back to Earth is you cut back to Earth in, like, modern day, and you see, like, oh, right, like, how different the Dairy Queen, like, building and, like, logo is now really effectively and, like, simplistically conveys the passage of time in, like, the different eras. It's yeah. like... Yeah, that's like because it, because you need an actual sort of recognizable sort of symbol to do that. You can't just use a fake fast food restaurant because nobody would really give a shit. It's like having an actual like recognizable. I remember old Dairy Queen. Okay, yeah, yeah this makes sense. Yeah, this no, works. I I like that a lot. I mean, it's you know anything frankly to do with like iconography and pop culture. James Gunn does a phenomenal job with in yeah. these movies. So yeah, good stuff. But. Yeah, so there are ups and downs there. Let's talk about some other things. Um, the use of music in this movie. Yeah. I thought even better than in Guardians 1. Because I, I love the needle drops in Guardians 1, but they are also not the deepest of cuts. Right. And I'm not saying these are the deepest of cuts in Guardians 2, but there are a lot more unexpected cuts. Yeah, and, and I just feel like generally like they're so perfectly integrated yes. into the scenes that they're in. And like I like that like there's a fun dynamic with like the the music like it's not just playing a song like the the volume of the song or like whether or not it sounds like it's diegetic or it sounds like it's non-diegetic will change throughout a scene and stuff like that yeah. they, they play with the music a lot they do and you know the the ELO song at the beginning is probably the biggest showstopper yeah. cuz those credits are great but i mean there's so many good ones throughout it and even Smaller moments like I love the new music for this movie at the end as he gets a zoom and learns it's got three hundred songs. That might be the best joke in the whole movie. That's it's, like that really sort of took the wind out of me in a weird way of like right zooms. See, that's literally the, nobody has thought about this in about ten years because the only time anyone ever thought about a zoom was about the five minutes after the zooms came out. Yeah, Zune was my first MP3 player. Uh, my and condolences. I, and I haven't thought about Zunes in ten years. You know, I don't know if I've ever actually seen a Zune and like like actually seen a Zune. You would have because I had it at debate tournaments and stuff. Okay, so I must have I must yeah. have just like blocked out those I, memories. I had the for the sake of my relationship with you. I must have blocked out those memories. It's fine. I had the model he gets at the end of this movie. I Great. mean, I got a kick out of it. But that's the thing. 
Zune jokes actually weren't that funny back when Zunes were a thing. We're so far past it now that you can do a good Zune joke. It's like, it's basically the equivalent of like making a Laserdisc joke in the 90s or something. Yeah. You know? Like, it's like, oh, right, those were a thing. I like knew the one person who had, apparently I did know the one person who had a Zune. I knew Yeah, yeah. So, um, because my parents were cheapskates. Anyway, but like, yeah, the that was a great joke. But what he starts playing is, it's like a Cat Stevens song, Father and Son. Yeah. And it starts out, you know, very soft. It's kind of a joke at first. And then the way that plays and crescendos over those beautiful final images of them, of all the Ravagers coming and giving Yondu that big funeral. It's a great scene, great use of music, and sends you into the credits on this, you know, really powerful emotional wavelength and yeah. there's i think a lot of moments in the movie whether the songs are used for a joke or to underline emotions or any other use you know just to get you pumped like there's a lot of scenes that are up like remind me of like the scene in star trek beyond where they use sabotage right yeah of just in effectiveness of like getting you pumped for an action scene there's a lot of that in here um it just it works fantastically yeah. and yeah i i it, if i'm excited for guardians 3 for no other reason it's because I want Awesome Mix Volume 3. Sure, yeah. You know, and what and they... it'll be 300 songs now. They'll, they'll <laughs> sell it exclusively on Zunes. They'll, yeah, they'll sell you a, a Zune, kind of like the NES Mini. It'll be a Zune with just those 300 songs hard-loaded on. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great. No, um, so much good stuff there. I mean, we've talked about some of the characters here. We talked about Rocket. Bradley Cooper is so good as Rocket. Yeah. And yeah. and there are you know you got to recognize this is there are other people who go into making rockets so great the animators do a phenomenal job with him he looks such a part of the scene even though I still love he's not a cartoon raccoon he looks like a raccoon yeah he's like properly proportioned in everything yeah and uh, Sean Gunn who is James Gunn's brother and actually has a much bigger role in this film as Yondu's like number two yeah that guy uh, he plays Rocket on set. And he's even credited as that. So he obviously, great job giving the actors something to play off of. But Bradley Cooper, in, you know, just in the booth, that voice is so great. And I don't say this to insult Bradley Cooper because I actually like him as an actor a lot. Yeah. I think it's his best performance. I think there's something about that. I think he is so freaking good as Rocket. I mean, you can't really even tell it's him doing the voice. Like, it totally... He melts into the performance in a way that's, like, really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I love all of Rocket's stuff in this movie. Uh, talking about other characters, uh, like the new character, Mantis, as you said, is kind of the other significant new character outside of Kurt Russell. Yeah, like, Mantis feels like like she's very directly set up as, like, in Guardians Volume 3, like, she's going to be a Guardian. You know? Yeah, totally. And she's fantastic. Yeah. I love Mantis. And, I mean, you can't talk about her without talking about Drax, who... Also kind of steals the show. Everyone steals the show yeah. in this movie. But, like, Mantis is great, and her relationship with Drax, who I think got the biggest laughs out of me in this. Yeah, there's he's got some really great jokes. But then he also has, like, maybe one of the most affecting dramatic scenes in the movie with, like, him and Mantis, like, sitting on the planet and just sort of talking, and he's... You know, telling her about how ugly she is, and then she just like touches him and like starts feeling his emotions because it's something that because I had not rewatched Guardians in front of Volume Two, I had kept on intending to and just didn't find the time to, and so like for a, a bit of the beginning of the movie, I kind of forgotten about what Drax's backstory was. It's easy to forget, yeah. And so when you get to that moment, it's like, oh right, yeah, like this dude has been through shit, like yeah. it, like he, he's. Like there's more to him than than he ever really shows, and there's something that's fun about that with Drax. The, the, I think his character dynamic of he's so loud and boisterous and says everything that's on the top of his head all the time, but like you know, 
like deep down like there is something more there that like you've like there's something so deep in him that even he's not ever going to really talk about it much which I, yeah. I, I think that's very powerful well and just talking about how on point some of the character writing in this movie is like pretty much every one of Drax's big jokes has a layer to it yeah. of what Drax is thinking in that moment like all of his stuff with Mantis saying you're really ugly you're abhorrent to me but that means, like he says, but there's a benefit to that because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, it also tells you something about his character and what he values and that he doesn't say any of this to hurt Mantis. Like, right, yeah. Drax is actually a super nice person. He never wants to be mean to people. Yeah. Even though he winds up involuntarily being really mean to people. Like, you know, his whole, like, heart-to-heart with Peter early in the movie where he's like, his whole scene about, like, my wife was a horrible dancer. She or she never wanted to yeah. dance. That was it. She never. She. You could be the best, most melodic song in the universe, and she wouldn't even tap a toe. And it's super funny. And then it gets awkward. Where he says, "You know, it made my nether regions erect, or something it, like it that." It made my nether regions engorge. In, in engorge. Word yes. And all of that. And it's so funny. But it's also a great character moment because Drax is explaining something that was very important to him. Yeah. You know. And like when he says to Peter, "You, know, you need to find someone like you." Pathetic. Yeah. And it's like you also, and, and you know, Peter just kind of smiles at him. You get more of their relationship. Like, the amount of, I think, economy in a lot of the writing in this movie where you can get a laugh but also something else with it, it's really impressive to me. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, Drax and Mantis embody that, I think. Um, Nebula and Gamora, I liked all the stuff with them. I mean, Nebula definitely gets the most increase in screen time. Yeah. Because she's, yeah. I just watched it, she's, you, you kind of forget how barely she is in that movie. Yeah, because she's just sort of like henchman number two or something kind of in that movie. Yeah, and Karen Gillan, who we approve of on this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> um, very good in this movie. You know, get to know more about her. I, I still contend Thanos is much more interesting when he's not on screen, and that sure, follows yeah. in this movie, where, you know, just the effects of these two daughters of Thanos and how they kind of bond over the course of this film is interesting. And I still really love uh, Zoe Saldana as, as, as Gamora, as Gamora. Yeah. and I want to see more of her. Like, she's not, like, the central character in either of the first two movies, but she's really great. I'd like to see a little more with her, because I think Zoe Saldana is, is really good in that role. Yeah, I agree, because I, I think that's another area where they could have done a bit more with Star-Lord as a character. Is like, you know, they like they do have, like, a little arc with their sort of romance, but I feel like there's, there's more material you could have mined in there that would have made better use of Gamora in some ways, because I agree, she feels like kind of the most underused of the Guardians. Like, excluding Groot, because of, like, he has, like, weird sort of circumstances. But of, like, the Guardians that kind of have, like, big character arcs, she feels like is the one that is, like, sort of the smallest. Definitely in this one. And, and but that said, it's it's not a case where, like, you kind of can forget Thor is in Avengers 2. Right, yeah. It's where when she's on screen, she's really good. Yeah. And I think her moments are great. And, like, you know, yelling at Star-Lord, I don't even know what Cheers is and things like that. And then I think, you know, the ending where she says there's something unspoken. And and that's actually, I think, one of the best romantic moments in the Marvel movies. Because it's not a, you know, there's fireworks going off and we kiss. It's yeah. just like this little recognition of, like, we are important to each other. Whatever kind of happens next. Yeah. I really like that moment and things like that. But you're right. I mean, she has less of an identifiable arc. And part of that is just that this movie has to kind of rehabilitate the Nebula character. Yeah. And that kind of means she's going to take more air out of the movie from Gamora. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to mention before I forget about this movie. I still love this franchise's commitment to practical makeup. Yeah. It is yes. one of the reasons these movies work. Obviously, the Guardians films are full of CGI. There's no way they couldn't be. 
I think they use CGI very well and judiciously, you know. Yeah, like, obviously you're not going to, like, have an actual raccoon on set and, like, put peanut butter in his mouth or something to get it to talk. You know, yeah. like, that's... Or that have, would be cruel and also would not work very well. Or you would have a Muppet, and I don't know if you could really make that emote the way okay, you need Okay, maybe the Muppet version, like, there's some area to explore there. I don't yeah. know. Maybe if they want to sort of cut the budget down a bit in Volume 3. <laughs> it would be interesting. And have Bradley Cooper just under the set shouting yeah. the lines. No. Um... But yeah, other than that though, most of the characters who in other movies would be CGI are people in makeup. And yeah. Drax is in makeup, and Nebula, and Gamora, and just so many of the... Mantis is in physical makeup. I think there might be some CGI enhancements on yeah, Mantis. Yeah, there's but... probably like a little bit on her antennas, but I assume she already had practical antennas on set anyways. But... Right. So, and I think it does a world of wonder because, I'm sorry... Even with the best CGI and motion capture in the world, I don't think Yondu works as a character if he's CGI. Yeah. I don't think Michael Rooker could emote that way. I don't think he could have that presence on the sets in that way. I think him being a dude in blue makeup makes an absolute world of difference. And I think this franchise could teach other franchises a lot about the value of doing physical makeup. And like even... This was something I... Uh, the reason I really don't like the Thanos scenes in uh, Guardians 1 is he's the only... C- that could just be a dude in makeup, but he's CGI and he just doesn't fit in. Right, yeah. Like, because he's on... Like, because the villain is kind of boring in Guardians 1, but I love his design and the makeup and stuff. And when he's, like, opposite Thanos, you just feel it of, like, that's Josh Brolin talking over a cartoon and that's a dude in makeup and one works and the other doesn't. And it's something I hope they can kind of overcome for Avengers Infinity War. But there is something about just the practical makeup and how much that allows the actors to be a presence in the movie that I love. Because, I mean, you look at it, the only like person who is not in some kind of makeup or special effects is Star-Lord. Right, and yeah. Kurt Russell for parts of the movie. And other than that, they're either in heavy amounts of makeup or they're CGI. And it's amazing how much the movie does with that. Yes, it, it is. It is nice to have like a very Star Trek esque commitment to. Yeah, aliens are just green people or blue people, and it's fine because it looks good. It looks good, and, and the makeup's good. Like yeah. Nebula is one that's super impressive of like the different layers of her makeup and the coloring, and and that Karen Gillan is willing to sit through that. <laughs> and I know she had to shave her head for the first one. I don't know if she had to for this, but like, yeah, I mean, it looks cool. It's like one of the reasons to see these in the theater is the makeup just looks awesome. Yeah, up on the big screen. Yeah. So, I love all of that. Um, oh, and then the one other character we haven't kind of talked about is the Sean Gunn character who becomes right, kind yeah. of big in this, where he's who also like Sean Gunn looks enough like Rory from Doctor Who, and then like like they're like I had a weird <laughs> moment because it's like you have Karen Gillan. No, it's just like you know she's in super heavy makeup, so it's like she doesn't necessarily look like Karen Gillan all the time. But I know it's Karen Gillan. I have seen more than enough footage of Karen Gillan acting. It's like, okay, that's Karen Gillan. And then you cut dude, dude, that's like, he doesn't exactly look like Rory, but he looks enough like Rory that's like, right, no, I'm not watching Doctor Who. Because also, I no, because I didn't watch it on Sunday. I definitely watched it on Saturday because I watched Doctor Who like as soon as I got home from nice. Guardians of the Galaxy. So I was in a very good Doctor Who mindset. See, when you said that, it confused me because where I know Sean Gunn from is he's a series regular on Gilmore Girls. Ah, he's in like he, every yeah, episode I've of that show. Seen that show so. And one of the main characters' names is Rory, ah. but it's not Sean Gunn. So it's like, yeah. But I mean, he is, if you watch him on Gilmore Girls, he is a very gifted comic actor. And I love that... And he's in a couple moments in Guardians 1. You kind of blink and miss him, but he is Yondu's like number two in that also. And I love that, that uh, his brother James gave him a bigger part in this because he's really funny. And yeah, he no, has some great moments. And like his whole little emotional arc where he accidentally started a mutiny against Yondu and then feels really bad about it 
it just works. It's another thing. Like and like his, he gets a moment at the end of the movie where uh, Star Lord gives him the arrow. Yeah, and it leads to a great post credit scene where he accidentally stabs Drax. Which is probably, I think, the best of maybe the five or six, however many sure, they yeah. had. But like, um, I liked, I liked Teenage Groot a lot. That, oh, that was Teenage Groot was great. That was a very good scene. Yeah, um, those were pretty good. But yeah, like, uh, just it's kind of amazing that they can pluck that character kind of out of obscurity of the first movie and be like, you know what, this guy deserves to be part of the team as well. And yeah. I do love how much by the end of this movie, the Guardians of the Galaxy have grown. You know, they ha- now have. The Sean Gunn character, and they have Nebula, and they have, I mean, she's off, but she'll fight with them again, of course. And you have Mantis, and you have Yondu in spirit, and they're all part of this family now. And that, like, almost doubles the size of who the team technically was in the first movie. Yeah. And beyond that, every character feels like they're in a different place. You know, I, I think the Empire Strikes Back par- comparison is good beyond just structurally. This feels like a second chapter where the characters are not the same people by the end as they were at the beginning. And yeah. I, I value that a lot. Yeah, it, like, it definitely made me very excited at the end of the movie to see like what Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is going to be like because it does have that sense of like the status quo for these characters has changed. Like They are in a different spot. There's like you have some new people on board and, and like enough hanging threads with like Nebula still out there and stuff to like really be excited about where a sequel could go. And, uh, you know, they've already confirmed they're going to do Volume 3. James Gunn's going to write and direct again. That will be the only Marvel trilogy that was written and directed by the same guy all the way through. Yeah. And I think that's so exciting to me because, you know... It's kind of hard to envision, like, a Guardians movie without him, in a way. Exactly. And I think having that consistent voice through and let... And I I think that voice evolved and improved in this movie, and I assume it can again. That's really exciting. And. You know, the other Marvel series, you know, have kind of gone in fits and starts with that. And some of them have found their groove later, like getting the Russo brothers to do Cap. And that worked perfectly. And they're going to take over Avengers. And I assume that'll be a smooth transition. But there is a really exciting thing to be said for. We're going to have, like, this Guardians trilogy, at least, all done by James Gunn. And that's awesome. Yeah, and it does, I think, help that this movie, like like with the first one, is able to, for the most part, just completely exist in its own weird corner of the Marvel Universe. And it's like, it gets to very much just be like... We are doing our thing. They say, like, the word Infinity Stone, I think, once in the whole movie. And it's like... But it's in the context of the plot in, for this movie. Yeah, it's in the, the appropriate context. And it's like, it's not used as any way to set up other stuff, which I'm generally fine with in the other Marvel movies. And sometimes, like, when it's done well, I'm really excited by it. And I like, though, that Guardians is allowed to be its own thing and be weird. Because that's just going to make it all, like, the crazier when these characters do cross over with the normal Marvel characters and the Avengers Infinity War stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exciting. It is kind of striking just how much this movie doesn't try to pay lip service to the other Marvel stuff. Because, yeah. like, I, I do think that's an issue with Guardians 1 in some parts of, like, the collector scene... I, there's like no other way to read that scene other than this will come up later. Right. It just doesn't quite work for me on as its own thing. The Thanos scenes are the same way. And so you do have these distractions, kind of like you do in, in Iron Man 2 or something like that. And it, it, it no way ruins the movie for me, but they're just these little distractions. And Guardians 2 is just much more, it gets to be much more on point for that reason. And, and I like that. I, I like that it gets to be its own thing. And I'm also super excited to see what the heck they're going to do because pretty much everyone who is in this movie is in Avengers Infinity War. If you look at the cast list, down to Mantis. They're bringing everyone into that movie. Great. And I, the thing I'm most excited to see in Infinity War, weirdly, might be how the fuck they do the credits. 
Because that movie will have so many actors. Like, Chris Pratt gets to be top billed in Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. He could conceivably be billed, like, 27th in Infinity War. Yeah, because you, you know how a lot of these movies like to do, like, the sort of two-staged credit scenes where it's like you have, like, the first credits that it's, like, all the big names from the movie, like, with, like, this really elaborate credit sequence. Yeah, for Infinity Wars, it's going to be like that, but it's going to be five minutes long and, like, yeah. every single actor in the movie. It's like when, uh, if you watch the, like, CW superhero show crossovers... The credits when they have to do those episodes are hilarious because they have to list the entire main cast for the show and then a special guest star list, which is the main casts of pretty much every other show. And it goes on through like an entire act of the episode of every actor on it's all the It's just like white text flashing at the yeah. bottom of the screen constantly. Yeah, it's, yeah, I just, we know Robert Downey Jr. will be top billed. And other than that, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in like, what will the poster for that movie look like? Jesus, yeah. It, like, you get like all four Chris's in that movie, I think. You know, <laughs> it's so. it's it's just an endless stream of. There's actually something that I was talking about my family with because uh, we, we saw this movie together. You know, Kurt Russell is in this movie. Uh, with something we haven't talked about, Sylvester Stallone has a small cameo that is very good. He's very good, and, and yeah. again, like a character who emotionally brings weight to it through his relationship with Yondu. Yeah, but. So, what actors can, have not been in a Marvel movie yet? Was sort of the like, like, what, where can they go? Like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's an easy one. Like, he hasn't been in one yet. Yeah, but uh, even like David Hasselhoff has a like a really funny little tiny cameo in this movie. So it's like it'd be kind of you'd have to do a little bit of justification to use him again. I feel like the Marvel movies have used every fucking working actor in like Hollywood at this. Well, point. and honestly, this is going to sound silly, but it's true. The people who haven't been in them are the people in the DC movies. Right. And that's like a specific like, yeah, you probably can't. That's like the one Chris you can't use is Chris Pine because he's in Wonder Woman. Yeah. And so you probably won't get him. Like there are smaller actors like Josh Brolin is, I guess, going to be in Deadpool 2. Although that's not, that's still a Marvel-esque yeah. movie. It's just not part of this main MCU. But yeah, like they kind of like they, you know, as you say, like there's the characters, there's the people like Patrick Stewart who are in non-Marvel Marvel movies, like the X Men. Yeah. But if you, especially if you include those, yeah, I don't know. I it's, don't know. It's everybody. Like, it's everybody. Everybody has been in one of these movies at some point in some way, or is going to be and hasn't yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially when you consider like the the names of the day, they're getting a lot of those with like Benedict Cumberbatch and Brie Larson and people like that. So. Yeah. Or like you know people who feel like their their careers were sort of launched a bit by this like a, like Chris Hemsworth and stuff like that. Or two yeah, of the Chris is really uh, the other Hemsworth. Yes. Uh, or no, three Liam. of the Chris's. Yeah, yes, and the other Hemsworth. Uh, Liam has not been in one of these, I don't think yet. So you could get him. Um, I feel like you could get, you know, you could go for like certain like female actors. You know, we haven't gotten Meryl Streep or Helen Mirren in one of these yet. Not yet. Like, but there's, did... there's got to be some villain roles lined up. Yeah, later for and you laugh. But Glenn Close was in Guardians 1. Exactly. And, you know, I know Glenn Close isn't quite on the level of Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep, but you could do that. You know, I, I want Judy Dench in one of these at some point. That'd be great. Yeah. I don't know. Um, who, how much, here's the real question. How much of the Harry Potter cast can we get into Marvel? Because that's like, they're like the Marvel of that side of things. Right, of yeah. Like they have they, on the other action. side of the pond. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you could do that. We haven't. You, had... you could just find some way to just sort of like have Disney buy Harry Potter, and then it's yeah. like, there you go. It is a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. <laughs> Harry shows up in Infinity War. Fuck it. That would be that would be the most amazing be... like cliffhanger at the end of part one. 
The and fucking the doors open up. And bah, 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 bah. But here's what it has to be. It has to be Daniel Radcliffe with his rocking beard. Yes, like, no, it's they like open it's, like a cell in like a dungeon, and it's it's fucking Harry Potter with a beard. Like here's how they set it up: is like Doctor Strange. Like they're talking about like oh, we 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 they have had one big conflict with Thanos at the end of the first one, and but they got they're like asses stomped. It was like. We we need to we need to sort of regroup. We need to try again, and then like sort of everyone's picking their spears back. I was like, but who can we get to fight with us? And then Benedict Cumberbatch, like, I know one person, and it's like yeah. And then it's like cut to like a jail cell. Fucking he's he's in Azkaban or whatever. Oh my god, it's so good. I don't even like those movies that much. That would be so good. Now we have to imagine what's the scenario where Warner Brothers sells Harry Potter to Disney. Man. I also like the idea of, of that that Thanos somehow corrupts Ron, and so Harry has to fight Ron at the end as well. That's sort of like his big character arc. That's how they get him back in. It's like you have to save your best friend. <laughs> All right, we've, we've gone off track. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is really good, and yeah. a fine start to Marvel's big year, because we also have Spider-Man and Thor to look oh, forward to. I'm so to. excited for Spider-Man. Saw the trailer for that before Guardians. Yeah, me too. Good trailer. It's a very good trailer. Man. That Star Wars trailer also plays really well in the theater. Like, oh, that was something that yeah. I appreciated a lot about it because I'd only seen it on my computer before. Yeah, that trailer, like, because in the theater I was in, also, like, the, I didn't realize the Last Jedi trailer uses its base very right, well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some of those images are great. All right, well, cool. Let's go ahead and move on and talk about Doctor Who. Doctor Who? All right. This episode, uh, we have episode four, Knock Knock, Who's written there? by Mike Bartlett, who has not written for Doctor Who before. Yeah. Our first, uh, I believe, new writer for the season. Yes. Um, yeah, because everyone else had written like at least once. So yeah, new writer, and we've got it's kind of a horror movie setting, and spoilers from this point out. But as I said, this is probably my favorite of the season so far. It is a weird episode. Yeah, it's very different even from other Doctor Who horror episodes. It starts with like this rock music montage where Bill and one friend and then four people she doesn't know, which feels very true to life. Yeah, are going around looking for an apartment, and they wind up at this haunted house, and you're like, this we know where this is going. But even then, I thought some of the things the episode did, like specifically with the Doctor early on, went in directions I didn't quite expect. Yeah. But like, you can tell, I feel like the way Peter Capaldi plays it, he's there partially because he's like interested in this house, but it's also like he's bored and Bill doesn't need him at the moment and he just kind of wants to hang out with her. Yeah. And he'll kind of like, I feel like even if the house hadn't been haunted, he would have stuck around and like shoved himself in there. So like even before the episode gets quote unquote scary, I think you get a lot of interesting character beats. Yeah. Like I think this is another like, you know, this is the fourth episode in the row where it feels like they have just done such a... Fantastic job of really sort of digging into Bill as a character and exploring her in ways that feel like, like you kind of feel like the other companions have had an episode like this, but when you really think about it, they haven't. Like, and it, it, it again feels like this is sort of Stephen Moffat doing an RTD style companion, but better than RTD ever did it. Of like getting into her having like her life outside of the TARDIS and her having friends where like you know RTD had like you know the mom characters for a lot of his companions and stuff like that but there's something like very real and relatable about this whole scenario that you spend like a good like first third or fourth of the episode just entirely with Bill like trying to with her friends trying to get a house and just just with her and there's like nothing more like extraordinary about it and it's this very relatable real life sort of scenario and there's something really sort of fun about that and it allows you to just have this time with that character in a way that Doctor Who just 
by the very nature of the show, tends to not allow you to sit with the main characters in a very normal, everyday circumstance. Because, of course, it's going to have to get interrupted by some sort of, like, weird alien invasion or something. And this episode has a really long stretch of just sort of, like, letting you sit with the characters and slowly building the tension of the haunted house stuff. Because even when things do start getting scary, they start getting scary in, like, a way that is kind of, like, relatable and, like, is still sort of real world. And it's not until you get a pretty deep into it that totally, like sort of paranormal, like, alien shit starts going down that like, gets more into the, sort of the traditional Doctor Who fare. But by the time you've gotten there, you've spent so much time with the characters and so much time with the sort of more traditional horror movie haunted house sort of setup that it has a very different flavor to it. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's no better symbol for how the episode does that than the moment when... Bill is in her, like, old apartment, and she's got all her stuff, and she's like, okay, perfect. And then the TARDIS comes in, and you realize the Doctor is helping her move by using the TARDIS. Yeah. And I love just the way Peter Capaldi plays, like, a specific kind of bemusion with that of, like, she's like, why don't you just, like, rent this out? This would be a great way to make money. And he's just very confused by that whole idea. Yeah. But he, you know, Bill's his friend, and he wants to help out. And he also, you can tell... The, the doctor gets lonely really easily. Yeah. That's why he always travels with people. And this doctor, you can tell, is just kind of stir-crazy for a variety of reasons, yeah. as we see more of at the end of the episode. And I just love that, you know, he wants to help Bill move, and then he wants to just kind of go hang out with her and her friends. And there's something... It's actually a mode I don't think Peter Capaldi's gotten to play yet, which is childlike, in yeah. some sense, of, of him in the early part of the episode. It's just like, again, he and he has proven right, and he has good reason for being suspicious of the house... But he's also being kind of petulant about yeah. it. <laughs> and no, it's a absolutely. great mode for him to play. Yeah. And it's something else like with that with the Doctor. That I love this part of the episode is how all the other students know him. Because he's a professor from the university. And there's something about like... Again, that's another thing you just never really see in Doctor Who. Is other people... Like even if they don't know him well or anything. Obviously they don't know anything about him like being an alien and shit. But just knowing kind of who he is and being like, oh, hey, Doctor, what's up? Like, that's a really interesting thing to happen for, like, the show just, like, never fucking does that. It was this weird sort of moment when that happened for the first time in the episode where I'm like, oh, right. Like, these characters kind of know who he is. And that's really fun of him already having this sort of, like, like small, unspoken relationship with all these other people that allow him to sort of, like, bounce off of that already and not have to do the, like... One millionth Doctor Who, the, I'm the Doctor, blah, 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 blah scenes, you know? Yeah. It's even, just like they already know who he is. Even though you do get the hilarious flailing of Bill trying to come up with like a second layer excuse of like, he's my grandfather. Yeah. And, and all the jokes that come from that, including just the unspoken, nobody believes it for super obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> that Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey do not look like they're related, you know? Yeah. But I also, I love that... It has managed to sort of maintain this running joke through, like, somehow through all of the Peter Capaldi era that he can't tell what age people are just by looking at them and, like, thinks that he looks young. Like, yeah. I love that, like, that has managed to maintain to be a character point even, like, after sort of, like, the Clara era and stuff. It's, like, a small detail about him that I like a lot because it does make sense when you think about from his perspective like, he, you know, he's, like, never looks old or always looks old. What does it mean when he's on his 12th body, you know? So yeah. it's, like, it's yeah. a fun little character point. It's just, yeah, 12 is that kind of guy. Yeah. He just doesn't... It's one of the many ways in which he misunderstands humans on a very superficial level, you yeah. know? Like, he, he tends to have a deeper understanding, but on those superficial things, he's really shitty at it. And it comes up later in the episode when he doesn't sort of recognize how yeah. old the one dude is. And then sort of, it's a smart little 
sort of point they make. Gives Bill yeah. more agency, which they've been really good at. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, oh, and one other exchange we forgot about in this earlier part of the episode is when they're doing the moving in the TARDIS, we get another, you know, scene on the TARDIS with them talking. And uh, not nearly enough of the TARDIS set in this episode. No, unfortunately. But, oh, I'm kidding. But, um, I mean, you, yeah. have to, you have to sort of lean off of it a little bit so that when you use it in a heavy way in the next episode or whatever, it's, it has more impact. When we get our TARDIS bottle episode, which could be a phenomenal oh episode with this set. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. Um, yeah, anyway. But um, you get the whole conversation where he finally says the words Time Lord in front of Bill. Yeah. And then they have to have that conversation. And it's very funny. They're like, do you wear, like, the hats? And he's like, no, it's really, like, big Yeah, no, more big colors. colors. Yeah. That's really funny. And, like, he mentions casually regeneration, which um, is kind of turned into a joke here because he kind of lays off on it. You can tell he maybe wants to tell her something but doesn't. And then, of course, you can kind of read into that what you want of. Is that yeah. foreshadowing? Is it not? There have been enough of those little moments so far that it's kind of interesting. I want to see where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also in that scene I just love. Because it's something that the show just sort of lets the Time Lord thing go, I think, a little bit too much. Because for, like, something that you would think that the show would have, like, constantly made, like, jokes about it, it's very rarely done. It's like... Such an insanely stupid name for a species. Like, I love Doctor Who to death. Time Lord, like, it just doesn't even make sense as a name for a species. And to the point where, like, it is generally sort of, like, retroactively regarded as being like, ah, it's not the species, it's, like, the class. And, like, they're really Gallifreyans, but they just like calling themselves Time Lords. It's like, that tends to be how most Doctor Who fans go for it. But I just like that this show gets to take a moment to be like, yes, that's what they're called. No, it doesn't make sense. It is pretty stupid. I like that, like, again, it's something that you feel like the show should have had this scene a billion times in its history. It almost never happens in a way that it feels sort of miraculous. Yeah, and and it's also funny because the way they pointed out, they put, like, Peter Capaldi in the position of a lot of, I think, Doctor Who fans, where at first Bill questions him, and he's like, well, that's just our name. Yeah. And they're like, all right, it's really stupid. Yeah, and then we all exactly. get to laugh at it. Because you just hear the word Time Lord if you've seen all of Doctor Who, and you're like, yeah, what is this Time Lord? Yeah, like it doesn't even register as a word anymore for me. So yeah. it is when you have that moment where it's like, oh, right, she's never heard that before. Because it's another thing that, like, when companions... Companions tend to, like, never make a point of that, or sometimes, like, you never see when they find that out. Like, it's just... At some point in between episodes or something, they learn that, and it's never sort of made a point of. And I do like with Bill, they like make a deliberate effort, like kind of every time a little little tiny piece of lore or something drops, to sort of highlight that this is the first time she sees it or understands it, and keep the show kind of as much from her perspective as it is from the Doctor's. It does feel like Stephen Moffat and, and company have had kind of a rule of thumb with Bill of questioning their assumptions at every turn. Of like, yeah. how would a normal Doctor Who companion react... And what can we do beyond that? Like, and it does feel like that's been a conscious choice with that character of every time of like, and she's, you know, more than just a normal Doctor Who character. She's a very well-drawn character. But, you know, you have all these moments that are kind of the traditional Doctor Who moments where she has to see the TARDIS or she has to learn he's a Time Lord or any of those moments. And, and how can we do this in a way that the show in its 50-year history hasn't done yet? Yeah. And I think they've been very good and actually disciplined about that. Yeah. In a way that makes it fresh and exciting. Yeah, because it feels like the main methodology they've taken with that is just sort of ask, what is the kind of thing a sort of normalish person would react in this situation? Obviously, like, you know, a normalish person would, like, their mind would completely explode at, like, everything that is happening. But, like, taking that aside and being like, well, how would someone react to seeing someone die in front of them for the first time? Yeah. Like, how would someone react when you find out that this alien is called a Time Lord? Like, 
uh, you, you would remark to it in certain ways that most Doctor Who companions just don't. In a way that it's fine for those stories, but it's really fascinating, particularly as a fan of the show, to see all those things approached from this very sort of like different lens. And maybe a more substantive question for this episode, to get like back into the main plot. How does a companion, you know, react when they, they take a day off from traveling with the Doctor? Yeah. And most companions, you get into this thing of, like, they just want to get back in the TARDIS. I like that Bill, in this episode, she's really happy to just be at the house and, like, I'm doing something else today. Yeah. And it's not because she dislikes the Doctor or any of that. It's just that she's, frankly, she's a well-adjusted human being. And she just kind of needs a day not fighting aliens. And I like that. Like, she's in her... There's that little moment where she's in her new room and she's showing the picture of her mom around. Yeah. I assume her mom is dead. Have we known that before? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because she's she's an orphan because she's adopted right, by that one right. woman from the first episode. Okay, yeah, that that first episode goes through so many character details so fast I've forgotten some of right, them. Right, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, she and she shows the picture around and she kind of lists off her adventures with the Doctor so far. And again, that's a beat. I at least I don't think I've seen a companion play of like the relief of like today I just get to hang out here. Yeah, and it's kind of nice and it's interesting and that the Doctor kind of in in the way he kind of forcefully tries to insert himself into the episode. Part of Bill's annoyance with that is just like we're not having a doctor who adventure yeah. you know let let's i'll have an adventure with you later doctor you know and that's just an interesting beat and pearl mackie plays i mean whatever is thrown at her really well but that i thought was particularly good where she just kind of gets to be a normal human in this episode for a couple minutes and she's really good at that yeah no it, it's fun because it's something that i feel like moffat has kind of been doing since clara was introduced in the last half of season seven is sort of saying like why is it that when the Doctor has companions that they have to just live with him all the time? Like, wh- how is that the relationship? Like, how is that assumed? Because it's like how it's basically always been done. And I, I, I think I do ultimately prefer the way that it's kind of come about. It's like, yeah, it makes more sense for it to be like a thing you do sometimes. And you don't just pick up everything and just live on the TARDIS for like five years or something. That's kind of like a weird expectation for all these characters to have. And I like... You know, Bill sort of like trying to build this distinction in her life between like I'm just trying to go find a place. Like I have this whole thing going on. I, I yeah, like like I said, I will go on a Doctor Who adventure some other time. I'll go see like kids drown in fucking icy lakes <laughs> with you on Tuesday, Doctor. Like this is me time. Yeah, for for a season that so far has been you know four very standalone adventures, it's been spectacularly well paced through yes. those four of like feeling varied and like we get more from the characters every time and that one kind of naturally progresses into the next even though they've all been very different episodes and adventures i really yeah again kind of like it's an rtd season done just kind of spectacularly well yeah yeah so let's talk about the house and the horror because we the joke we kept making last season in season nine was that it felt like Stephen Moffat and company were writing specifically to challenge Peter Capaldi. That every episode was like, what haven't we made this guy done yet? Yeah. Culminating in a one hander where he has to do fifty minutes of TV on his own. Yeah, you know. And this season, I feel like the specific challenge hasn't been to Peter Capaldi or to Pearl Mackey, although they're doing great work. It's been to the production design team. Yeah, where every episode is like. Can you do this semi-impossible thing on TV for us? Yes? Awesome. Let's write that. And it's just like, this one might be the most impressive yet of, like, a a haunted house, but, like, you know, an old, like, you know, English haunted house. And and how can you make kind of mundane things in it scary? And I thought, I think in this one, just the production design and the other one in particular in this episode, the sound design. Yeah. Is just fantastic. 
Well, it, it's it, one of those instances of that can get a little bit tedious in New Who, but when it's done well, it's just done well. Of the take something that is sort of everyday and say like, well, what if there's something evil and mysterious, an alien behind it? And I, th- I love with this one because I think one of the reasons why it works is they don't like try to hammer home that that's what it's doing. It's just very sort of quietly is doing that of like, why are old creaky houses scary? Like, and what is making the creaking? And like, that's like a really interesting thing because the, I mean, most times if a horror thing or whatever is asking that question, the thing making the creaking is fucking Michael Myers upstairs or something like that. And this is like, it's the house is making the creaking. Like the house is... If- is the monster basically. to your point if this was a Matt Smith episode he would have a five minute monologue about it exactly of yeah. like why do the houses creak yeah. and things like that and I'm not making fun of Matt Smith that's just how those episodes worked yeah he was very good at it <laughs> yeah, but here like you know they even because they have a couple of like scenes where they, like, they make a little knock knock kind of joke or whatever but it's like it's one of those things that's like so perfect about Peter Capaldi's performance that they've done so well in this era of doing things. It's like, it is kind of a joke, but nobody's playing it as a joke. And he's just sort of like says it, and it's just so flies under the radar that like it doesn't even register. It's like, oh, that's like the title of the episode, or like that's like this whole thing. Like there's this whole like linguistic construct in the English language behind the phrase knock knock. You don't even really think about it that much. And they, the way they just sort of like very subtly use that throughout the episode is so natural. It's actually, I think, a testament to the episode that I keep forgetting the title of this episode. Yeah. Because it's got that cliched, like, knock-knock title. And, exactly. I, and I keep forgetting that because the episode goes so far beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, but no, I love, like... Because the episode ramps up its horror really subtly. Like, it doesn't just start out and, like, ooh, scary. It's, it's the time you spend with it and the more you hear those creaks and the wind in the house and everything moving around until you start to realize, oh... I'm actually kind of scared by this. This is, and yeah. I think the moment that sealed it for me is the scene where the the landlord comes back, but it's specifically the doctor munching on the potato chip. Yeah, and the sound design in that scene, and the way the doctor is being a shit and just in, just exponentially heightening the horror for yeah. everybody, um, and probably consciously doing it. Um, there's just I realized like, oh, we're in the grips of something here, and this is Doctor Who operating on like I think in a lane of horror I haven't quite seen it inhabit yeah. before. For me, I think the key moment in the episode for, like, building the suspense is so good. It's so smart. Is, like, the moment where, like, full... Where the episode fully tips its hand of, like, there's something more going on here. Is actually, like, earlier than the episode than, like, it maybe would seem. Where, the like, they have all moved into the house. And it's, like, the first night they're there. And the one kid goes into his room. And, like, the door closes. And you hear, like, enough noises. And you're like, okay, that kid's probably dead. Or something happened in this room. And then it's, like... But then the next day... It's, like, in the morning, and all you know is, like, the violin sounds are coming out of that room, and, like, the one guy says, oh, yeah, he does that all the time, like, whatever. And it's, like, five to ten minutes go by with, like, that's just happening, and every once in a while when they're in that area of the house, you just hear violin music coming out. But you know something happened in that room. That kid's dead. Something, like, you just don't know what happened. And that, like, small mystery that is there for so long that they don't sort of pull the the curtain back on that one for so long... That to me is like the, the sort of the masterstroke of like what is building the suspense throughout the whole thing is you, because it's just such an eerie thing also of like the violin music coming out of this room where the door is locked and you're just like 
just open the door and see what's in there, you idiots. Like, just right. don't just assume the dude's safe. Like, he's been in there for, like, a whole day. And then when eventually Peter Capaldi, like, makes that point, is like, oh, yeah, that's, I'm sure he's totally fine. He's been locked in his room making violin music for over 24 hours. He must be perfectly safe. And yet, you know, from, like, a storytelling standpoint, we can make fun of the people for that. But it's not the same as, like, Friday the 13th, like, kids being dumb. No, no. It's mostly yeah. just like, yeah... If you have a house with five other people and someone goes to their room and just plays music, you don't really think about it. No, and yeah, that's what makes yeah. the whole villainous plot here so insidious, is that if the Doctor weren't there asking questions, all of them would die and no one would ever know. Yeah. And, and like, they would just kind of sink into the wood. And all of that is fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, the way they, just, they build the tension up through the first half or two-thirds of the episode is so well done. And it's so, like you said, it's... A, while Doctor Who uses horror as a sort of motif or aesthetic a lot is like, like a long, long tradition of the show. I mean, even dating back to like the Daleks in episode two, like it's something that they've never really gone this hard in terms of just making a horror story. And it is all about for the, like the vast majority of the episode, it's just about ratcheting up that tension in the way a horror movie or like if like it was a like, I don't know, like a horror X-Files episode or something like that. That's like, this is just like a horror story. And, and I got there's something very, very fascinating about that. I very much got an X-Files vibe. I also got a Buffy vibe out of this one. Sure, because yeah. of the teenagers and kind of that, you know, language that is being spoken in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, that teenage language. <laughs> and I like the teenage characters in this. Me like, too. they're not, I don't need to see them again. But like, they popped as characters enough to make you, you know, care when they died by cockroach yeah. and stuff like that and like you know this is actually notable this is the first episode with bill where she and the doctor split up and we have that kind of typical doctor who story yeah. structure and you know we have bill with her friend and we have the doctor with that one kind of nerdy kid and just i thought the rapport both of those teams had was a lot of fun and where that went with that so like they built a good supporting cast for this episode yeah and, and, like, another point of, like, I think what makes a lot of the teenage characters work, because they, like, you know, they very much exist in their sort of, like, archetype for a kind of slasher movie or whatever, sort of, like, the fodder characters. But I love that they didn't cast a bunch of, like, 20-year-old supermodels to play all the teenagers the way that, like, a lot of shows would. All of the, like, you know, there's, like, the one Scottish kid who's, like, really pale, and he's just, like, a bit too tall. Like, there's, like, it's, like, no, like... There's a way to be tall and it's like, oh, like, you know, he looks sort of like has a commanding presence because of how much taller he is than everyone else. And then you're like that little extra tall and just like, he just looked kind of funny and like awkward. Like he like stands, he just holds himself in a really weird way. And like all the characters are like, they just like, they just look like normal sort of teenage college students, you know, and they, yeah. they don't, they don't read as actors or anything. And it makes them and there's very also, relatable. There's also in the acting, just a lot of good general awkwardness between yeah. them, like Bill and the guy who's flirting with her. And, you know, neither of them, like, he's not really good at flirting and she doesn't quite know what to react in this situation for a couple of reasons. Yeah. And, like, just all of those little moments of, because you know, most people don't actually know each other. It just felt, you know, very natural and organic and led to good scenes later on, too. Yeah. So, uh, I will say, though, this is the second episode in a row where the accents have been so thick. I have had to turn closed captioning on. Oh, yeah. That's when you know it's a good episode. That's when you Because, like, you already have Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey, who both have really thick accents. And even after several years of watching Peter Capaldi in this role, once in a while I do miss a line. And and this episode had both of them, plus kids of various, like, you know, accent origins. Yeah. I did, like, for the last 20 minutes, I had closed captions on. Yeah, I did think... I think that this was, like, a specific choice. I think Peter Capaldi, in, like, some of the scenes, played up his Scottish accent even more. Because there was the two Scottish kids in, in the cast. So it was, like... 
him like being influenced by the others all the other scottishness around him is like they hit it up a bit his initial explanation of the like cockroach aliens yeah i I still don't i think know what word he was using uh Uh, dryads i think dryads that's what i thought but i I couldn't quite tell so yeah yeah. and it's no i love that kind of thing when it's like this is english but i don't know what they're saying i love that so um, again that's how you know it's a good doctor who yeah absolutely so um no good stuff and one of the things that i think also makes this episode special to me is that when the tension quote-unquote breaks and you start to figure out what's going on it didn't get less scary to me like the the, their specific choice of monster and i think the way they played some of the effects and the way they have the wooden woman at the end and just kind of the general tone and pace and especially murray gold great music as always that Apparently this dude can do anything after 10 fucking seasons of this show. Um, I still felt the tension. I felt the fear. This didn't feel like some Doctor Who horror or tense, you know, like thriller episodes where when you get to a certain point, that kind of breaks and then it's just time to explain things. Right. I thought they kept the atmosphere up effectively and I found that really impressive. Yeah, me too. And I think it sort of, if we could sort of transition to talking about this part of the episode, I thought like the way that they sort of handed it off of like, it being the sort of like haunted house to being like the more doctor traditional doctor who thing of like you know you have the monster and then you have like the 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 guy who owns the house and then his mother like who's this wooden woman like that sort of transition felt very natural to me in a way that's like i especially the 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 episode ultimately being like very psycho-esque in terms of the sort of edible complex nature behind everything i thought like it, I like that when they transitioned into that part of the episode, they kept a certain amount of like the horror movie storytelling tradition alive with the nature of, of what the threat really was. And on some level, they trade one kind of horror for another because yeah. there's kind of a body horror aspect to the bugs yeah. and what you get with that. And so it was like it's effectively creepy. Like if you're gonna go from the unseen force to the seen force, you have to make the seen thing scary. You yeah, know? I think they did a good job with that here. Yeah, and then especially when they they introduced the mom and used you know turned into this sort of like wooden puppet kind of woman, like you know talking about with Guardians of the Galaxy and how good the practical effects there. I thought that like what they did in this episode with that was unbelievable. Like it looked so good and it was really just unsettling. It did, and and I, if you had had the CG or even a more lifelike version of that, it wouldn't have been scary. Yeah, no, it's like there's something about like the stiffness of it that so sold her being like this tree, you know? Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's very good. There's no absolution to that story. Like there yeah. isn't a happy ending with them. There's not the Doctor waves the sonic and turns her into a real woman and all of that. There's there's none of that. It's she embraces the sun and they get eaten by the like they die. I mean that's. Yeah. It's a psycho is actually a very good comparison to that of like, you know, there's no happy, you know, easy ending to that story, uh, even though they do bring all the kids back to life at the end, sure. which we could debate about that. But yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like with the kid thing, it feels like it would have been a very heavy sort of thing hanging over Bill for yeah. a long time. It would have been a bit too brutal to have you at all least, those kids die. You at least had to bring the best friend back. Yeah. Because other than that, I think Bill, why would she ever want to travel with the doctor again? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think just the... Man, I just... I love this episode so much. All that stuff at the end. And and the going back to the age thing of the Doctor sort of is sort of going through the explanation, sort of working through how everything worked, and then but it hits this weird roadblock that then Bill has to sort of uh, fix for him because she has the human perspective. It's like, no, like, this dude is like 70 years old. There's no way that he could be her father and like still be alive. I thought that's a very like natural way to have Bill 
be a part of the sort of problem solving part of the episode in a way that companions oftentimes are not and just sort of get left behind or like get like relegated to doing like a little action thing or being like in a comforting kind of role. She's like actually actively engaged with sort of solving the mystery. And great performance uh, yeah. by the guy who played the caretaker. Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty well-known British actor. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he plays uh, Detective Poirot in all these uh, Poirot adaptations that my parents like a lot, so that's kind of why I've seen the I've definitely those. seen him. Like, he's recognizable as a character actor. Yeah. But great work here. And, and that, you know, he has to modulate that performance a lot near the end and pulls it off with a plum, he's great. Yeah, I, I like the sort of realization as you get like deeper and deeper into the episode, and it's sort of like the, the full curtain is pulled back that you just kind of take him as being like this weird sort of like sort of cliche horror movie old man. There's like he's just sort of talks in a weird way, and he's just awkward. And then you realize, oh, like he's just never grown up. Like he's been trapped in this weird sort of like static relationship with his mother, which is again like the way that she's turned into wood makes that like really in the nature of the house sort of like consuming everything and then returning to like its natural state where it's like you just like consume these people and they turn into the house it feels it, it lends this element of sort of symbolism to just him being frozen in this relationship with his mother never being able to grow up and it being petrified into wood that like that makes the character sort of you know you don't think that way he ever did anything justifiable but it makes him sympathetic to a degree where it's like yeah like you you've just like been stuck here and you've never been able to sort of leave this place in particular i thought like you know it's, it's not necessarily tips its hand as to him being a sort of child in a man's body or whatever but i thought the scene where or the moment where peter capaldi earlier in the episode says like who's the prime minister and the guy can't name it like that's a really good scene of just sort of like being like okay who the fuck is this dude really like what does that what does the fact that he doesn't know the prime minister who the prime minister is what does that say about his real sort of like identity nice little callback to the rtd years there too yeah. where one of the ones he lists off is harriet jones yeah which uh when, when you know they can do little things like that and just feel like right we have had continuity going for a while on this show now yeah that works so yeah 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 but his whole character i thought was really well done this whole episode just extremely well done and i also we had another another Nardole light episode, and I hope that's corrected soon. Well, so I mean, far, the, the preview me. for the next episode very much indicates yes. that he will be a bigger part of it. Yes, so. So that's great. Uh, I, again, it has not bothered me. We're only four in. It's fine. And it, it, like, I mean, you really also want to focus on Bill a lot and have yes. her be established and develop no, more. More Nardole in these last three episodes would have been a mistake. So, yeah. and and I, you know, he's in the opening credits for a reason. We will see more Nardole. But, like, uh, great last scene again where Matt Lucas is, you know, guarding the, 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 the vault and uh, the Doctor comes down. And you can tell he's visibly shaken by, I think, we don't know what all the things are shaking the Doctor these days. But there's a couple of things on his mind. And this one is, he wants, he's not hanging out with Bill because now she's with her friends. He wants to hang out with someone. Nardole is like his butler, so he can't really do that. And so whoever is in that vault... Is someone the Doctor feels some kind of kinship to. Yeah. And I feel like I know who's in there. Yeah, I feel like it, like this episode definitely tipped its hand enough that it's like, it's, yeah, you know. And you I all know. It's... It's the Master. Yeah, like, it's yeah, the Master. It's yeah. definitely the Master. <laughs> but like... But Shit, I was going to say River Song. No, just oh, kidding. It was, it was River Song. No, or, no, it's, no, it's definitely Susan. It's so absolutely Susan. Um, no, it's the Master. Yeah. And, you know, the piano thing and that the Doctor... It's it's that relationship they've often had in New Who where he wants to be the Master's friend and the Master's a dick. Yeah. You know, but yeah, but like I think there's something that they tip their hand enough here that it feels like, like that's the thing that is going because 
the episode after the next one is the next Stephen Moffat only yeah. episode. I'm like, we're not waiting to the end of the season. Yeah, for no, this, I'm so. like ninety percent certain that yeah. then that episode, the, the vault is going to open and the season is going to transition to like a new sort of phase for the second half, which sounds yeah. cool. But I, and honestly, what they're setting up here sounds like it could be a really good story with the Master and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, because it's something that I feel like they have gotten better each time the Master has come up to the point where then in season nine in the the premiere episodes, I thought Missy was really good in those, and I thought they like. Stephen Moffat finally found, like, a good balance for that character and found, like, the right sort of in of the relationship between the Master and the Doctor, of them being friends from childhood that, like, have this weird sort of sight, like, from her perspective, or, like, coming from her, this kind of psychotic competition and relationship with one another, but it is a relationship that, that is difficult for humans to sort of compartmentalize and contextualize because we don't have the framework of like eternity to sort of back it up you know and there's something about the idea of playing off of that more i think there's a lot of room that they can go with those two characters i'm really excited to see and the master has been much more of a presence in, for for 12th doctor yes than he I mean, has she's been, been in all three seasons now yeah. assuming that of course this is going to be her in this one yeah well i mean missy gomez or whatever her michelle gomez michelle. yeah yeah she's she's, she's confirmed in, yeah, yeah well and have you seen in the trailers what else there? yeah yeah so john sim is coming back too with a beard with a beard which is interesting and actually I would be worried about that if the show weren't on such an incredible hot streak I just kind of implicitly trust them yeah. and also I liked John Sim a lot in his appearances even if I didn't like what they had him do yeah it was the writing for those yeah. episodes was not all there like there are moments particularly in, in David Tennant's last episode there's that scene where David Tennant like the doctor's like strapped down and he's talking to, to the master in that scene. And it's the whole, like, what you could have been scene. Yeah. John Cena is really good in that scene. Yeah. And a couple of other scenes of that episode, like the end where he, like, faces off against Timothy Dalton and all that. That I, I would like to see that character, that actor, like, get a chance to do that character with better writing. And, and I think that's potentially an, an interesting direction. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I just am looking forward to seeing, like, how that's going to play out between the, the, the master and the doctor. And, and I do just love the dynamic at the end of this episode of... You know, the doctor just feels like he has been cooped up for so long that he just, like, needs something. So it's like, oh, I'm just going to go, like, hang out and, and and chat with my old friend, even if she is a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some... It's almost like, you know, Batman going to Arkham Asylum to talk to the Joker, even yeah. though he doesn't need to or something. Sure, yeah. Like the beginning of the killing joke, you know? Um, yeah, it's interesting. And he's got Mexican food, and he's telling the story of the episode to the person inside playing the piano. And Nardola's like, you got them a piano and all that, so... Yeah, I, I, I expect this is all going to blow up sooner rather than later. Yeah, and, and, and that's an appealing sort of thought to me of like, yeah, like that's yeah. a good sort of pace to move that mystery ahead or whatever. Because if they kept on doing the thing they've done for the past couple of episodes of at the end, just kind of show the vault and do those scenes. Like, those scenes were good for those episodes. If they had those scenes for ten episodes instead of like three, that would have been excruciating. It's just yeah. like, you know, it would have been like season six kind of fucking stop, you know. Yeah. Or, or, you know, and a good comparison is season five, where they have the cracks, like, at the end of every episode, but then, like, midway through, it's in the Angels episode, actually, like, episode five, you find out what the cracks are, and so it's not just the same dynamic every single time. Yeah, it's like, now it's about, well, how do we sort of, like, fix the problem with the cracks? It's not just about revealing what the mystery is. Yeah. But, again, I like this mystery a lot because it is so, so character-driven. Yeah. Like, Peter Capaldi is so good in that last scene, even though we have very little context for why he acts the way he acts. He's good enough to sell that yeah. and let me and let us, I think, be interested in the mystery rather than turned off by it, which I think on paper you very easily could be. Absolutely. So. 
Yeah, the execution is great. This season has been great. Yeah. Doctor Who is good. Persona is good. So many good things in the world right now. In the in the world of media, not yeah. so much in the world of the world. Sure, but, yeah, you know. and I mean, and with Doctor Who, the next episode is the Jamie Matheson episode, so and he is kind of the ringer in the Capaldi era. Yeah, so I'm, far. I'm looking forward to seeing what he he comes around with. With this will be his fourth episode, so yeah, yeah, because he did two in the eighth season and then one last year. And yeah, last season, not last year. <laughs> there was only one Doctor Who last yeah. year. <laughs> it was really good. So, all right, that's Doctor Who. Knock knock. Who's there? Persona Five. Yes, it is, motherfucker. That's a weird ass joke. Doctor there we Who, go. Knock knock. Doctor Who, Persona Five. Who's it's, I don't know. That's the only joke our podcast knows for the past four weeks. So that's let's just roll with it. All right. So Sean, Persona Five. Who's there? All right. We uh, we've talked about the game in spoiler depth. Again, if if somehow you don't know not to listen to the spoiler part. Don't, if you haven't played it, you don't want this game spoiled for you. It's really good. If you still haven't been convinced to get it, I, I don't know what to say to you anymore. It's great. Yeah. You know, uh, Persona 4 The Golden is on sale right now on the PlayStation Store for $9. You can start there if you want. If you don't want to pay $60, pay that, play that, listen to our Persona 4 podcasts, Yeah. and then play Persona 5. Persona 5's great. We've talked about the story throughout. If you have not listened to those episodes, we have done four spoiler casts. Each one is two palaces, two story arcs, and we cover the whole game. And I think we're really happy we got to do that and yeah. talk about the whole story. But now we get to talk about the game in general. Again, spoilers from here on out. Um, I thought it was crazy when Harry Potter showed up at the end of the game. It was like, why do you, main character of Persona 5, look weirdly kind of like me? <laughs> that's true. I had not made that comparison. That's, that's the, the, the Japanese fan base for Persona 5 took to calling the character Potter-kun, which is pretty good. <laughs> It's pretty good. There's some good Twitter images you can find if, you, if you're so inclined. I love you, Japan. Yeah. I do. It's pretty good. All right. Um, I can't wait for the crossover game where that's going to be the big Persona 5 crossover is a Persona slash Harry Potter game. Yes. And then the Guardians of the Galaxy coming at the end. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's a whole thing. Running jokes. Anyway, uh, so Persona 5, there are so many things we could talk about this game now that we've done the whole thing. Where do you want to start? Oh, jeez. Or do you want me to pick a topic? Because I have. You, you, could, you could pick a topic if you have them prepared. Okay. I want to do, and we've promised this, so I thought this was a good general topic to start with, is to talk about the confidants. Yeah. And the social links. And, you know, we touched on some of them throughout, but that's a hard thing to do in a spoiler cast where, you know, people complete those at different rates. So we didn't want to spoil the end of, you know, the teacher social link. Right. When people might still be on, you know, Ryuji's or something like that. So let's talk about the social links. Yeah, and and just like the recap, like we have, we both finished the game with all social links completed. Yep. Most people are not going to do that because that's not a totally reasonable way to play the game. So like you know, although let me say one thing about that in general: Persona Five, more than three or four, way more than three or four, feels like at the end it wanted you to do that. And just in it, terms, it of, has way more payoff for it yeah. than, than the other games do. Yeah, maybe saying wanted is the wrong term, but you're right. There's so much more payoff of like. It does feel like a lot of how you see certain characters in the final stretch of the game is informed by you having seen their whole confidant, their yeah. whole social link. And yeah, I, I think you could still love and enjoy the game if you missed a couple, but you know, like this is not a game where you're, you know, like you could play through Persona 3 and 4 and miss whole social links. I don't know if you even could do that in Persona 5, but if you did, that would be bad. But yeah. like not finishing them is a different thing. But yeah, so there might be minor spoilers if you haven't finished all of them. Yeah, but, but that also means that we can talk about all of them, which is yes. fun. Because that would have been a little bit annoying if you hadn't 
finished a couple of them. Yeah. And like, well, shit, now I can't talk about Charisma Gamer or whatever. There, there's so many good ones. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we could just start with a simple question. What's your favorite social link? Uh, yeah, a simple question. Um, I, I, it's, it's easy for me. I, uh, yeah, I guess I would probably say Sojiro, I guess, would be mine. I would say Futaba with, like, Sojiro at 1A. You know, sure. like those two. I mean, they're together. they're very sort of like intertwined in a lot of ways. They are, and I made the comparison in a previous episode to the Dojima and Nanako social link in yeah. Persona Four, where those very much feel like you're supposed to kind of play them back and forth, and I think they ping pong a little bit thematically. I think that's true here too. The Futaba one, just in particular, I think is insanely well written and like just is so good at the art of making all ten social link events feel meaty. And, like, they move that character forward, and that by the end, you really feel like you've gone on a journey with that character, even though the journey for Futaba is, like, going to a video store. Right. You know? And, and I think that's, that just speaks to how great that character is, too. But I, I just thought that was a particular standout. And then Sojiro was one of, kind of, kind of the last ones I finished, which the game is also kind of built to make you do that. Yeah. And I think you see kind of the flip side of that story and, you know, where the Sojiro one goes. In terms of, like... How far a social link takes a character, it's, I think it's unparalleled in this game at least. Because yeah. Sojiro just, over the course of the game, changes a lot. But over the course of the social link where that family unit is forged, is there's, there's a lot of tearjerkers. Yeah. I also think Sojiro has the best social link event in the game. Yeah. And it's Hierophant 7. And I know that because I wrote it down because it was so good. But that's the event where... Like, shit goes down, and, and he doesn't... He almost in, in implies that he's going to give Futaba away, and she gets mad, and you go talk to her, and then he comes up and reaffirms that they're a family, and reaffirms his, his love for you, the main character, and all this stuff. Uh, between those two social links, there is a world of greatness. Yeah, yeah, and then also with Sojudo, I love... I think it might be the ninth, or maybe it's the last scene where you go to church, and, and like... You That's know, his last scene. Yeah, so where you sort of, like visit Wakaba's grave basically and there's something about that scene I love so much of there's something I really like Wakaba's character Futaba's mom that's like obviously she's dead before the story starts and so you never see her personally but you get like sort of images of her and stuff and you get the sort of monstrous version of her in Futaba's palace and I just like kind of peeling back the layers of like who this person was to these people that you the main character and you the player care about but who's gone and like sort of like what she has left in her wake and like the the I, I just love so much the relationship that Sojiro had with her and like how sort of complicated and mature it feels of like it's this weird sort of like what could have been and maybe what should have been and what like maybe like the position Sojiro Sojiro probably should have sort of like been with her but couldn't at the time, and then kind of trying to make up with for that in some ways by taking care of Pataba. There's something about that dynamic that I just found so powerful. Because so much of this game is about characters learning to live with and making peace with circumstances that are not ideal, you yeah. know? And, and it's Sojiro not having the family he thought he was going to have. And it's, you know, Futaba not having the parents she thought she was going to have. And it's Makoto, you know, not having the loving sister she thought she was going to have. And, and all these scenarios, you apparently not having the parents who care enough about you to go send you away to the yeah. cafe dude and things like that. And you're right. I mean, that scene in the church is this beautiful affirmation of we're at peace with the family we've made. Things worked out. Yeah. And I think it speaks to something I think Persona 5 identifies in the human spirit where 
it's, a, it's an idea I think people often reduce to the everything happens for a reason, which I find kind of an infantile work, way of looking at the world. Because it's like, no fucking shit, everything happens for a reason in the same way that, like, you know, that's how fucking physics works. Yeah. But, like, yeah. But I think what the truth in that is, is that humans are adaptable, yeah. and bad things happen, and unforeseen things happen, but we are good at making meaning out of those things, and getting to a point where... We are who we are because of those things, and I think that's where a lot of the social links in this game wind up, is that yeah. place of affirming those things within themselves and within their lives. And I think that scene in the church is great, in part because it doesn't take itself too seriously, and of course how Futaba often expresses those things is by being silly and goofing off and things like that. And that's how Sojiro knows she's happy and, and is, is content in life. Yeah. And you get a lot of great moments with that in both of their social links near the end. Yeah, another thing I really love about it's, it's 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 kind of confusing because of how intertwined it is, but because it's in such a social link, right? Where you get the where, because for most of the social links, you hit a point in them where you have to fulfill a mementos request, mm-hmm. and for Sojudos to do that, you have to talk to Futaba and go to the palace alone, or is that for Futaba's palace? No, you're it's, right. It's it's yeah. Sojuros, and if you hadn't completed Futaba's by then, it also halts Futaba's, right. and I'd already completed it, so that didn't happen. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because you try to talk to her, and you can't like do you can't do anything with her other than go into the dungeon when you talk to her once you're at that point in Sojudos, and it's like that's one of the things that is I love about the Persona 5 social links in particular that Persona 3 and Persona 4 didn't do is there's like this it feels like they exist in tandem like very directly with the rest of the game and one of the and they, they will like will interact with different sort of elements of the game in ways that, that it, did, it tended to be in Persona 3 and Persona 4 a social link like existed in its own bubble and maybe like you know you had like Dojima and Nanako's kind of like intersected but generally it was like you know I'm going to the daycare and hanging out with young mother and that's what I'm doing I'm going to tutoring I'm going to like hang out with like the sexy weird doctor lady at night I'm going to talk to this old lady and it's never going to really like sort of directly intersect with the other characters I know and it's never going to directly intersect with like the whole dungeon part of the game and the the sort of supernatural part of the story setting and Persona 5 it's a constant thing of Oh, like I need to go in and take care of this person in mementos, or like with uh, Yusuke, you have some uh, like his first and last ones uh, for his social link stuff. You actually are in mementos for them, and like those scenes are take place in mementos. And for Yusuke's first one, you actually have a battle scene like in the social link. And then in, for a lot of them, you have different characters from different social links, or like for the main party members, will intersect and like show up in some of the, the scenes with the other characters. So like Futaba has that happen all the time. Like, in Sojiro and Futaba's obviously, like, there's a lot of push and pull there. And then for some of the other ones, like, you'll just have, like, Mishima will be a part of, like, maybe he doesn't pop up all the time in, in like, Oya's social link. But he's a character that is a part of the social link events with her in a couple of places. And, like, that's something I really love about this game is how your sort of team of confidants and everything feel like they exist in a web kind of together, even if they don't always interact with each other directly. And they, it, they sort of exist in a sphere that incorporates the rest of the game as well, instead of being off on their own. Yeah, there's very few degrees of separation, right? Like yeah. some confidants have never met each other, obviously, in this game. But they all know someone who knows someone else in the right. web. Whereas like, if you go to like Persona 3... Nobody on Seas ever meets the monk, you know? Right, yeah. And I actually think that's completely thematically appropriate for that game and stuff like that. But for the story Persona 5 is telling, it's so important that that web is as close as it is. And you're absolutely right. A lot of those moments are just, just they make the game feel populated and alive in a way that's really powerful. Yeah, and it's something that once you get to the end of the game and you get, 
you know, this whole string of scenes in the last like 10 hours or so of the game that incorporate different confidants, like, you know, being at like, you know, Oya being at Shido's palace, not at his palace, but at the, the diet building and stuff like that. Or at the very end, you know, you have all these different characters sort of interacting, but like, oh, hey, you're the Phantom Thieves person too. Yeah, like, like, go do it. There's something about that that feels very natural and like exists. I like that that exists diegetically in the universe in a way that in Persona 4 it really didn't of the social link people supporting you. And it's just something that adds to the sense of these being like real people that exist in a city together. And, and you sort of creating these relationships is like breaking down these walls between all these different people. Because the, at the beginning of the game, you are sort of presented to this city of, of millions of people, but everyone is completely alone. And you have to sort of realize that you break down these walls and make it so that people aren't alone through effort and like by creating friendships and creating families. And it's not just something that's handed to you because everyone's in close proximity to one another. And there's something about that that just feels very real and sort of is motivated very directly by your actions in the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's going off what you said about, you know, in Sojiro Social Link, you have to go into Mementos. That's a common thing they do yeah. in these. And I just wanted to mention, like, you know, you we were talking about that and I started thinking through that and why I like that. And then, oh, that ties into this thing and all that. I realized, like, in other Persona games, we've been able to have the conversations where we're like, let's just talk about the Social Link events, yeah. and that's easy. With this, that's going to be so hard, because anything you talk about in here, you wind up thinking about an ability I got, or a mementos thing I had to do. Yeah. And then how that ties into this system, which ties into this system, where nothing is on an island in this game, and you're constantly, there is this interaction. So it's actually something I love about the Social Link system we haven't talked about a lot yet, is that most of them have a block that is not arbitrary, go hang out with them five times, it's go to mementos. Yeah. And you kind of build, and it can be actually a challenge of like, how many of these can I build up before I can like go, have to go into mementos and like, can I maximize the number of social links I can yeah. hit off at once and that sort of thing. And then can I go home and get a massage and then go finish a social link that I oh, did the day yeah. of and you can and it's awesome. But I actually really like just focusing on you have to go into mementos. It does feel like you get more agency in the helping of your friend of like, you know, if you use Sojiro as an example, it's this evil uncle part of the story yeah. well not evil but you know he's not a good dude no. and uh, you know it's this guy who has obviously very distorted desires and his plans for um, this family and you keep hearing about that and hearing about that and finally you keep reaching these points in the story where the main character just says hey uh, what's this guy's name feels very mafia ask yeah. where you're like hey uh, what's this dude's name let's uh, yeah. I love that basically every single confidential social link has that moment where he's very directly and you I always have like two options that's like Hey, what's his full name? It's like, hey, what's his name? It's like they're basically the exact same option, but you, they, you know, they have to just give you two of them because it'd be kind of weird if they only gave you one and had the prompt to just pop up. But yeah. I love that they all have that moment where he's like, okay, what's his full name? And they're like, oh yeah, he's there. Uh, uh. And why did you ask that? Like, Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's like it does really, feel like it's I'm, really good. It does feel like I'm going to go out to my car and get a baseball bat and break their legs. Yeah, right, and like extort them for money and then take a cut. Yeah, but I, we're, you're, ultimately you're doing something much more altruistic. And the whole thing of going into mementos and stealing these people's hearts and all that, and then like, you know, riding the ship, just again makes you feel like you have a little more agency and connection to these events and adds, I think, some, some real emotional weight to those final scenes. And again, helps, you know, broaden that definition of the Phantom Thief, where it's not just what you do in the big eight palaces, yeah. it's all these things day to day that ultimately you change like dozens of people's hearts over the course of the game. And that makes it feel a lot more organic when the Phantom Thieves are becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Yeah, and it's also just like a small thing that for some of those characters that don't ever like directly interact with the other Phantom Thieves members in any of the social link stuff, 
like it, it's something that's like okay all of my team knows that these people exist and i'm hanging out with them in some way which is one of those things that in persona 3 kind of makes sense because the main character just sort of seems so antisocial that he's not just going to tell everybody about everything he's doing all the time but it always felt like weird in persona 4 that like you never mentions to his best friends and like these people he's so close to that's like oh yeah no like i'm working at the hospital and there's this weird sexy nurse lady that keeps on hitting on me and i'm gonna i'm helping her with like all of her like deep like intense personal issues it's like they're like he's off like doing having all these relationships with all these different people on his own and it feels like kind of weird that it's as cloistered as it is when that guy seems like he should be really sort of like you know forthcoming with everything that he's doing with his friends particularly like in regards to like all the stuff they're doing with the investigation team and i like that with persona 5 there's at least this sort of direct acknowledgement both with like eventually the velvet room stuff comes in which is another thing that i've always felt was so bizarre that like it's just completely off on its own it's never really addressed and i love that like that comes in and that is addressed in the other uh team members are aware of that part of the game but they're also aware that like you know i'm hanging out with the sexy doctor i'm hanging out with the like weird reporter lady like i'm doing all this other stuff and you guys are aware of it and a part of it and you're going to help me sort of solve these issues with them yeah absolutely and you know there's those moments when you're going to mementos and morgana will like get up on the table and like give you the rundown yes and especially for the ones related to confidants those are great because it's exactly what you said it's those moments of recognition of like oh right that dude at the gun store we know that guy that's horrible that guy's doing to it and like there's this moment of like team unity around let's help this dude you know we don't know him as well as you do but he's our friend and we're going to help him out and that's just those moments are like really nice when it it all comes together yeah yeah so that's fun. So, okay, we talked about Futaba and Sojiro. Just going, you know, we're, we don't have to go down a specific list, but what's another social link that you caught your eye and you'd like to talk about? Uh, like, I have always found Mishima's really interesting in this game. Like, okay. it's, it's one where he's not a character that, like, stands out as being, like, he's not very flashy, and he's not likable, and he's not supposed to be likable. Like, he's this... I feel like everybody knows a kid like this in high school, where it's like, you're not a bad guy, you're just annoying. Like, there's just, and- just fucking annoying, and I know you don't mean it, I know it's just like you're just a little bit awkward in a way that's like you just annoy me and it's like I like I like you you're fine like we can hang out but it's like oh my god you get on my nerves sometime. This is how Sean and I became friends. Exactly. No, I'm kidding. Yes. But um no uh and you just wouldn't fucking stop talking to me. It's like okay fine I'll go in mementos and fucking kill your shadow whatever man. <laughs> no it's great and 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 the game is so aware of it because there's that Hawaii section yeah. where you just every answer is some form of making fun of Mishima whenever he's around. Yeah. Because like he wants to share your room and all this stuff and you're just like not Mishima and that was the moment where I knew like okay they know it yeah. because I went through some of that social link being like aware of how like kind of off-putting Mishima is in some ways and then the game like in the normal game parts makes it very clear and it all kind of clicked for yeah. me but it's like it's also something that because of like how he's introduced into the story as being like one of the sort of like most severe victims of Kamashita's right. abuse like it makes it always made me feel really bad for having that reaction to him because it's like this is the exact reason why Kamashita could abuse him is because this kid is just sort of awkward and weird and off-putting enough to people that like he just sort of like blends into the background and nobody cares when he shows up to school with a bunch of bruises and yeah. it's like it it's really sort of like weird tense relationship you have with him because of that and I just love the way his what I like his social link progresses in a very non-standard way which there's a couple more of that in Persona 5 than there tends to be in these games and his is tied completely to completing the mementos request that he gives you and I just like that like it has it gives his social link a very different sense of pacing that you can't just like 
focus on his all the time. Like you have to wait until you get to a certain part of the story for more mementos requests to come up to sort of go through that. But I also just like, again, sort of like the way that the social links blend in different elements of the game setting and narrative story stuff is there's that, I think it's about halfway through his social link is where he starts kind of like going way too far and he's letting the phantom thief thing get to his head. And like, he's, you know, he's clearly under a lot of pressure and he's just like, you know, he has almost kind of like a Ryuji kind of like thing going on with him. And so you go into Mementos to see if he has a shadow and you encounter his, you confront his shadow, but you decide not to, uh, to destroy his shadow and come back out and like kind of confront him about it. And that I found was like really interesting. It's, it's something that just makes really great use of the sort of larger paranormal mechanics of the setting to tell a different kind of story than they're telling in the main story in a different way to use that. Because it also just feels like it's this acknowledgement on the part of the game and the characters, like the player characters, the Phantom Thieves, that the thing they're doing when they're going into Mementos is, like, not totally okay. Like, it's, it's a little bit fucked up. Because if it wasn't a little bit fucked up, they would be totally fine with just killing Mishima's shadow and changing his heart that way. But because they know him and he's, like, he, you know, helps them, they, like, have enough of a debt to him that they're like, that's... Just not right. And I really like that element of his social link. I think Mishima's social link, the whole second half of it, is yeah. really good. I, I think if, if, you know, parts of it can feel a little rote here and there, but then you get to, I think, that's the turning point and the final scenes where he is both humbled and also comes out of his shell to the degree where he can kind of, as is often the case in Persona, own what it is he wants out of the world. Yeah. And yeah, it's easy to make fun of Mishima as that awkward guy who no one really likes. But by the end, it's like, he's a good dude. He's yeah. got to have a good life. He's going to be a successful person. Like, there's some really nice moments like that near the end of his social link. I, yeah. I particularly just think, you know, because it, it ultimately becomes less about, oh, I owe this big debt to the Phantom Thieves as, hey, I found something I'm good at and those sorts of things and found a place in the world. And I like that there is a significant high school character in this game, Mishima, who's not part of the team. Yeah. And you you generally don't get that kind of thing, I think, in the, in the personas. Sometimes with other social links, but in terms of someone who's that central to the story yeah i feel like in persona 4 he would have gotten a persona somewhere right you know? yeah uh-huh. like and he doesn't and that's important to this game that he's just a character yeah and and i think another reason why i like Mijima's social link is i think the aspect of you having a social link with the character that's like deliberately and actively unlikable feels very much like persona 3 like the way that oh, persona yeah. 3 handled it a lot of the time of like i see a bit of kenji you know from persona 3 in mishima I, I see a bit of kenji and mishima is one of the several social links in this game that go back to the persona 3 thing of what you have to tell them to get the notes isn't always the right thing it's like the thing they want to hear yeah mishima has a lot of those yeah and that's very kenji-esque where if you were really being a best friend to Kenji, you would be like, stop trying to fuck your teacher. But to get the social link up, you have to say, cool, dude. Yeah. But the nice thing about Mishima in that regard is that you don't need notes to progress his social link. Right. It's just entirely through the memento stuff. So if you want to sort of like stroke his ego, that's kind of totally on you. And you will get your nice little like, and like the notes pop out, but it doesn't really do anything for you. No, totally. Yeah. And so. I, I do like that I can be, it, it helps you be like, I'm just going to, in this moment, I'm going to be straight with Mishima and just be like, hey, man. You're, you're walking a weird path. You maybe don't want to do this. Question I haven't asked, and maybe you know the answer to this. Can social links reverse in this game? No. Okay, they took no. that out? Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that was just a weird... Like, it's an interesting idea, but I feel like Persona 3, it was just so, like... So much of, like, the way that a character is going to respond to a piece of dialogue is, like, up to, like, a weird amount of interpretation. Or it's just, like... I, 
I didn't in any way expect that character to take this this way. It doesn't kind of make sense, and it's really harsh for that to like cause me to actively lose uh, social link progress. Yes. So I, I like that they didn't bring that back because it just felt needlessly complicated. Yeah, I think that's right. Although. There's the hilarious moment in the Kenji social link where you can laugh at him after he fails with the teacher, and that will reverse his social link, and it's like the cruelest thing you can do in a video game. Yeah, yeah, fuck Kenji. Yeah, alright. Anyway, um, yeah, I, so I like that social link. One I wanted to talk about that okay. I really like, I think we're saving some of the best for last, but that the, another good one is uh, the politician one. I yes. really like that Tora. one. It, it snuck up on me. I think at the beginning it feels, it's one of those ones that can feel a little Persona 101 of like, Mad Libs, I found a official of some form around town, and he is sad because X, and he right. is lonely, and, and all of that feels a little Persona 101, but as it gets going, I think it's just very well executed. Um, I, I, I like a lot of the rewards he gives you as a confidant, yeah. and also just, I don't know, I think uh, the, the vocal performance in English is really good on him, but I think just generally the writing of this guy who is a politician who is very aware of the trapping of, of politics. It's like he's a reformed politician. Yeah. It's very key to the you know main themes of the game of a guy who abused his power or had something happen and is aware of that and is trying to atone. And ultimately you find out he wasn't as bad as you know he's selling himself to be and there were other factors going on. But it's this guy who has really a snowball's chance in hell of getting elected to anything. Yeah. Keeps getting offers to be an important person in this administration or with this guy or whatever and just kind of keeps straight to his course of getting on his little crate and talking in front of the, the train at Shibuya Square or Station Square. Yeah. And, uh, and you're just there helping him. And I think it's a really nice story and I found it pretty affecting by the end. Yeah, I agree, and it's just something that I think it's important because it's one of the earliest social links you have access to. It. In fact, it's like the one that before you can go out at night, like you, that's like the kind of the one that's triggering you. Like, oh, you could go out and like probably do this thing and then like attend this guy's meeting at night, uh, but we can't go out at night because Sojido won't let us. So it's like sort of like setting up, oh, like at some point in this game you're going to be able to go out at night and that's where a lot of the social link stuff will happen but i also think it's important for that early on the game to start sowing the broader sort of political themes that that eventually obviously by the time you get to the end and shido is the main villain that it's so important to this game and i just like how like in some places in the weeds that social link is with like japanese politics and the japanese political system in a way that like you know i know more about it obviously than like the average american but i am in no way an expert like i only i've never like directly researched it it's mostly just like stuff i picked up through like the textbooks i read for japanese classes and stuff like that and just like the weird details and shows like watching like shin goji there or something like that and then so it's like there's something fun about being like yeah i kind of I can I understand the gist of what it is because obviously Japan is a democracy, but every democracy has like very specific like intricate systems by which it like on the micro level it operates. And I love that like how willing the game is just be like yeah no like this is just totally about like the bureaucracies and like the inter inner circles of political like machinations in Japan that like is again it's recognizable. But it's, it definitely has its own flavor than, like, that kind of story would have been told from an American perspective, like, involved with the American government. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think one of the other things that's notable about um, Toranosuke is that depending on when you start actively playing that social link, he's kind of the first adult you get to know in that game yeah. who is fully cognizant of the problems adults have in this world and will own up to that to you. Yeah. And that part of why I think he sees something in this kid and you see something in him and they start hanging out is it's like 
the debt he feels he owes is more to young people than anyone else because he knows as an adult the world's kind of fucked up and that's no one's fault but you know his and his generations and adults and all that stuff yeah and you know him being able to own up to that early on you know we don't see the arc by which he went through that he's already been through that you know gauntlet yeah. the way we see like uh sai nijima go through that gauntlet um but he's already there on the other end of it and so it's just it's got this interesting kind of mournful atmosphere that also i think helps introduce you to the as you say the larger themes of the game um and so yeah i just i find the character very useful for that for a number of different reasons and he's interesting because he just his social link advances automatically no matter yeah. what. But it does take a couple steps to get to his social link, and yeah. I like that you have to like go work at the beef bowl shop. Yes, a couple of times, and he'll notice you, and then you go talk to him, and then you talk to him again. So, but it's actually a fun kind of startup because, of course, he's not just going to meet you once and be like, "Hey, you want to hold the sign?" It takes a couple of times of getting to know this kid, and, and I like that. Yeah, I also it's it's something that is true of most of the the non main character social links in the game. But because of the, Torres is like kind of the first one you get, I always like kind of like attaches to him is how much like social stat progress you make by hanging out with some people. And like when you hang out with Tora and like for most of his social link advancements, you get three points in charm. And it's like, so great. it feels so good. It's like this just endorphin rush. Of like, yes, yes, this is, it's so good. I got like, you've just, even if you know that obviously the game is designed like to be sort of paced in such a way that they're taking into account you're getting points that way, it still feels like you're getting free points. It does. It's like I'm advancing my social link thing and I'm getting my charm up. And it's just one of those things that sort of it's an extra little incentive to even if you're like maybe at like rank three or four or something with a social link and not super into it yet to still motivate you to be like, okay, yeah, like it, I get a little extra something. Like I get both this stat boost and then I will, will work towards getting whatever next sort of like core ability these social links give you. It's a nice bit of motivation. Like pretty much every confidant in this game, there is a great story to be told by hanging out with them. And there is an immense amount of strategy in yeah. deciding what to do with anyone in this yeah. game. So yeah, there's that one. What's one you would want to talk about? Um, I, I, let's talk about some of the ones that unlock over the summer because I like those a lot. So let's talk about, let's talk about Chihaya, the fortune teller lady. Uh, I would probably the best abilities of any of the social yeah. people. It's it's a it's a battle between her and Kawakami, but I would go with Chihaya because if you go far enough with the fortune social link, you get the one where you can just straight up get extra points and advance your social link without having to waste yeah. time. And if I had known that earlier, I would not have finished on the very last day because it is unbelievably useful. I would I, I would have warned you about it, but I wanted you to have the real experience. No, you have to have the real yeah. experience and. Man, I gave Chihaya so much money. Like, I don't know if you should ever have a girlfriend, you pay that much. No. Even if it's for professional reasons. No. I gave her pretty much 100,000 yen, like, every day. Right? Like, because yeah. they're not, not uh, 10,000. Because it's yeah. 5,000, like, twice a day you can do because there's so many useful things she does. She's great. And it's something where it would be great if, depending on how much money you gave her, like, and you got, like, you know, you dated her or whatever, and she invites you back to her place, and, like, they actually modeled, like, a set for her, like, in her apartment, depending on how much money you paid. It's, like, eventually, near the end of the game, you go there, and it's, like, the walls are fucking, like, made out of gold bricks. It's, like, man, Shihaya, your, your fortune-telling business is very successful on the back of me. I mean, you're making money by fighting demons, so, like, I don't know where this money really comes from, and probably the government is going to crack down on you at some point, because, like, these expenditures, there's no way to justify them on, like, the income you make. At a certain point, 
your actions in like the palaces and mementos and the money you bring back in would affect the inflation of the yen. Yeah. Right? Like it's, you were bringing in so much from nowhere. It's a tremendous amount of money. But and I, I mean, there, there comes a point in the game where most of my expenditures were Chihaya. Yeah. Because pretty much every day I was going to her for something. Because that's the big one at the end is the social link stuff. But you can ask her for like the luck readings, which is the next thing you do in terms of any of your attributes, you'll get like an extra note on it, yeah. depending on the thing. And that's super useful. And I would do all these. A lot of my reloads were like, okay, what can I do with a mixture of Chihaya and the things available to me to get a three point boost yeah. in this? And so that's great. You also have the things where you can get extra money if you go into Mementos or the Palaces. Yeah, and great. those can be like, sometimes I would turn that on and then go into Mementos and just be like, I'm turning on a podcast and I'm going to kill some monsters and do some all out attacks. And I would get an, a, a gross amount of money. Yes. And so that's, that's, that's all the ability stuff you get from <laughs> yeah. Chihaya. But I think it's also, like, it's one of the things, again, that before we talk about the story with her, it's something I really like about how they handle a lot of the confidants in this game, is that, you you know, you, it's not just you're advancing the social link with Chaya, and you, it's also not just that you're getting, like, unlocking the more of those abilities. It's that you're going back to her all the time, and there's something about that that makes her memorable. That it's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, like... I love that you have social links with, like, the shopkeepers, basically, of the game. Because it makes it so... I talked about this on the last podcast we did with Persona 5. That at the end of the game, you don't have the phenomenon where a social link character pops up that you haven't seen for literally 50 hours of playing the game. And you're like, who the fuck is that person? And it's like, oh, right, I tutored that kid. There's, like, three or four of those in Persona 4. Even if, as you're doing those social links, they're very good. By the time you get to the end of the game, there's... you. They're just so far in the past you've completely forgotten them. And I love that with a lot of these characters, either they are like in a place like with Oya at the bar that you're going to go back to if you want to like work at the bar, or there's someone you directly interact with periodically over the course of the game that you're constantly sort of reminded that these people exist, or you're directly interacting with them. That makes it so that you feel like you have a relationship that exists with them outside of just very sort of like callously advancing their social link and getting to like rank 10 and then dropping them by the wayside and never seeing them again because they exist in like some menu option you had to pick at the end of the day at your house or something in Persona 4. Yeah, and you know, another thing I would say with this and some of the other people you go to and talk to a lot because they have different abilities, and you do it the most with her, but like you with Kabakami, and obviously you see the gun dude all the yeah. time, and you will go talk to the doctor, uh, hot doctor lady, yeah, Kenny, yeah, all the time and stuff like that. It's so much better than if it was just a menu option. Yeah. And, you know, this is something we talked about earlier on the show with Dragon Quest, that there's something kind of fun and charming about there's a person you have to go talk to to save. And I totally understand that can be, like, kind of a burden and things like that. But there's also a charm to it. And Persona has gone way beyond that. And it it really does matter that you have to go talk to these people. Because if it was just I could hit Triangle and, and call Chihaya and, like, activate her power. Yeah. The character wouldn't mean anything. Those powers wouldn't feel like hard earned. There wouldn't, you would just get kind of, you would go bad with power. You wouldn't really feel the impact of it because it's like, okay, I have to spend my 240 yen and go up to where she is in the red light district. And I walk over there and I talk to her and I activate this and then I get ready to go. And you get like the little tiny voice of like, or like whatever weird noise she makes. I don't know what her English voice actor does, but she does that exactly. "Mm." It's like, why do you always make that noise, Shia? Like, what are you thinking so hard about something? I just don't know what it is. Yeah, she must have like taken that exactly because it's, you you get that exactly. So, but yeah, you, they, they feel like characters. Characters, you feel like the world is more lived and, and you know living and breathing, and also feel as like you get a sense of the protagonist's day, even though some of the time of like how much time you spend on the subway makes no goddamn sense. Yeah. That's totally fine, yeah. but it uh, yeah, it's it's just 
it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyways, let's talk a little bit more about her character. Because it's story. also a good character yeah. in Social Link. And I, I, one of the things I love about her Social Link is how it starts. Like, there's so a lot good. of, like, both of, like, you have to pay her, like, for, like, the point of where you meet her in the game. It's a large amount of money. And I knew it was coming, so I had saved up my second time through. But the first time through I hit that, I was like, oh, motherfucker. Yeah, I, I don't have anywhere near the money to I, ha- I was like, I'll have to go into Mementos or yeah. something. Yeah, so it's like you have to pay her, like, 100,000 yen or something like that to, to get the, the magic stone that's a scam and rock salt <laughs> yeah it's basically rock salt and, and i also love like that the you at first the first time you sort of encounter her before you have to pay money it's like you go back home and sojiro like says like oh i won the lottery or something it's like here's like here's a couple of bucks and and that was off of like the fortune she had told you earlier that day when you were talking to her and and morgana's like oh man she must be the real deal and there was something that's like okay yeah like this is interesting and then but like oh may She's actually a fraud, but no, the, her like her fortunes are weirdly accurate, so she's real. And I also love how combative your relationship with her is at the start, of where she's so defiant. This like, no, the magic stones they help people. Like, like I'm doing like a service, and you can't defy fate. Like that's just ridiculous. And you're like, listen, lady, I you I can't tell you how I'm doing this shit, but trust me. I can fucking defy some serious fate over here. I've got some. I've got some stuff going on. It is kind of amazing from like the moment when you meet Chihaya, which is not the same as when you start her social link, to when you like max her social link. So much happens in that yeah. relationship of you know that combative stage to when she starts thinking you're useful to she just wants to like observe you so you're going to come do a fortune reading with her to when you start learning about some of her problems and her past life and then like you know you realize she was in a cult basically and all yeah. this stuff like. She goes on a journey. Yeah. And, and and another like really fun detail about her character is that she's she's basically a country bumpkin. You know, she's yeah. she's basically from the same kind of town as like Inaba from Persona 4, and that adds a fun dynamic to her relationship to uh Tokyo because she's an outsider the way that you're an outsider, the way that, like a bunch of the characters like An is an outsider to the to the city, and that's fun. And then also you know, I think it works maybe a little bit better in Japanese, although I'm sure the English performance does it well. But, like, her, you know, she's trying to speak in this, like, very formal standard, like, Tokyo-ass Japanese. And ends, but, like, you can tell it's a put-on in the Japanese performance because she ends every sentence with, like, really over-exaggerating, like, deaths and stuff like that in a way that you wouldn't normally. Because in her normal sort of, like, village dialect or whatever, you know, it's a very sort of, like... Goku-esque, like, bumpkin-y sort of, you know, not appropriate for business Japanese kind of uh, language. And there's something really fun about giving... Because you have to get so far into her social link before, like, you get that little peek behind the curtain and she slips up. Even though, like, you know she's got to have some, like, really weird shit rocking down behind that, like, the whatever she is she's saying because you know it's such a put-on. I love that aspect of her character when she like finally lets it slip, but then has to put it back on again. Yeah, I thought the English actress in the localization did a really good job with that. Like as well as you probably can in English. Like I think they did. A, they really put in the effort to when that switch happens and you hear her accent. They basically do like a southern accent kind of yeah. thing. Like kind of what I always wish they did in English with Goku of let him like drop a G here sure, and there on yeah. words and stuff like that. Oh, just man, to, I'm dropping a G. Just like I just mean at the oh, end. Goku. It's not what I meant. But yeah, like, you know, saying in instead of ing and things like yeah. that. So, like, it's it's kind of like our, you know, same kind of archetypal country kind of accent. They did a good job. And the actress just has fun with it. And, you know, obviously you get more of it in Japanese because it's specifically tied to language and grammar yeah. and things like that. But I think, you know, those things are hard to adapt. That was one area where this localization did very well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so 
Her. Like if you have this, it's actually very cute how she does yeah. it. It's like I I hate using that word, but it just it kind of is that you know. Yeah, it's adorable. Like it's it's just like a weird. It's it's a really good little character detail that again helps because it's it's both just like fun and silly, but it does reinforce her status as an outsider in a way that feels like real. You know, it feels yes. it feels very real that she has to put on a different voice to be able to like conduct yeah. business in Tokyo and not feel embarrassed. I also love that Shihaya is, you know, specifically a tarot card reader. Yeah. So you get your tarot cards in the real world in the game. Yes. And, you know, Persona 3 did that with, like, the crazy teacher who liked to talk about the tarot. And it's just one thing missing from Persona 4 is not enough, like, tarot out there in the world. Because yeah. it's such a part of the games. Yeah. And I just, I just like all the scenes early on with your social link with her where, like, she's like, oh, yeah, there's no way you can fix this. And you go fix it. And she, like, does the second reading. And she's like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? What's going on? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And, yeah. and it is, like, ultimately, I like the message that they have there because I think it is an important thing because of the supernatural elements of the story to address in Persona 5 of, like, is there fate? Like, is that an overriding sort of, like, thing that dominates people's destiny? Or do you have agency? And, like, of course, like, Persona, like, is very much on the side of, yes, like, what you do matters, what you do is important and has a real impact. And it, it's something that when you mix it with the political stuff that happens later, like feels important, like, like sort of combating that like disenfranchised feeling that a lot of people can have in modern democracy of that, like, Oh, your vote doesn't matter. That's like, whoever's becomes president is up to fate. And it's like, no, like you have to try, like you have to do what you can. And like, if you do like you can fix things like you can make a difference and if you don't we get donald trump exactly just so we keep that those references up yeah uh all right i want to talk about takami because we mentioned okay, her earlier yeah. and i love super hot goth doctor I, oh my god the, she is she is this game's you could go in glasses she is so great i i and i not just because she's hot and like that's to a t my type but like that character design yeah. is fantastic, and there are many great character designs in this game. This is Soajima's masterpiece in terms of character design. Sure, yeah. But she is one, like she is actually, I think, because she's one of the earliest you get. Yeah. I think that was the character portrait that made me realize just how good the character design in this game is. Yeah. And she's just a great character beyond that. That social link is fantastic. It's one that gates you relatively early in that you can go through that one really fast until you hit like, oh shit, I need to be really. I think Charismatic is the one on that yeah. one. Yeah, and so like, there's actually a long period where you can't meet with her because you can get through the early ones really fast. But overall, that whole social link, and like, it's very funny early on in that she's doing these tests on you and you are her lab rat, and you constantly faint and then wake up hours later and you get a courage boost, which is great, or a guts boost yeah. in this game. Um, but then, as with most of these, it turns into something uh, sweeter and more emotional by the end where Takami thought she lost a patient, and she is trying to find the right medicine for her, and then you ultimately find out the patient is alive, and there's also a mementos trip in this one. I think it's just one of the best all-around social links in the game. Yeah, I agree. Like, she's just... She's a, she's a very fun character. I like that she calls you guinea pig, basically. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, guinea pig is the word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, yeah, like, her... And I think it is... There's something fun about her being one of the earliest ones, of like, setting up kind of a lot of the, the basic dynamics of how the other social links are going to operate with, like... You know, you find out kind of who she is, basic details about her, and as it, like, advances, you hit, like, that point where it's like, okay, now I need to get this stat boost up, then talk to her more, get to the point where it's like, okay, now, like, that asshole hospital director is someone I need to, like, really deal with directly, go into mementos. It's, like, a very 
sort of like feels like it sets up the structure that all those other kind of normal day like other people uh, social links go early on she was definitely the one I was most excited to go do when I yeah. had the option yeah and it's just like it's something that you know we we haven't really talked about this this much that much with the other ones but I think here it's good with talking to me that all of the social links have this element of because of like the whole game does of people being trapped in whatever sort of like spot they are like whatever kind of like social cast or whatever role they are in in society through circumstances not of their own and they want to break out of it in some way and like you know there's always that kind of authority figure in most of them that like the uncle in so uh sojiro's that has like sort of blood kind of rights over futaba and stuff like that and in uh, chihaya's it's the dude who runs the cult and this one you have like like that hospital director and there's something that's really fun about all the so there's not all but most of the social links having this kind of like authority villain figure that's like a little tiny version of like the palace figures that's another element of going into mementos is kind of setting up this guy that's like you know has this like has distorted desires not on quite the scale that most of the main villains do but it's still like set up as the small villain and target that you have to like go after and sort of figure out what the whole issue is with this yeah absolutely that there's always kind of someone above holding you down exactly yeah um is this also the moment where we want to talk about statutory romances Okay, sure, yeah. I mean, because we already... Chihaya, it's less obvious with her, but she's older. Yeah. yeah. Takami is obviously... She's a fucking doctor. You know, um, we haven't talked about Kawakami and Oya yet, but we will. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if there's even much to say about the Oya social link. It's fun. You're at a bar. Uh, Oya is constantly drunk. It's good. It's a good one. Uh, She's very Lois Lane, and I like that a lot. Yep. In English, she is voiced by Yukiko. And I love imagining that Yukiko grew up and left Inaba and went to the city. Cut her hair. Yeah, cut her hair. And became a drunk journalist. <laughs> a very good journalist. She's good yeah. at her job. She's just also like an alcoholic, basically. So, you know, yeah. Uh, but anyway, oh yeah, also you can date. And we'll talk about Kawakami in a minute. But yes, there are many romances outside of your... Every, pretty much every romance outside of your main group. You can get in a very clearly sexual relationship with an older woman. And I, I think there's a lot of ways to tackle this. Yeah. Because one of the things you said just now is about you know the theme of breaking out of social roles and social castes and i do think that's kind of one of the key themes at play here when they they offer that is that the social script does not say a 16 year old kid should date like a 25 year old woman for somewhat defensible reasons we could argue yeah yeah and that is one way the protagonist and these characters are breaking out of those roles and you can kind of determine whether that is healthy or not and, you know, I think that is an interesting theme in the game. I think there are ways you could argue this, like, if they had a female protagonist and there were, like, older dudes and they did that, one, they probably wouldn't, and if they did, it would read significantly creepier. Sure, yeah. And they basically, you know, tackle things like that with Kamoshida early in the game. And, you know, that sometimes it gets into, you know, if you're just dating the hot doctor across the street, that is a different power relationship than your homeroom teacher at school. Right. So there's a lot of things you can parse. And frankly, we could do the interpreting statutory romance and Persona 5 podcast. Right, yeah. We're not going to, but we could. So, I mean, I've kind of laid out some of the main arguments. Where, where do you think about a lot of these? Yeah, like, I think it, it's something that it's a really interesting, weird part of the game because it's not something like there is definitely like a cultural difference uh there in japan like like you know the age differences are definitely like in terms of like the legal qualifications for that kind of stuff are different in japan but not like super different and it's but this is in no way seen as like a normal thing or anything like that like and obviously it's like it is a very intentional choice for them to be a part of this game 
in a way that they were not in Persona 3 and Persona 4. Like, they've, like this is not... This, there's not, and has never really read to me in my two times of playing this game, as being the Persona team trying to, like, create this, like, weird sort of sexual fantasy for the player or something like that. It feels like this very deliberate choice to, to like, make it so that most of the relationships you have in the game are, like, weird. Like, they just... They're not... They're not totally right. Like, they're not... It's not like dating Yukari in Persona 3. It's not like dating Yukiko or Chie in Persona 4. It's like these relationships are not standard in kind of any way. Even with some of your uh, main team members that you can romance that are also part of, like, high school and stuff. It's just like your relationship is just kind of strange. And, and there's something about that that, like, I think in some ways it, there can be... If, I feel like there can be some bit of like a weird like cognitive dissonance with the Kamashita stuff and like the Kawakami stuff. But at the same time, I think there is like a weird realm of nuance to say like there is something like here. Like there's there's a like taboo here, like a social taboo here that is very like often not really explored in any sort of serious fashion. That is not really considered in any serious fashion and is completely ignored as a part of something that like, you know, while most or, like, the vast majority of people never have any sort of those, like, physical relationships, like, actualized in any way. Like, everyone's had that sort of, like, element of, like, being attracted to someone much younger than you or much older than you, depending on which stage of life you're at. And I think it's an interesting territory that, in some ways, I wish the game, like, went deeper into that in I, some places. I very much wish it went deeper yeah. with that. Like, it's something that's hard to do because... I there's obviously the very intentional choice to make it so that every single romance is optional, which makes it difficult to sort of like make that a huge story fixation. Well, and here's what I was going to say is that this is one area of the game. And most of this, I, I did not feel this with Persona 5. This is one area where I felt the general Persona structure of right. how they structure social links and romances needed to change. Like sure, yeah. the way romance happens in this game is too beholden to what they did 10 years ago in Persona 6, 11 now. You know, or Persona 6, Persona 3. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, you know what I mean. It was in yeah. 2006. But yeah, like, in Persona 3, you know, you, you have it set up and you get to, to rank max and you can, you know, romance with people and, and blah, blah, blah. And that, it works totally fine in that. Yeah. Works fine in Persona 4 and it becomes very much a joke with the Narukami character. Here, it's pretty much the same thing, but I do feel like with a lot of the romances, they want to take them a step beyond and the structure is not built to allow that. Like, you really can't say what happens with that relationship later or yeah. explore it in the depth it needs to. Because I think you're totally right. That idea of the statutory romances with this character and the taboo that is being broken, I think is 100% thematically belonging in this game. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there, but it belong. It, it is part of the thematic spectrum that this game exists on in terms of... You're totally right. Like, And, and this is something that you know the game made me think of is that I'm almost constantly attracted to not the people who are my same age... But, like, a generation, not a generation, but, you know, like, older than me. Yeah. Like, not, the, the, you know, the girl in my class, but, you know, maybe the teacher's assistant or something like right. that. And I think that's something that is worth questioning and thinking about, especially in a game that is asking about social norms and social mores and taboos. And I do think, like, that that is an element of it feels right, but I do think because of, I think, the general structure and that... You really, they're all optional, but you still can have all the girlfriends you want in the world. That once it's kind of over and you've gotten through that scene, there there just can't be any more weight attached to it, you know? Yeah. And I, I, frankly, I would be interested if another team does a Persona 6. What can they do with, like, the dating sim aspect of this? Because it probably is the most undercooked thing in Persona 3, 4, 5. Yeah. So, yeah. That's yeah. kind of where I come down on it. Yeah, like, I basically agree. 
Yeah. And it is important to remember they are optional, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, in particular, I feel like you are not supposed to get in a relationship with Kawakami. It feels like the game is very, like, directly saying, like, if, like... You're going down this path, like that's like the quote unquote like non canonical route or something like that. It's like it very much signposts like you're fucking dude, like you do what you want. Like we're not going to totally block this off because there's stuff like interesting material to sort of explore with that relationship, but that's not like the one you're like quote unquote supposed to do. Because it totally feels like the right ending to her confidant yeah. is her recognizing, oh, we have had this flirtation and this abstraction, but I'm trying to be the best version of myself and I can't do that. Yeah. But then you can talk her into like Come give me a massage, and then we'll, you know, we'll fuck. Yeah. Yeah, just sure. wear that maid costume. Sure. Yeah. Sure, I, I mean, wasn't going to go as sort of grotesque with it, but She makes some pretty audible moans when she's massaging you, is all I'm saying. Okay, well, maybe, maybe the English version. Maybe the Japanese version is slightly more wholesome. I, I don't know. know. The game you've been playing. Yeah. Kawakami voiced by Yukari, so that just adds a whole layer of romance to there it. There you go. weird, yeah. Yukari grew up and became a teacher who went on to wear a maid outfit and fuck her students. There you go. Which does not quite seem like the right arc for Yukari, but, you know... I, you know... Yeah. You never know where life leads you. That's, it's a weird, long, winding road, I guess. Yeah, I haven't played the, the, the Persona Arena games. Maybe that's what they tell us about you, Kari. It's totally what it was. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, they're very weird games. That they're M-rated in, in very interesting ways. Yeah. But, I mean, while we're on that, any more thing else to say on that? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Kawakami. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, that's a great social link. Yeah. As weird as it can get, and as much as I think it is the center point of all discussions around the statutory romance and stuff, I have already just talked about how much I love the way that social link starts. Where out of the blue, Ryuji comes to you with the maid advertisement, yeah. and you and, hi- and him and Mishima go and do this, and then it turns out to be Kawakami, but they've gone and hidden because they're, you know, kind of wusses about it. Yeah. And then you start calling her over, and then you start realizing, oh my god... Miss Kawakami has the best confidant abilities so far in this game. Yeah. No, it's it's something where like her social link like like where it goes and like what it is is just so nuts. And something that uh like is present in this whole game is something we haven't talked about a lot that I love about this game. It's one of the reasons why I think from certain sections of the Persona fan base, like Persona 5 has gotten a slightly more cold reception than I would have expected, is that like, this game is not interested in actually, like, glorifying otaku culture and, like, those elements right. of otaku culture in a way that, like, most pieces of otaku culture do. Like, one of the things that is, you know, like, I think anybody who watches a lot of anime or, like, is, like, certainly, like, learned the language and stuff, like, realizes is there's this really weird relationship between a lot of the American fan base for stuff like anime and manga and Japanese video games and Japan. And there's like this really weird perspective on Japan as like a nation and a culture and like a political entity that's like that stuff, like a lot of anime paints this like really idealistic picture of Japan. Like it paints this picture of like, even if like you have a character in an anime that's like a hikikomori, so they're like a shut-in who's completely cut themselves off from like all of society. And it's like this really like, tragic victim of a lot of like really severe uh, endemic issues to Japanese culture those characters are oftentimes played as jokes and like it's fun like laugh it up as like oh they're socially awkward blah 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 or and, glorified or glorified in some ways and like and that can be fine in a lot of instances like that's not an issue the issue is when like that is all that people consume and that's like your entire perspective on Japan is like 
Japan is a culture that is like in a lot of ways really fucked up in the way that like every culture in a lot of ways is really fucked up. Yeah, and every country 5, is really fucked up. Persona 5 has very little patience for your fantasies about Japan. Yeah, like the stuff that like like it's not Persona 5 is not interested in looking at like the the maid thing in like the maid culture in Akihabara and like saying like oh, this is so amazing and great and like funny and like blah blah blah. It's like it's like interesting it's also in a lot of ways like really fucked up and and it's like you know it sort of shines light on like what this is doing and what this is like asking of women and like putting like women in this like role in otaku culture it's like really weird and is like not healthy yeah i mean it's you know we've we've so far we're gushing about the kawakama social link because it is so out there yeah but what makes it that's the opening of it what yeah. makes it great as a sustained thing throughout the game is where it starts to poke holes in all of that. Yeah. And that you are attracted to her, and I don't mean physically or sexually, I mean you are attracted to her as another person in terms of you want to know more about her because of the sadness endemic in that. That she's wearing this main costume and doesn't want to. Because yeah. who the fuck would? You yeah, know? Exactly. And more power to someone who would, I guess, but like, you know... This is there are bigger issues going on, and you see a kindred kind of spirit there. Where hey, I've been fucked over by the world. You're wearing a maid outfit. We probably have things to offer each other. Yeah, right. And that's where that story goes. And you know, just the whole what you realize about this woman and and the deepening of that character is that she's not just some like kind of layabout teacher who goes and is a maid. She is someone who wants to be a great teacher, is a great teacher deep down, and who the system, society because of this issue with this one kid, has basically told over and over again, don't try that hard. Yeah. And if you do, you're just going to have to go be a maid at night because that's what women actually are to this culture. I mean, there is actually a very much a dichotomy they're presenting here between the learned woman at school who is the best version of herself and the woman she has to be at night when she's a maid. Yeah, where she's completely subservient. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just... Man, it's, it's something where it, I love... like the, it's, it's, It has a sort of similar arc to Sojudo's character... Of that, you get introduced to her at the beginning of the game, and she just seems like the worst teacher. And it's like, like every character at the beginning of the game is like, all these people suck. And like, she seems like she wants nothing to do with you. She's constantly complaining about why is she, or why are you in her class? Like, why does she have to do all this? And you just think it's like, oh man, like what the fuck? Like, come on, you should. You're my teacher. Like, you should be better than this. You should stand up for something better than this. Like, you should be my ally or whatever. And and you feel like kind of like weirdly betrayed and, and like really off put by how cold she is. And then I love that when you get into that social link and you find out what's going on, you realize like she's just so tired. Like she's works so hard because she's working as a teacher and then she's working as a maid at night and like scraping in every bit of money she scrapes she scrapes together. She gives to these people that are basically threatening her with legal action and and out of the sense of guilt. For what happened to their their kid that's not her fault at all and it's like how brutal that slow realization is of like like the extent to which that goes and like how desperately you want to be like do you need to fight this like you're like working too hard to like and getting nothing and being subservient to people that don't deserve it like let's let's like fight this you know yeah, and, you know, it ties in other social critiques of, like, Japan's whole education system, and yeah. that this was actually a kid who was, like, overworked to death, which yeah. is not an unrealistic thing to that culture. Yeah, again, like, like if, if you're someone who doesn't, hasn't heard a lot about Japan's education system, doesn't know a lot about it, look up the, like, phrase cram school, and yeah. if you think that school was hard for you, what the fuck? 
Yeah, I mean, Japanese education is vastly superior to American education in a whole host of ways. But they go too. You could argue they go too far in a whole. Host they, of ways. I mean, you can yeah. you can look at the data and say they absolutely go too far. Yes, in the exactly. same way that you know, I mean, there are people that literally like work themselves to death, and that is you. That there's a whole word for that that you put on a fucking death certificate for a cause of death is overworking, and it's like it's a really big issue with yes Japan's culture. Yeah, and Persona Five is not turning a blind eye to any of these things. No, like, that's the whole point, point of the game. It's one of the things I really love about it, is that it's, you know, even going back to, like, Futaba, who said, said, like, you know, that example earlier about anime will use the Hikikomori character as a joke. Like, that is so often the case. It, like, sometimes drives me crazy, because one of my favorite anime is a show called Welcome to the NHK, that is... The main character is a hikikomori, and it's like this whole 25-episode show that is, like, completely dedicated to exploring that social phenomena and other similar sort of, like, issues of sort of college-age youths in Japan and, like, the weird issues they go through and, like, you know, suicide in Japan and, like, those kinds of issues. And then, like, you turn around and you, like, most shows that come out today, if it has a character like that at all, and again, it's, like, mostly played as a joke. And then you play Persona 5 and it has Futaba, and, like, that's one of, like the best representations of a character like that I've seen and like really exploring that and part of something that's endemic to that is saying that you know just stealing her heart and her going outside does not fix the problem like she has like deep social anxiety issues some that she was sort of born with but some that were put on her from other elements of society that have like you know pressured that even more and more and like causes to be exacerbated and you have her whole social link is working with her through that and even by the end of the game she's not like you know she's not going out to parties and hanging out with everyone like she still has social anxiety issues she just knows how to deal with them you know and live with them absolutely i want to go back to something you just said uh that i think is worth talking just while we're on this thought uh, yeah. i'm talking about that that persona 5 has had pockets of colder reception because i've seen that too yeah and I've, you know, not if you look at like mainstream critics, but I, you're right about fan base. And it's always been something that interests me that, because uh, I think going forward we're still going to see some of this, that for a lot of Western fans, I can't speak to the Japanese fan base, Persona 4 is the one everyone gravitates to. Absolutely. Even yes. though I think you and I would both say, by a pretty wide margin, Persona 4 is the weakest of the three. Yeah, I'd yeah. say so. And we love that game. Yeah, no, but it's, it's one not, of the best games, but like yeah, it is definitely I think weakest. it's a notch below Persona 3 and 5. And I think some of that, I, I look at that and it's hard not to see the phenomena of Persona 4 gives people the easy answers in, in a lot of circumstances. And I don't think that's even the heart of Persona 4. I think no. it's a way you can read Persona 4. I think it ignores a lot of the heavier stuff in that game. But it is something there. Whereas Persona 3 and Persona 5, not just because they are darker in some ways, but because of the way they handle themes, they're not about comforting your easy view of the world or right. of Japan or of culture or of death, or of any of these big things. There are games that ask you to engage with them on an intellectual and emotional level that is heavier than most video games and most works of mass media. And I think Persona 4, you know, happens to slot in the easiest with a lot of the mass media people consume, especially in online culture. And I just do think it's easy, because I definitely thought that when I was playing through Persona 5, was like, yeah, some people are going to hate this game, because it asks more of you than a lot of games do. And it's also just something where I feel like a lot of people's relationship with Persona 4 
is again it, like there's like that sort of fantasy version of Japan that like Japan courts about itself about like the yes. countryside and like that connection to nature and stuff like that. So it's like it's not like it's just some weird total misinterpretation by by Westerners or something. But there is something about Persona Four that you know you play that game and you're like, oh, I would love to just move here. Like I'd love to take a vacation in Iniba and like like hike in the mountain and go into like the, like be at the traditional Japanese inn and, and eat their steak skewers and like you know it's like this quaint beautiful country life in japan it seems so idyllic and like you play fucking like the like that's like the first five hours of persona 4 that's the reaction you have like there's like some murder stuff but that doesn't take away from how beautiful everything is right the first five hours of persona 5 if you play the first five hours of persona 5 and say i would like to go to a vacation in tokyo you sound like a fucking maniac yes like i would love to go to this place where everyone's an asshole nobody talks to you everyone hates everyone everyone pushes everyone away from each other and it's like full of like weird perverts and like sexual assaulters and like people being racist to white people and it's like what the fuck this seems like a hell on earth i would never want to step foot in this fucking godforsaken city that's what the, that's the kind of tokyo that persona 5 shows you at the start and then i think it complicates that image significantly over the course of the game but like even at the end of the game i think this game is very sort of cynical in some ways about like living in cities and what that kind of like urban life can do to people and how it can push people away from each other and isolate them in very interesting ways at- and I think it's worth talking about the tapestry of Persona 3, 4, 5 and how these games do exist in conversation with one, yeah. another, one another and the idyllic landscape of Persona 4 is not at odds with the thematic uh, argument being made in Persona 5. Yeah. You know, and you can talk about these as a, a larger piece, but I just want to make that point. So Yeah. Yeah, but it's something that like, I, I can totally get that like, a lot of people have had a reaction to Persona 5 of like, being really put off by it, particularly at the opening and I totally get that, but like that's something I love about it so much because it's something I so rarely see in this kind of media from Japan is that kind of like really intense self-reflection and like this condemnation of these issues that plague it. Because again, like, you know, I watch a lot of anime. Like it's something that I do pretty regularly whenever like an anime season ends, is look at like whatever has been going on and be like, okay, this show has been getting a lot of buzz, like I'll watch through it and stuff. As like both is just like out of curiosity and because I like to practice the language. And so much anime is, like, they will have, like, a character, like, I recently watched this show called Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, or Maid Dragon, like, don't, don't worry about it, it's a crazy show, but it's really good, it was, like, really popular from the last season, and it's a really good show, it's very funny, and it has a good heart, but also, like, a main part of, like, the main character Kobayashi in that show is that she works at a company, and, like, is basically tasked with working so hard works overtime all the time doesn't really make enough money and like is constantly pushed that far and the show never asks like is that okay like it never really engages with that like there's one little story arc about like a manager that's kind of a dick but other than that like there's a whole arc where she's like can't go to her sort of adoptive daughter's sports fair because of how much work she has and her solution to that problem is I'm going to work overtime extra hard for like a month to open up one afternoon to go to the sports fair for my daughter and it's like this is so fucked up like that's not that's not the fucking thing you should be interrogating you know and there's something about like but like it's so rare for otaku sort of media to really interrogate some of those issues inside because like it's rare for any piece of media to really interrogate the sort of like the flaws of the society that creates it. And any piece of media that does is going to fail in a lot, if not most respects. And that's like something about making art. And there's something so great about Persona 5, like 
you know, the Persona, all three of the Persona games do that, but I think Persona 5 does it, like, really intensely. Yeah. I was going to say, like, to be fair, you could say that about, like, 99% of American sitcoms, for instance. Yeah, of, like, exactly. Are they critically asking about the more disturbing underlying societal things that create the scenario of the show? Yeah. Yeah. And, and generally the answer would be no. Yes. So, yes. Anyway, yeah. Uh, we got off track. Uh, talking about the last confidant, I think we were focusing on all the non-teammate confidants. Yeah. I know we still have the, the gun guy. Charisma Gamer. Which yeah. is, they changed Oh, that I meant in the gun the seller. But oh, I see, oh. Okay, sorry. But yeah, you have Shinya who's... Yeah. Talk about Shinya. Yeah. I mean, there's not, like, he's one of the less interesting social links in the game, I think. Yeah, Although yeah. he gives you, I love the fucking abilities he gives you. He does. The gun is really cool. But they're he's, fun. you know, he's a little kid who plays uh, gun about. Really weird name uh, for a game at an arcade. And, you know... Not a huge amount to go into with his story. The one thing I really love about Shinya, though, in the Japanese version, when you, like, go into your your co-op or your confidant sort of menu option, you know, they have kind of, like, nicknames for all the characters. Or when, like, the social link pops up, it'll say, like, like Politician Man or, like, whatever it says you know about them. In Japanese, he's called Charisma Gamer. And it's, like, so good. And, like, the word charisma means something, like, the English word charisma in Japanese means something slightly different than it is just in English English. And they change it to skilled gamer, which is like a fine translation of that. I wish they just left it as yeah, prison gamer because it's sucks. so good. It's such a great phrase. It's one of those instances where, you know, another country using English uses English better than English countries use English. Charisma gamer sounds so good. Yeah, my only comment about Shinya that I would make beyond all that is that they got his voice actress from the same pool of people who did like Canon Persona 3 or... English Naruto of like it just sounds like it just sounds like an old woman doing the voice and it's like I I know that's how Japan does a lot of the time but they're good at it you're not doing it right yeah his voice in Japanese is very good yeah like uh yeah you're not Nancy Cartwright on the Simpsons doing Bart you're not that good at this like maybe just get a little kid's voice or something it didn't work but yeah anyway Shinya and then I also wanted to talk about the guy at the gun store EY Munehisa Good, good character. Like Former Yakuza. Shit gets real over the course of that. Yeah, his, his social link is very dramatic yes. in a way that feels very appropriate. It's fantastic. I mean, at some point, you got like a gun pulled on you and all this stuff. Yeah. You have to get your guts to rank five to do this one thing with him. But also, like the whole story is actually a pretty sweet story about his adopted son who, yeah. in this great... like I can imagine a Yakuza movie ending with EY adopting this kid, you know? Because yeah. it's basically from this like Yakuza... Turf war. He gets this kid, and then he's you know trying to raise him outside of the family, and uh, it all comes back to him. It's, it's it's actually a really good story. Yeah, and I love the way it ends. But. Yeah, I I, I and I really like his son. Like I like you have like yeah. this weird relationship with his kid. That's fun. It's like another little family you have in the yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. So I think that covers all the confidants that are non-teammates. Yes, I think so. Uh, and then in terms wait, of... no, we forgot about Kifumi, the Shogi girl. All right, they're they're my pure reason. <laughs> I, I like Kifumi. <laughs> She is fine. She's uh, yeah. She and Shinya both feel very Persona One Hundred One to me. I, don't know. I like. Okay, I like Hifumi. But yeah, no. I, it's one fine. of the reasons I like Hifumi, her name in kanji is just the kanji for one, the kanji for two, and the kanji for three, and that is very easy to read. And I look at that immediately, like I know what that name is. That's awesome. That's really good. No, I, it's fine. I like it. I like uh, some of the stuff near the end where. You know, you realize that she never really was all that good at shogi, and like yeah, her mother was yeah, her propping just... her up. And because in some ways, I feel like hers is actually like very similar to Shinya's, but just done better. Yeah, like like they have like the same sort of like controlling mother thing going on. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, but it's all good. Uh, she also gives you some good abilities. Yes. So. No, she has some, like, really sort of central abilities about being able to, like, swap team members in and out of combat. Oh, right. That's, That's like, her. Oh, my when God. When you start the game and you do not have that ability after having been used to having that ability for, like, 40 hours, it is really hard to suggest that. Yes. All right, so that's all the non-teammates. Yeah. In terms of the teammates, we've talked about most of them over the course of the spoiler yeah. casts. So I guess I would just ask, you know, which we are there any you'd like to highlight? Um, there's one moment from the on social link I want to highlight that uh, there's a really great line that I think it doesn't play quite as well in English as it did in Japanese, though it's still a really good scene. And it's from this first scene where you're with her at the park and you're sort of going through all that stuff with her, and she's like trying to like you know practice not being affected by things. But you have this, like, small conversation where she talks about moving to Tokyo. And she has this, like, really great line where she said, like, she says basically, like, Tokyo is such a strange place that it has all these people, has all these shops, has all these things. It even has ponds with ducks and stuff in it. And yet everything in the city seems like it's out of your reach. And it's like, and you can't hold any of it. Like, that's literally what she says in Japanese. And it's like this really great, small, reflective moment that happens, like, in the first 15, 20 hours of the game that I think, like for me, really kind of started setting up and nailing how important the city was and how important Tokyo is to this game. Because Tokyo is like, even having never been there, like like having seen a lot of movies and, and researched it, it's a very different kind of big city. Like, I think people don't quite understand how huge Tokyo is and how, like, varied it is. That it's like, it's not just, like, Manhattan. It's like New York City and, like, all the boroughs and, like, New Jersey kind of, like, all put together in terms of, like, the scale and variety of what the city is. When Godzilla tramples through it, he's destroying a lot of shit. It, it takes a long time. Like it's, yeah. it's a significant distance. It's a massive city. And, and there's, there's just something about that scene with her in that park of like... Because there's also like when I played this game for the first time, it was in October. So it was like a couple of months, like three or four, five months after I had gone to New York City for the first time. And there's something about that even though New York City and Tokyo are pretty different in terms of, like, the ratio of building to nature and, like, there's a way more natural park stuff in Tokyo than there's in New York City because, you know, Tokyo is on a relatively small island. New York City is on an even smaller island. Yeah. So there's, like, a really sort of density of real estate. But there is a very similar feeling of, like, when you go to a park in New York City or, like, what they call a park, you're like, this is, like, five square feet of grass and two trees that are kind of half dead and a bench. It's like, this is, this is nature, you know, or you go to like central park and it's like, this doesn't even feel like this never feels like being outside because there's all these buildings everywhere. And it's like, it's this weird mishmash of all these elements that feels as someone like from Colorado and like, like with on says in that, like, she was like, she's, you know, not from there. Like, this is not where she grew up. There's something really alienating about that sensation of like being in nature but not being in nature at the same time that I love about that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've talked about how much I love the Haru social link. Yeah. I think it's just, it's a really good one. It's like the character, I think it sneaks up on you and how effective it is. And that, as I've said before, I think Haru is like a combination of Fuka and Mitsuru from Persona 3 where yeah. the, the Mitsuru side of like being the heiress of a big company but the Fuka side of being very timid about things. Yeah. But I like that... Like, what she realized about Haru is she's quiet, but I don't think she's timid. Like, that's, no. that's something that you think about her early on. But she really is a very strong-willed person. And I love... It's one of the best social links about just someone following their dream. And her dream 
is fairly modest, and I like that about her. And it's obviously a specific contrast they're drawing between her and her family and this giant business she is you know, inextricably a part of. But she wants to be on the roof doing the gardening, and she yeah. wants to learn about how to make coffee, and she wants to open a little coffee shop. And I actually found all of that so interesting and attractive about that character. I really like... And we can have our arguments about this. To me, like for my interpretation of how I played my main character, Haru is my canonical girlfriend in that uh -huh. game. And I just... And I thought it was Makoto for the longest time. Because it is Makoto. Like, and, I, can... and I love Makoto's social link. And we can talk about that too because it's fantastic. But like, there's something about that where I do feel like that attraction, and I think the main character would feel it too, about Haru has this very real ambition, but it's not to go like rule the world. It's to find happiness and own a little coffee shop and just kind of live your life peacefully. And I feel like that would be very attractive to the main character after everything that happened. And I also like, there's some kind of familial connection with that of like, Sojiro would really approve of that. Sure. That, that lifestyle with that. Keep it in the business. Keep it in the business, yeah. And and I love that of how she interacts with, you know, Sojiro too, of like, she goes to, almost like he's her sensei of like yeah. learning about coffee. But I would not be surprised if in, in the Japanese she says that to him at some point. No, no, but, not quite. Yeah, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's that kind of relationship. So... Great social link. And then, yeah, the Makoto one also, where she... Basically, the Makoto social link is just about her branching out and making a friend. Yeah, know? it's about being like, hey, like, I, I know what the Japanese education system is. You have to talk to people. Like, yeah. you, you cannot just be, like, honor student, student council president, and, like, you know, attend, like, the five fucking yeah. cramped schools and only pray for uh, entrance exams. And, like, is the thing I love about her, social link, is just the thing I love about her character, is how practical she's about everything. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, she's just so sort of like, I've, I've made this choice about, like, what I'm going to do, you're going to help me do it, and we're like, we're going to go to, like, Shinjuku, and we're going to do do research. This is like, bring a notebook, basically. Yeah. And there's, like, and that's the element of, like, for her that I feel like if I had to write, like, the Persona 5 novel adaptation and had to pick a, like, love interest in it, that is the character I would pick because I can just so see the main character in her, like, having this, like, again, like, just this super practical relationship. It's like, they're, they're physically attracted, they enjoy each other's company, but also, you know, if they didn't see each other for two years, they'd be kind of fine with it. If that's just how the way that, like, dice rolled, you know, like, they could have, like, it's the, like, the kind of people that like they can totally make a long distance relationship work because it's like there's just so like business minded you know yeah no yeah. uh great social link. i just love that it also becomes something of a detective story later on where you're yeah. trying to figure out what's happening with her friend and yeah and, it, and that douchebag host guy he's great he sucks. So and, and yeah the scene where like he and, and makato sort of have to like confront and have a little fight is fun yeah, so... Like, you have to save him from her because you know that she's just going to fucking rip his head off if, the, if that fight got real. Yep. All right, so those are all the social links. Yeah. They're great. We talked about our favorites, but most of them are really good. Yes. It's fantastic. Um, so, yes. Uh, what other kinds of things... I am trying... I have been compiling... Uh, and I've been thinking about different things I want to ask about just rapid-fire questions about comparing okay. Persona games and things like that. But uh, any more we want to say about kind of wrap-up thoughts about Persona 5 as a general, like, I don't know, thematic conversation? I like the game a lot. It's very I, I love this game. It's, man, and it is just the... It, here's, here's a thing I wanted to talk about that I, that I forgot to mention. It, it wraps up into a couple of things. I'll try to make it quick. But it's, it's something that, that wraps up in a little bit into the uh, localization conversation that we didn't talk about with that. Is one of the criticisms that the game has is about the, the overuse of sort of stock phrase translation, which is a sort of referring to in Japanese 
a sort of phenomena of the Japanese language and how it's structured and like relative to the English language, how less vocabulary it has is there are a lot of phrases in Japanese that you kind of say all the time, particularly in like a piece of fiction that just comes up all the time. And oftentimes in translating that stuff, you want to sort of find a lot of different ways to translate some of those phrases to make it so that it doesn't feel as sort of rote. Because if you say that literally the exact same phrase over and over in English, it sounds very repetitive. But one thing against that translation method in sort of for translating those things nearly identical every single time it comes up, which is not, Persona 5 does not fucking do that. Like it, it uses a stock phrase sort of translation for some of those things, but it is not nearly 100% of the time. It's probably like 40% of the time. But when you translate very, very similarly, what you are ultimately doing is sort of trying to sort of translate the literal phrase into English and trust the audience to be able to understand this is not natural English. Like what you're trying to convey in English is something that's a term that doesn't sort of normally exist in this language. And you're really just sort of like swapping out the Japanese meaning for the, of the word for an English sort of like set of words and hoping that like the audience can catch on. And effectively what they will end up doing, hopefully, is learning what that Japanese word meaning is, even if they don't know how to say it. So anyways, that's sort of like a, a setup for the phrase sasaga in Japanese, which I think is a really important phrase of this game, is one of the things that I like. I tend to like the stock translation of it when it is used in Persona 5 because I think it conveys something specific about the Japanese language and Japanese culture. And so the phrase, the word sasaga in, in Japanese basically means, it can be used in a lot of different contexts, but it basically means as I would expect of this person. So you can use it in regards to Makoto's character, like sasaga Makoto, like as I would expect of you, like student council president, of course you got really good grades on this test. And so it'd be used in response to her, like saying, I got 100% on this test, or it could be used in like any sort of like small instance of her sort of accomplishing something to say, as I would expect of you, you did this thing. And normally Sasuke is just sort of like a normal little thing you throw down, throw around as a bit of a compliment or it can be used as a sarcastic joke and stuff like that. But it also has a like, and, and in those instances when you're translating to English uh, of it just being like a sarcastic joke or whatever, you don't need to necessarily keep the expectation part of it in. You can find other ways to say like, this is just saying like you did a really good job on this thing and you could just translate it that way. But it is literally saying, this is what I have expected of you to do and it's generally just used in a context where it means you have done this thing well. But even if it's used in a complimentary fashion, what it is saying is you have done this thing that I expected you to do and you have like, and that is what you are supposed to do. And it's like the phrase Sasaga in Japanese, what it does linguistically is it puts people into slots and it pigeonholes them. And so it's used to say, as I would expect of a delinquent, of course you failed this thing. Pa ha ha, Yuji, you are delinquent. It's like, as I would expect of the student council president, as I would expect of the heiress to this company, as I would expect of a foreigner, as I would expect of a, of a criminal, as I would expect of blah, 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 blah. Like, the phrase Sasuke is used all the time in the game in Japanese. This is in most things in Japanese. But here it feels like that phrase is really important. And it's like, it's really important to sort of, in translating that, I think, to sort of get across the sensation of all these people, all these kids are all the time being told that like what you have done is you are living up to my expectations of you. And that is also saying that if you are not doing this thing, you are not doing as you are supposed to be doing, as you are expected to do by the standards of society. And that's like, it's something that, that is all over the place in the game. It's another area where I feel like the game is pretty self-reflective about elements of Japanese culture is that 
Japanese tends not to reflect because it is like, you know, again, it is often not used in any, and it almost never is used in a deliberate way to sort of like really force someone to be that way. And it's meant more casually, but it can carry that weight of saying like, as I would expect of my subordinate to do this good of a job to like be a, like a wink and a nudge to say, that means that you're supposed to do this well every single time. And if you don't, you are failing your role in society. And so it's like, it's, it's a thing that, I feel that. Yeah. Japanese <laughs> Japanese culture and society, like every culture and society has these issues, but Japanese culture and society in particular has an issue with stratification of roles and of you being like a subordinate and like a senior and like how you're supposed to talk, everything you do, all like everything you think is supposed to sort of fit into that caste structure. And it's something that's really important to understanding Persona 5 is that it comes from that place and it's very critical of that place. And I think I know exactly what you're talking about in the localization because that yeah. phrase like... Just as I'd, I mean, Morgana says it a million times. Yeah. Just as I'd expect a few choker or something like exactly. that in English. And, but the, you hear that a lot. Sojiro says it a lot. And I think what the you The principal says it a lot to Makoto. He says yeah. it like five times in one scene, I think. Yeah, but I think what you're getting at is it's probably good that you get that. Because I knew, bef- I didn't know the word Sasaga the way you were explaining it. Yeah. But as soon as you kind of started saying what it meant, I'm like, yeah, I know where that is in the game. And that means the localization did its job yeah. because I understood the repetition of that idea, even if linguistically I didn't play it in Japanese. To me, that's good localization. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 the, yeah. that's an interesting part of the game. And it's in one of those things of where localization is really complicated and there's no like right or wrong answer in how to translate something. And like yeah. there are a lot of layers to sort of what you can gain out of different methods of localizing a piece of media. Yeah. So yeah, I one last thing I want to say about the game okay. is, uh, and this is something I kind of tweeted about, but I want to expand on it, which is that you know when we talked about Persona Three back in the day, years ago now, yes. we did our Persona Three podcast, and of course that's the podcast where I famously got weepy and you know was talking about what that game very specifically meant to me in the moment and I think I've been pretty open about that in our multiple conversations about yes. Persona 3 that that game um, was one of the first games I played after my dad died and it was um, a very cathartic experience but also I mean life changing I, I don't say that to be dramatic but like in terms of my outlook on the world and in my own grief process Persona 3 was life changing and Persona 5 it is too early to say what effect it will have on me in that way but because of other things that are going on in my life and more complex and things I'm not even going to necessarily go into and open up about right now. But when I think I, I hit the end of this game and I, we talked about a little bit last week about, you know, the themes of this game and how beautifully it, it gives you all that at the end with the final cutscenes and everything, this sense of freedom that this game is about fighting tooth and nail for the basic freedom to choose what kind of path you want to walk. Yeah. That message has resonated with me so incredibly strongly and Persona 5 has helped put into perspective uh, things I've been grappling with I would say since I graduated college and maybe even earlier of like looking beyond that of like it's really easy in you know we are not as as stratified a society as Japan is in these ways but there is the social script there's you go to high school and then you go to college or trade school or whatever and then you pick a job and then you go do that and then you have kids and fucking die and whatever you know and that's it and i've been spending a lot of time thinking about that and not quite knowing what i want my next step in life to be and you know having certain constants that i like like this podcast i like doing this i don't want this to go anywhere right and I like you know, Doctor Who. I like Doctor. Don't want that to go anywhere. No, you know, but I like, like I like Doctor Who and I like talking about Doctor Who. That's yeah. my life. 
but figuring out where I think I want to go in the world and realize, and I, that's hard. And I think what Persona 5 has lit a fire in me and like is constantly reminding me of whenever I like listen to the soundtrack or think about this game is it's like, look, the game is like looking at me and reminding me like, don't sit on that. Don't sit on those decisions. If you have the freedom to make those decisions, that is a gift and that is precious and that is something that we all have to constantly fight for of whatever version of the social script you want to break from or walk or whatever that is a a struggle and it's something very real and I can already feel Persona 5 having a pretty significant impact in my life just in terms of how I'm looking at the world and not a lot of pieces of mass media can offer that. Yeah. Yeah, like for me in sort of like in that regard and that, that element of sort of the game obviously this is the second time I've played it and I've talked about it before like we talked about it on like our our like political episode or whatever we want to call it after the election I talked a lot about like you know the first time I played the game was in October and like for me so much about Persona 5 even you'll be playing it the second time is about that first playthrough and where I was where the world was and then also like a big part of it is inextricably tied to that being like one of like the big first things like projects I sort of undertook of like I'm going to take the skill I've gained in, in reading and understanding the Japanese language and apply that to sort of consuming a piece of art, which is, you know, where my training is from school and stuff with books. And the, and so, like, so much of this game is sort of like there's two sides of it of, of how I feel like it has changed my life in not like a huge way, but like feel like this game has like it gets under your skin and like just sort of like starts working on you in a way that feels a lot less sort of direct as a lot of what Persona 3 felt to me which is like had like a huge impact on me as well. And this game like it has both been a really big step for me in sort of like this exploration of something I've I've been very interested in and just getting deeper into of of different cultures and the way different cultures are different and the ways are the same and how these sorts of social issues come from very similar roots but manifest in different ways both like in the sense of like those specific like you know overworking or educational system problems and stuff like that and then also in the broader sort of like global geopolitical context of fascism and and of you know the the late capitalism or modern democracy however you sort of like want to look at those facets of the game and it's something that the game has sort of helped me explore those elements of Japanese culture and like the differences between Japanese culture and American culture in a very real way that like, I like, I very much feel like kind of like with persona three, there's like my life and who I was pre playing this game and my life and who I am after playing it. And like the sort of reference points I have for so many things that I deal with through like what I'm going through in my like personal life feels like it is filtered through something of, of what persona five is doing. And a big part of that is living under the Trump administration and living in this like world where it feels like, and it really felt like after election day, democracy failed. And like that sort of moment of crisis in persona five has this like really small, but really powerful message of like, you know, it's like, you know, you can do what you can do and you can fight with everyone and you should, but also like that big, that big thing, that huge scale, you don't live on that scale. Like you can't, you can't move that vector, but you can move the vectors of the people around you and you can have an impact there and that will have an effect. And it, it is something that like has been so sort of ennobling that, you know, it's 
I think America is way, way worse off having Trump, obviously, as president than Clinton. But it also feels like democracy has not just totally fallen apart because he was elected. Like, there's, like, there's so much you can do, and it sort of highlights by having a tyrant in the offense. It highlights the kinds of actions you can take and the sorts of things you can do. And I feel like that is what Persona 5 is about. And it is a sort of, like, comforting thing of the thing about, like, yes, like... You know, just sort of like helping someone's sort of everyday issues is important and it's something you should take the effort to do the, and not like close yourself off. The Persona games, by this team at least, I can't speak to one and two because I have not gone too deep into those. They do have a fundamental worldview that gauntlets, you know, going through difficult situations puts people out on the other side in a better place. Yeah. Or that they can, at least. It, I really do think that is a fundamental worldview of these games that, you know, struggle and crisis pr- can produce the best in people over the long term. And I think that's especially apparent in Persona 5, which, you know, just visually and everything ends a lot lighter than it starts. Yeah. You know, which is not the usual arc for storytelling. No. Yeah. So, all right. I want to do some rapid fire. Okay. Some fun things. Um, all right. We could do a whole other episode on the music. We probably will at some point. At some point we will. I mean, do you want to list a couple of favorite tracks? Anything like that? Do you want to... I mean, there's a, like, we'll just put all like the big main lyrical tracks aside because obviously all of those are great. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about how we love yeah. Behind the Mask and Rivers in the Desert and yes. things like that. Uh, I want a big, big shout out to Layer Cake. Layer Cake is a great song. Layer Cake is a song that plays when you're in EY's shop, the gun shop. Yeah. And it is... The best shot music that Persona has had, it's maybe, it's up there with, okay, wait, it is tied with the Persona 1 slash Persona 2 uh, pharmacy theme, which is fucking amazing. I'm not going to go into why it's amazing. Look up the Satoshi Tadashi pharmacy themes from those two games. They're fucking great. But in terms of this team's Persona, Persona team's uh, shot music, Persona 5 has the best one. Really great. It is a perfect music to buy and sell shit to because it matches up so perfectly with the rhythm of the sound effects in the shop. I love Layer Cake. And I love Alley Cat, which is the sad song we talked about that with that plays with a lot of Sojuro scenes. And you, know, you can talk about some. Butterfly Kiss. Butterfly I love Kiss, Butterfly right? Kiss. That is the theme that plays in Takemi's Clinic. It is my favorite like shop yeah. theme in this game. I don't know if you really consider that a shop, but that is one of my... That, I just love that theme to death. And because you go to her a lot less than you do to other places, I, I kind of, it's always fresh to me when I hear it. I have like three weeks in a row put that on as our theme song and then realized there was probably a more relevant one to pick. But I cannot wait until I just throw Butterfly Kiss on the timeline. Yeah, we'll do Layer Kick at one point too. But I love Butterfly Kiss. That's one I keep coming back to. And in terms of other songs that like play maybe a bigger role in the game, um, I think the best instrumental track in the game is called Swear to My Bones. Uh, versions of that theme kind of play in various situations throughout the game, but that specifically comes up um, in the Velvet Room near the end when you go and basically give a pep talk to every person, and then, you know, that melody is one of the main melodies of the final song, uh, Hoshito Bokuroto, or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah, yeah. The Stars in so, Us. Stars yeah. in Us, yeah. Um, I love both of those. Yes. Also, I really love the song Sunset Bridge. It's one of the main sort of like more emotional uh, social link ones, and it's very tied to your main party members. Like, there's a very sort of like different version of it is the encounter song from the beginning when you first meet on and sort of Ryuji it plays at that cutscene and it's like a different sort of in- instrumentalized version of that but yeah Sunset Bridge is also very good yeah uh, best dungeon music oh the, well one it just has the best dungeon music of any persona so you can just say best dungeon music but then the specific track that is the best I'm gonna go with uh, 
it's, I guess like freedom and safety is what I'm called. The the, uh, the last dungeon song is so fucking good. The guitar solo in that song is good. Is so good, and it's just like that song conveys so much just musically about the sort of environment and tone of that last dungeon and the sort of like I could like it, the song is called basically freedom and safety. And it so much conveys that sense of, like, people just being in cages and being mollified by it, by, like, the sort of, like, slow, like, very soft kind of, like, almost, like, music in despair. But then underneath it, there's, like, this, like, kind of drum march that feels like we're, like, this is, like, a tragic sort of desperate situation where people have given up, but we're, like, marching towards the end. It's a really good track. It's a great track. My favorite of the Palace themes would be... Uh, the Days When My Mother Was There, which is the, yeah. the one that plays in Futaba, Futaba's Palace, the desert one. Both versions of that, just love them. That is yeah. definitely my favorite, the one I just couldn't get enough of. But I will throw a special shout-out to Ark, which is the, the one on uh, Shido's boat, which that just is like good get-pumped music. Yeah. I will then also just give another shout-out to Price, which is the Kaneshiro's Palace one, which is just so catchy. It's just a really fun song. There's no wrong answer. They're all great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's enough for the music. We'll talk more about that, and yeah. you'll hear more about it. <laughs> anyway. It will be coming up a lot. <laughs> all right, so I want to go with some superlatives. And uh, I'm going to try to start small and grow. Okay. And if you have ones, just jump in. Okay. I have some on a list. What's your favorite Velvet Room design? I'm Persona 5. Like, just in terms of, like, it feels like they just decided to go fucking nuts with it in a way that I yeah. really love. And I also, we talked about this on the last podcast... But it's so cool the moment when you can just walk around the Velvet Room actively as a character. Just like, it, it, it is the 12th Doctor's TARDIS of Velvet Rooms. <laughs> I think I can go with that. I love the prison an awful. I mean, they're all great. The elevator, I, I really have a soft spot in my heart for the limousine because I think it's ludicrous in a totally different way. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, the prison and just that they, every part of it changes. Because like, the limousine and the elevator... The actual functions of them are the are identical, you yeah. know? But the prison, like, no, you're not fusing personas. You're cutting their fucking heads off. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Related to that. Okay. Rank the Velvet Room attendants. Um, Elizabeth. Uh, like, I will just put them, like, the Persona 5 ones as a pair. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, that's because totally fair. Yeah, so them as pair, then Margaret, then Theodore, who's the, the P3P female one. Yeah, I would most. This is, I'm like, I'm not going to count like the weird people in Persona One because there are weird yeah. people in Persona One and Persona Twos, but they we're not counting them. Yeah, we're not counting them. Uh, I would go mostly the same. Elizabeth is number one. Caroline and Justine are number two. Yeah, I, I just to be different, I'll put Theodore at number three because his stuff in Persona Q is fantastic. Yeah. And then Margaret's at the bottom. No disrespect to Margaret, she's just not the most exciting. I mean, she's a very she, she's she's not supposed to be a very sort of out there character. Right. Yeah. Uh, but Elizabeth is the best. But yeah. uh, Caroline and Justine, close number two. I yeah, think. I recently I was, I was looking at some threads about Persona 5 and people talking about the game. And someone posted one of those gifts from Persona 3 of Elizabeth dancing. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, Elizabeth's yeah, the best. She's yeah, very good. She's the best. She's very good. All right. Um, boy, now I'm jumping into harder ones. Uh, trying to think if there's any other like smaller ones I can do. Uh, Persona, this one just goes, goes to Persona 5 again. But Persona Living Quarters. Okay, yeah, sure. Because you yeah. live in a fucking attic and it's awesome. Yeah, no, like, it is it is really cool. Yeah. I, I, I love opening up the game and, like, you have to go up there and you have to, like, clean everything. It's a very good scene. Yeah. Oh, I love all that. And That's you get hilarious. to decorate it, put, yep. put your nude statue in the corner. <laughs> 
do you get that from? Um, I think I think if you go with Yusuke to the art exhibit, I think he gives it to you. Oh, I, I guess I must not have done that. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Of course he would. Of course he would. All right. Uh, best persona protagonist. What the fuck? Uh, 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 Maya from Persona 2 Eternal Punishment slash Persona 2 Innocence Sin because she has like weird heart things on her boobs over her jacket <laughs> and it's like the most absurd fucking character clothing choice I think I've ever seen in the game. So you're dodging the question. <laughs> yes. Okay. Boy with an earring from Persona 1. <laughs> I was thinking of between 3, 4, and 5. Okay. And I'm it's gonna, yeah. virtually an impossible question. Yes. I when guess I, from when I, three episode, I guess she's okay. technically a protagonist. Okay, uh, unnamed protagonists. Um, Damn it. Ta- when I look into my heart of hearts and like, where do I go to? Just like thinking of it, like automatic. It's still Yunarukami to me. Sure, he is a cool motherfucker. Just how much character they get out of him throughout Persona Four, I think, is sort of marvelous, and. As good as Persona 5 does on that with its character. And it does a great job. It still doesn't quite touch Yunarukami to me. Here, but I could also make yeah, the argument for I'm, P3. I'm, here, I think I might be ultimately leaning for the Persona 5 protagonist. I'm going to lay down my argument here. Is that neither the Persona 3 protagonist nor the Persona 4 protagonist. do Neither of them ever look straight into the camera and just go, hmm. And smirk. It's pretty... It's a pretty good trick the Persona 5 protagonist has in doing that. It's pretty fucking cool. It's pretty cool. He's got a really good outfit. He's got an insanely cool outfit. He has an insanely cool outfit. One other thing for Narukami is the dialogue choices you can make as Narukami kind of blow either P3 or P5 out of the water in terms of dialogue choices. But that's the thing with like the Persona 5 protagonist. It's not about the things you say. It's about the things you don't say. It's about the things you go, hmm, T. No wrong answer here. No, they're all great. They're all great. But it is it is absolutely Maya from Persona 2. In terms of a character design, I would go with P3 because the, the, the fucking headphones and the blue hair and everything, it's great. Sure. But anyway, uh, they're all great. Um, Persona mascot characters. It's Morgana. In, okay, Morgana, Teddy, Igus. Do we consider Igus a mascot? No, no. Like, that's not, like... I wanted you to fight... It's sort Mor- of split between Igus and Koromaru, really, that's true. for Persona 3. I really just wanted to set up a scenario where you have to fight Morgana and Igus. But I don't, I'm not going to make you do that. No. Because they wouldn't fight, they would team up. That's true. And I guess we're because not... No Igus, because Igus could understand what Morgana is saying even without having going, gone to like the subconscious world because I just can talk to fucking animals. It's very true, very true. So they, they would have an instant connection. I think they would. Also, I guess just has, a, I think, a love for living creatures. And, yes. Yeah. Um, no, they'd be good friends. And no one's fighting for Teddy even though Teddy is a phenomenal character. I love Teddy, but he's just not quite on that level. He's a little too horny. <laughs> More than a little too horny. More than a little. Because because here's the thing: like Morgana has a deep, deep love for for Lady On, but it's not a horny one. It's, no. it's a very respectful one. It's it's the kind of love he would you know, court that a her, samurai has for their for their master. He would court her if he if he ever got romantic. He would like go ask her father her hand before anything happened. You know, he'd be very respectful. Yeah. He's also a cat, so you know, there's some issues with that. He's a human. All right. Um, do you have any of these fun, these fun little ones? Uh, th- th- uh, best combat system. Well, Persona 5. That's, that's so easy. There you go. Um, 
Like, here, uh, here's a superlative. Yeah. I think Persona 5 has the best combat system in any JRPG ever, especially with how it interacts with everything else. Sure. Can you argue against that? No, not really. Yeah. No, yeah. Because we mean, can go outside of Persona if you want. I just thought these were fun ways to compare the different games. Okay. Well, the best soundtrack. That was where one of the ones I was going to go to okay. is a big one. It's Persona 5, but yes. with the asterisk that I love the fucking shit out of the Persona 3 soundtrack. But the Persona 5 soundtrack, I mean, the bigger question is, is it the best soundtrack ever? Not just for Persona. I mean, it's up there. It's Yeah, it is obscenely good. It's obscenely good, It's yeah. obscenely good. The bass just, you know, <laughs> yeah. pushes it over the edge, yes. right? Okay, the best character designs then. Persona 5. It's got a lot of these superlatives. I mean... I just think as an overall thing, you look at the character designs, they are just so phenomenal, and I think bold, but with this like kind of grounded realism to them too. Like The Persona 3 character designs, I fucking love, and I think they're super striking. They're very anime, you know? They're very... Yeah. People have red hair and blue hair and stuff like that, and that's not a character thing. It's not like they went out and dyed it. That's just how they're drawn, and that's totally fine. I think it's amazing what Persona 5 kind of gets away with, given how grounded everything feels in those character designs. You yeah, know, it's like, something that it very much feels like is a bit of an influence from the Persona 2 games, is, is yeah. there's a more, like, people living in the city kind of, like you said, grounded element to it. That even, like, you know, some of the more people that look slightly outlandish, like Takemi, is because of, like, there are people that look like that that choose to have, like, that many piercings and stuff, like, that are to dye their hair. Yeah. All right, one of the other ones I had on my list as a big one is Best Social Links. Which game has the best overall social links? Uh, oh, overall social links, I would go with Persona 5. I think, like, the, the like as a whole, like, I just feel like, there, there's, again, like, I feel like there's, even if there's, you know, Shinya's or Hifumi's are not, like, the most exciting, there's no social link I ran into in Persona 5 that's like, oh, fuck, I don't want to hang out with this person. Whereas, like, there's a couple of them, like, I've already, I hate making fun of him, but, like, the tutor one in Persona 4 always sort of struck me as being like, it's fine, but, like, I, I like. I will pick Persona Four here. Okay. Partially to be contrarian, but partially because I do think Persona Four strikes a really nice balance for me between the kind of crazy anarchy of Persona Three and its social links, and that they'll do anything with a social link. They really will. They will. And Persona Five, which I think I love the social links and the overall system of it, but I do think just how focused and on point everything is robs a slight bit of the charm I get out of Persona 3 and 4 and its social links of some of that just discuss like I like that some of the social links are on the side and I think you're absolutely right Sean when you say you know sometimes you can kind of forget a social link happened and it doesn't have the same emotional impact as the end as Persona 5 but there's also kind of a greater scope it feels like to it in Persona 3 and 4 because Persona 5 has I feel like more automatic social links Everyone on your team and the team is bigger gets a social link. So the actual slice of the game that is like people out in the city you go hang out with feels smaller and I don't, I love most of them. There is like Shinya and Hifumi that I don't kind of feel the same attachment to. I do think like the moment to moment writing in the Persona 4 social links, and this is a very direct comparison to me because I played it earlier this year again. I think in general Persona 4 and 5 are pretty much on par with those, but there are some that just, I don't know, so blow me away in Persona 4 and I think because Persona 4 was the first one I played, and I think that is the element of the game that probably drew me in the most, and I think still is like the key, the secret sauce that unlocks everything in Persona is sure. the social links. But like, yeah, I think I could make the argument for Persona 4 in that, especially if you know you consider the Golden, and then you have Marina Dachi and holy sure. crap. But like, 
I just think I look at the general scope of the social links of Persona Four, and there are so many fantastic ones there. And some of this is recency bias. I guess I don't want to pin Persona Five on this one that fast. The Persona Five social links are fantastic, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, I might pick Persona Four on that one. Yeah, I think for me, one of the main like things I really love about the Persona Five ones is that we already talked about this, but how they wrap into everything and feel like they exist within the whole game and it's especially it's when you get to the ending sections of the game where like the game can expect that you have played through most of the social links or at least been introduced now to all of them that the characters come up in the main story in a way that like in persona 4 it's like their like relationship with the protagonist is like kind of like it becomes so ethereal that's like there's a charm to it but then at the same time with persona 5 you like seeing all these people that you have touched their lives like really actively working together at the end of the game at multiple different points and it's not just like the two instances of like we're all like you know like everyone give me your energy spirit bomb style goku of like and we're going to cast the, the final uh, attack and then like on the last day like going up and talking to everyone which is what persona 3 did and what persona 4 did and i would like with persona 5 it feels more like no, like, like all these people are a part of the story. So it's like, we're going to cut to Oya, like, when you're in jail, out in your, like, old neighborhood and, like, interviewing people to find out, like, what happened with that crime because she's as big a part of the story as anyone is. And, and there's something about that I love I, so much. I, I would argue the system works better in Persona 5, absolutely. But if I'm just, like, no question, because when you start adding in, the like, the abilities and all that stuff and kind of how it all ties into the main story, I just, you know... There are plenty of Persona 5 social links that I can... You know, like, Oya oh yeah is actually another one that I think has some really interesting stuff, but overall is not, like, upper tier to me. Huh. And I just... I do feel like with Persona 4, there are just so many, and they're so good. And and I actually do like the tutoring student one. I think it, it starts... I think it intentionally starts out boring and pissing you off, and then I think it ends in an interesting place. Because that kid really fucks up poorly, badly. But anyway... Um, I, I have to admit, I barely remember what happens in a social link yeah. at all. I mean, he full up starts cheating on tests, and like his mother wants to kick him out, and all this stuff. So it's not a happy ending. How young but, is his mother? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, you cannot fuck that mother in that game. That's no. that's different than if that, that character existed I'm, in this, that would be a social link. And I you mean, they the they just don't tell you that you can, but yeah. you know, like they have, whatever whatever fucking whatever fanfic you want to have. Yeah, it, it, can, it makes more sense with him. But anyway, uh, the the honest answer is I could also make the case for Persona 3, and they're sure. all fucking great, and this is a stupid conversation, but it's fun. Yeah. Anyway, uh, all right. Best cell phone. Four, because it's a flip phone, and he just... <laughs> Narukami, the way he does it, is so great. I love the chat client in Persona 5, but I'm sorry, smartphones are not as aesthetically sexy as, like, flip phones, because you can't do the cool... Flip hanging up and like back in your pocket, and the Narukami animation for that is amazing. Okay, hold on. Let me, I because I misphrased the question. Let's back up. Best phones, generally speaking, because there's one phone in Persona oh. 5 I'm thinking about. It's a pretty good phone, both in an aesthetic sense and what you use that phone for. It's, it's a pretty powerful, effective phone. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The rotary phone. Yeah. Yeah. And the cafe. Yeah, you, you get your baby. It's the access to your dreams. Yeah. And your ability to go fucking go out at night and to fucking get your social links up, motherfucker. Yeah, that's the best phone in the whole series. Yes. No doubt about that. Uh, I wish it was still a flip phone. Because that'd be cool. It's a rotary phone. Can you, but can you imagine if like there was just a flip phone on the counter and after calling Kawakami, 
the personified protagonist like flipped it shut and put it in his back pocket. But can you imagine? He has like a, what if he had like a burner that he called Kawakami on? Jonathan, can you imagine walking up to a phone and dialing a number and that actually being the verb you would fucking use for that because it's a fucking dial? It's crazy. It's a fucking rotary phone, son. That's just real. All right. So since we're running out of time. Yes. This is probably a question we're going to have to answer on another show is the actual answer. Okay, fuck you. I already know what the question is. The answer but we is prom- fuck yourself. On our first episode talking about Persona 5, you said we were going to get here eventually. Sure. You said we'd have to ask it. All right. Yeah, I didn't say we'd have to ask it in episode 5 or whatever. Okay, but I want to just get the conversation going so people can yeah. think about it. Persona 4, we agree, of the, the three we're talking about here, is the weakest, right? Yes. Would you put Persona 1 or 2 above 3 or 5? No, no. Like I think there's an argument for it, like taking the Persona twos together, and that basically being on the Persona four level for me. Okay, yeah, but those we, games are really fucking good. I need to play them, yeah. and I here I'll commit to playing them before Persona six comes out. I think I'm <laughs> safe on that one. Sure, go I'm ahead. safe on that one. You, All right, you can just go ahead and say that. I know you're not going to do it. Yeah, no, I will. I have them on my Vita. Sure. I want to. Yeah, sure. You uh, anyway, so yeah, we're we're not saying so. Persona one, two, four are kind of their own tier, but we agree three and five are the uppermost tier. Yes. You don't have to answer this, but I'm just... I like the three versus five debate. My answer is, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But like, do you have any instinct of where you might pick one of those if you had to for like number one on a game list or something? I mean, it's got to be Persona 4 Dancing All Night, obviously. It's the best <laughs> one. Um, uh, best title is Persona 4 The Ultimate in Mayonaka Arena. No, not, not, not even that one. The, 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 the Ultimax, Ultimax Ultra, Ultra Suplex, Suplex Hold. That's the one I meant, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I don't, um, it's hard. It's, I don't know. I, here's, I definitely have the thought several times while playing Persona 5, this is probably the best game I've ever played. And that's the only way it could beat Persona 3. Let's be clear. So this is a big question to be asking. And the actual answer is, I need a year or two to sit on it. Yeah, because I think there's also, like, there's something that's frustrating to compare it because I feel like my relationship to Persona was so different playing Persona 5 versus playing Persona 3. Where it's like, there's just a lot of things in Persona 5 that are inherently less impressive than it was when I played Persona 4 and Persona 3 because I had, like, two or three years or longer like, sit with that system and and this franchise coming to it that I feel like, like... How could we ever know? Because we didn't play Persona 5 totally fresh. We played it knowing what social links were and all this stuff. Sure. And, you know, I I think the other thing you could say is, obviously, Persona 3 is a much more stripped-down game compared to 5. Yes. So that's feature-rich. It has things I know some modern gamers would consider annoying, even though we like a lot of those ticks in the game. There is something to be said. Persona 3 was the first of its kind in a lot of ways. And there's a... Whenever you have an innovation like that, it's there's something about that that can almost never be topped. Yeah. And Persona Five is innovative in a lot of ways. It is not an innovation in the way Persona Three, yeah. by its very nature, is was remains. Yeah, it feels like a culmination of this sort of experiment they created. Yeah. But Persona Three was like the the spark, you know. And what I ultimately want to get through with this conversation is, yes. if you want to know how strong our recommendation for Persona Five is, this is an actual debate. Yeah. Of we are asking, can this game supplant Persona 3, which we would both agree is the best game ever made, Yeah. as having the title of the best game ever made? Yes. So that is how highly we are recommending Persona 5. Yeah, that's fine. 
Because here's another thing that makes it really hard for me is like my experience playing Persona Five the first time was so just amazing from like a like personal like achievement point of view of being able to play it yeah. in Japanese. That's like it's like there's a part of me that just wants to say Persona Five like almost on the back of that like kind of by default in a weird way. But and I could see you in like so, but it's so hard to. But I could see you in two years making that argument yeah. and it being completely valid. Like, yeah. I mean, and if you said that to me today, I'd think it's completely valid. I can just see you're absolutely right. I can totally understand where you're coming from on that. But just on the quality alone, I mean, we can have this conversation. Yeah. It's because there are a lot of ways in which Persona 5 is better than Persona 3. Yes, yeah. There's a lot if you're like trying to like make the pro con list. I feel like Persona 5 wins in that way, but like. That's not how you actually make that comparison. Either. Right. It's about it's, it's, it's about, about your heart. It's about what you feel. It's about a lot of ethereal things you can't put on paper. Yeah. So speaking of ethereal things you can't put on paper. Yes. Next week's show is going to be our Twin Peaks retrospective. <laughs> that it is ethereal for sure. That was a good transition. I yes. Think. Uh, yeah. So next week, Twin Peaks is the best Persona game ever made. Yeah. There you go. We have been planning it for a very long time. We basically just, we had so many other things going on. This is the last week we can possibly do it before the revival. So we'll be doing that. If other things come up, it might become a two-podcast week. He Hopefully does, yeah. it can just be Doctor Who and then Twin Peaks, and that'll be the whole episode. And we are going to talk about the show and Firewalk with me. So if you haven't, they're really old. If you haven't seen them, you're not going to, I, I would imagine. But you should. They're really good. You can skip a lot of season two. But, you know... Here, you can watch, watch all of season one, season two through episode nine, and then you can jump ahead to the finale, and then watch Firewalk with me, and you're probably good. Yeah. If you want to rush it. I mean, the finale, don't like, if you do that, finale will not make any sense to you, but don't worry. Half of it doesn't make sense anyways, and it's not supposed to. That's so great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about Twin Peaks, and then, you know, who knows, the, the, the Showtime Twin Peaks might be added into our regular rotation. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll figure that one out. Uh, Doctor Who's going to continue... There's the sequel to Prometheus coming up, which I'm pretty sure we're contractually obligated uh, to talk about. I don't want to watch it, Jonathan! I don't want to go see another Alien movie! But Prometheus... Like, we're known for that, Sean. I know. <laughs> I know. We did it to ourselves. God damn it. Why did we make those choices? We were so young. We'll see you guys next week. You know, with all this Persona 5 and all this Twin Peaks, I need a fucking damn fine cup of coffee.